Hello, everyone. I want to between the sheets, episode number three twenty-five. I'm your host Chris Zelda, joined as always by my co-host David Bix and Span. And Bix, how are you doing this week? Well, what does that mean? I'm just asking a question. How are you doing I'm this doing week? Fi- I'm doing fine, and no more shenanigans to report for the time being. Yeah, thankfully that's over with. Hopefully it's over with. But anyway. Well, I did get a promo cut on me about something presumably unrelated on New Japan Pro Wrestling, but whatever. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, I almost <laughs> forgot about that, too. <laughs> and it just, it just faded away quickly, just like New Japan has in recent uh, months, hasn't it? Yeah. But anyway. Yes, it's time to show. observe this, brother. <laughs> Yes, it is now time to go back to the 90s, and uh, we're going to have a really fun show this week. It's, uh, it's the time of the year, Halloween Havoc season. And I couldn't think of anybody better to have on the show than one of our dear friends and uh, favorite wrestling promoters on the independent wrestling scene. And it's always great to have him on. It's been way too long since we've had him on. We are joined yet again by... Black Label Pros, Mikey Blanton. Mikey, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I, I could have my calculations wrong. I think this is my fourth time. I it's, I was thinking it was either third or fourth. I'm pretty sure it's fourth. And I need to get to that like SNL five-timers club. And that <laughs> that's like my goal. And I hope you guys present me with a jacket. And that is just – that's one of my life goals is to be a between-the-sheets five-timer. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, Who will be the Conan? <laughs> Making a cameo. Yes. Um, I'm thinking, I mean, and Bo and O'Connor have been on, I think, more than anybody now. Um, Al Getz has been on a lot. I mean, there's a, a lot of people have been on a lot, but Bo and O'Connor are the top two. So, uh, but still, you're, you're, in, you're, in, uh, you're getting up there. So you're, you're getting up there in, with all, with all the greats. So there, and you're something to be proud of, I guess. Yeah. Also, <laughs> yeah, we had praise. All... We had praise act two weeks ago. We have you this week. Does that mean two weeks from now we need to finally have Sarah on? Oh my goodness, Sarah! Like first off, Marty and Sarah, great people. Yes. Uh, friend of the show, as uh, radio oh. shows like to say. Uh, sure. But but they listen religiously. To between the sheets. Yeah, I so, know. We know. So, yeah, she would be such a great uh, fit for this. And, like, the thing about Sarah is, like, she got into wrestling later in life. So when she discovers all this stuff and she'll rewatch it all, oh, my goodness. It is – it's just a delight. And I think – I, and I'm, yeah. I'm obviously biased, but I think her and Dave are the best. <laughs> that, that's the, the thing is, is that we I got, I got to get that right show. That feels right for for her to make her debut on because I want her to be awesome on on the show. So I can get that right show. So I feel like something in '94 or '95 that's just shenanigans would be perfect. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens when it comes down the pipe. So hopefully before the year's out, that will happen. So we're, we're I'm definitely aiming for that. But anyway, we are in the '90s and we're in 1993 discussing the week of October 20th through the 26th. 1993. Yeah, 1993. That's right. Hip hip hop array. And um, as I said last week, um, this is a Patreon request show by Jason Nakarado. And we are not going to cover the Sid Arn stabbing incident because it technically took place on October 27th, 
We already did that show six years ago on show 15, which should be up hopefully by the time that this show drops so people can hear that again because it's one of the shows that that, uh, fell through the cracks on the change over the red circle. And um, you can hear us talk about that there. We also talk about it on patreon.com slash 20 sheets on one of the shows we did there. So we talked about it ad nauseum, but again, it didn't take place during our week. So there, we won't mention that, but anyway. Well, and also if you want to hear more about it, it's also covered in depth on the Patreon show about the Wrestling Flyer 1993 annual because we covered the key parts of the interview with Sid Vicious about the stabbing. Yeah. All right, and, so, and also, yeah. uh, Gary Michael Capetta covers it in his book, but he's probably lying like the rest of his book. But, uh, <laughs> but overall, uh, if you if you want his uh, quote unquote take on it, uh, go ahead and buy that book. <laughs> I bought that book. Many years ago, one of the, one of the few wrestling books I own. So there. Wait, did you buy the self-published buy version or the ECW Press version? Oh, I don't remember. So it's, it's, I bought it a long time ago. Oh, that's all I know. So you, you probably bought it in person uh, from the then kidnapped Josh Matthews, uh, who was like, pretty <laughs> much kidnapped by uh, Gary Capetta for about six months. <laughs> I bought it from. I bought it at uh, Borders, I think, or something like that. So it's the ECW so. Press version. I guess. But anyway, all right, uh, let's go to the World Wrestling Federation, where we're going to talk about something that didn't take place during our week, but the fallout took place during our week. Just like the Sid thing. Um, a few notes on the fallout of the Randy Savage interview regarding Hulk Hogan on WF Radio Show on October 16th, which whenever we do that week, we'll cover all that more in depth. Uh, first, this is not an angle, as was believed at the time in last week's Observer Went the Press. The most intriguing aspect of all this is that Hogan was asked a few days earlier to appear on the show, although never informed that Savage would be on or what subject matter was being planned for the show. Apparently, there was a well-laid-out plan to ambush an unknowing Hogan with Savage's comments in a public forum. Hogan, who had done the same radio show two weeks earlier, apparently had a premonition something was up. This is awfully quick to be asked to do a radio show for a company he was no longer working for. Or simply was busy and lucked into not being in a potentially embarrassing position. Even as the show was going on, neither Jim Ross nor Randy Savage knew for certain whether or not Hogan was going to call in, as reportedly he never either confronted or or non-confirmed the request to appear. While many were furious with some remarks Savage made, Hogan's publicly taking the ignore-it-in-a-go-away position and isn't expecting the public in any of this ever happening. Hogan, who spent most of the past week at Disney Studios in Orlando filming Circus of the Stars, which he's hosted with MTV's Adam Curry for CBS TV. Holy shit. Suppose I wasn't even aware of the comments on either television or radio until Tuesday. There's a good case to be made for taking this position since if Hogan were getting the public pissing contest, he didn't have having his name soiled even more, particularly since the attempt to de- defending himself on the charge of lying on Arsenio is going to be tough to pull off. At the same time, this ignoring the go-away position when it comes to the same repeated criticism for lying on Arsenio Hall in July 1991 has ended up being extremely dam- damaging to Hogan. While he's attempted to ignore it and pretend it has gone away for two and a half years, it has constantly resurfaced since that time and has resulted in severe, it was severe damage to its image and both as a wrestling draw card in many public arenas and much private criticism within his profession. If not the idea itself, almost surely approve of the idea to have Savage go on radio and make those comments had to come from Vince McMahon. Because of that, the relationship between Dwayne and Hogan 
the name synonymous with the organization for the past 10 years has been strained more now than ever before. And Minko's situation, I believe, is now strained beyond repair. Nobody's come up with any reasons, just speculation for why this plan, which in hindsight appears to have been a dramatic way of making a statement against Hogan, was implemented. But if you're anxious and waiting for more interviews of this nature to build to a Hogan-Savage match at WrestleMania, the odds are extremely long against anything more being said or the match happening. Now, Dave didn't want to make any comments about, uh, many comments about the rash from Mark Savage Mace at the time of the Lancers issue. He was on the impression it was a unique beginning of a WrestleMania angle. First, while this is hardly saying anything that hasn't been said to death, it's hypocritical in this position and not someone for telling the truth. Savage's comments regarding Hogan's Arsenal interview has been said by others, but publicly and probably for two and a half years. One can knock Savage or Titan Sports itself, since Savage was acting in some ways as a company mouthpiece in this interview. For saying the same thing the company had been so outraged about when others went public with identical statements years earlier. But truth is truth. Among the many in the wrestling among the many within wrestling that probably commented to Dave on the situation, the consensus of opinion is that Hogan lied on a senior regarding steroids, and the best Savage's appearance when he addressed the same subject many months later was only slightly more honest. Savage had to show up to much outcry, claiming Hogan lied, had already gone public, and could learn from the mistake he made. Savage at best addressed steroid subject as a way to get off the pre-planned joke where he categorized his own use as experimenting when it was legal, but he quit when they gave him PMS. Savage didn't lie and deny use, but Harley can be congratulated for setting an example and coming clean on his personal use, exactly what he criticized Hogan for not doing. The term experimenting will lead the public to believe some very minimal use over a short period of time. Statements about legality of steroid use are in some cases questionable depending on the time frame used, how they were obtained, and where they were used as end obtained as laws vary from state to state and from year to year. Many comments by wrestlers regarding use when legal have turned out to be incorrect. Grand jury evidence have shown federal express packages from convicted steroid dealer Dr. George Zaharian to Randy Palfo between 1987 to 1989 total nine pounds, roughly the same quantity during the same period as the packages sent to Terry Balea. It can't be confirmed that these packages contain exclusively steroids or even steroids at all, since Zaharian was convicted of distributing illegal drugs under the steroids and also distributed vitamins and other medications to wrestlers based on trial testimony. As far as Hogan, his wife's role during the period of Savage's separation from his wife, many feels a cheap shot by Savage, particularly bringing Hogan's wife into it. Dave's in no position to judge any statements on that subject. Dave's feeling is you can't knock someone for saying something if it's the truth, but what the actual truth was in that situation is something that only a few people know. And real quick, Wade said, one scenario is that WF wants to bring Hogan back. But the way to do it is to make it imperative that he does return with a premeditated shoot angle that he can eventually enter into because of the big payday. However, since Hogan's name was not mentioned all weekend on WF Telecast, it's probably safe to say WF chose to bash Hogan for one week. We'll drop it from there. If there are further relations between Hogan and WF, this would be a big hurdle to pass before the egos involved could agree to work with each other. All right, Bix. What a situation we have here. And... For people that may not know the comments that Savage made, I mean, we'll talk about that, of course, on the the show when we do for that week. But uh, kind of give a summation of what Savage said here. He pretty much blamed Hogan for breaking up his marriage. This is that interview, folks. Yes. Yes. Uh, and that was on October 16th, to be specific. Mm-hmm. Um. Should I find a key excerpt just to read so people can get the idea? I mean, yeah, just yeah, get the, the gist of it. 
All right. Um. Okay. So. Okay, let me find the best place to start here. All right. Um. Okay. This is the key part here, and actually, like about half of it's this, about half of it's the steroid stuff, and this has both in this transcript that I have here in uh, in an issue of Wrestling Flyer. So, all right. Um. There was a time I fell in love. I got engaged and got married, and it was to Elizabeth. Then it got to a point that maybe some of the kids out there can relate to. Maybe it happened to their mother and father. Maybe their uncle or an aunt or whoever, whatever, excuse me, whatever it is. But sometimes it just doesn't go forever, like they say at the altar. And Elizabeth and I, we were married, but we were having problems. At the time, Elizabeth and Hulk Hogan's wife were very, very, very best friends. And they were running around together. And I didn't think it was healthy for our relationship, but whatever's whatever. You know what I mean. A lot of people have a have a different kind of friends. But there was a time when I was wrestling on the road while we were having problems, and we'd call home and Liz wouldn't be there. And during a certain segment of time, I would just, scrolling up, get another phone call, you know, being the master of the phone that I am. What does that mean? And I would have several conversations <laughs> with Hulk Hogan, and he would give me swerves and curves, but never telling me that Liz was over there. This is when... Uh, Johnny Polo, he of Joe Supposed to Scotty Saturday, interjects to say, wait, wait. So all this was going on and Hogan was lying to you? And John Clark made sure to put lying in italics. And Savage says, well, that's what I found out later. To which uh, Scott Levy says, wow. And Savage goes back into character and says, yeah, but you're a liar too, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> You you know Raven was eating that up. <laughs> yeah, so Ross jumps in saying this is a serious matter, and he says she was either out with his wife, Linda, or hiding out right over there at their house. You know what I mean. Just whatever's whatever. Later on, while I was wrestling on the road, basically when I would call home and there was no answer for four days, and Elizabeth was MIA, missing in action for four days, you know, I was worried about my wife, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um... Four days went by, Liz finally called me, told me to get a lawyer because she wanted a divorce. You know, that was the end of the story right there. And, you know, a little bit more going after Hogan. But you get the gist. Um, and we also get some shoot names uttered. Honesty and friendship between Hulk Hogan, a.k.a. Terry Bollea, and the Macho Man Randy Savage, a.k.a. Randy Poffo, brother. I'm right out there in front of you. You know what I mean? Hit me with your best shot. Honesty and friendship wasn't there, Jim Ross, and possibly never was. And right now, on rate, talking on Radio WWF, I will tell you that it was never there. I was fooled, and I just didn't know it, and Liz didn't know it either. You know, she thought she had a best friend with Hulk Hogan's wife, but now we both know it separately, of course, because we're legally divorced. Can you believe the fact that Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan's wife, and Liz don't talk now? So what kind of friends do you think they are? <sighs> yeah. I would never believe Linda Hogan would, would do Yeah, she... She is a piece of trash that, uh, you know, ended up with a near child. But also, her book is like on that Gary Michael Capetta level of just bullshit, Diana Hart level of just – they just make things up. Like I didn't actually think just, her book was that full of shit. Linda Hogan. Like are we talking about the same person? Hold on. I think I even reviewed it for Cage Side Seats or whatever when it came out. <laughs> oh, my. I would love to read that review. I'm going to do a counter review. <laughs> like, it wasn't perfect, but it. I remember come off fairly, coming off fairly 
honest. Uh, well, we could we could differ an opinion on on that, I guess. But, but I felt okay. like I felt like the side she gave on Dark Side of the Ring of what happened though was seemed pretty honest though, if nothing else. That Which, that I thought was okay. I thought okay, but like. I mean, there's so much to go into with this. Okay, first off, like, swerves and curves is, like, the best way to describe just Hulk Hogan just going through life. And that <laughs> that made me laugh. And then, like, Dave, 1993 Dave, like, killed me with, I mean, if this is an angle, like, what would the angle, this isn't, not, does Eddie Gilbert work there? Like, there's there's no way this would be an angle. <laughs> <laughs> then a WWF 93 angle. So you're telling me that, you know, who uh, men on a mission, smoking guns. That's about that time. <laughs> like, so they're coming out, but they're doing a shoot, a shoot angle about Elizabeth leaving the macho man and Hulk Hogan protect in all of that. And that is on 1993 WWF. Dave, come on, man. Get it together. Way to, way to? In a okay, while. but like, Both all right, off. I I cannot believe that. That is, I mean, like, I guess hindsight twenty twenty, but like, my God, that is crazy to me, and and just Jim Ross, like, because I love Jr. But like, you know, back then especially, he did he did some kind of you know, questionable things and like just them having him on here and doing all this and plotting and all that. Like, I don't know. Like Hulkster is a piece of shit and it is what it is. But like, I like macho man, like she left for a reason. She left because you're crazy. That's, you can't accept that. And that's okay. Like Hogan, Hogan wronged his, his buddy, but at the same time, like, she left for a reason, man. Yeah, Savage Dob conveniently uh, fails to mention uh, his situation and what he does. You know, like, I didn't even realize I unlocked the closet in the dressing room. How did she even leave? <laughs> well, also too, like the the version Linda gave on Dark Side about Savage and Liz, which I felt came off pretty honest, was that I think it was. His, Hogan shooting Mr. Nanny in Miami. Um, and then from there, which I really did not mean to say, notwithstanding, be that as it may, um, what happened was that they needed help with the kids because Linda was coming over and blah, blah, blah. Asked if Liz could join them. Randy figured, okay, it's fine. She's going to be there with Hogan and Linda. What's the worst that could happen? And she's there for a while and she meets a guy. And she kind of realizes what, that she's trapped in this bad relationship and decides to divorce Randy. And that seems fairly realistic given the timeline as we know it, right? See, a little-known fact that you guys don't know, this is some breaking news that uh, your your boy Mikey is bringing you guys. The man that Elizabeth met was actually shooting the movie Mr. Nanny. It was It was Sherman Hemsley. Uh, she left the Macho Man. For I sure. thought you were going to say David Johansson, actually, but whatever. No, no. Uh, yes, it was. I mean, he swept her off. Uh, she was moving on up. <laughs> Obviously, yes. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> just wanted to share that with all these great fans. Well, Hogan wasn't approve of that. Uh, 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, it would have to have been David Johansson, I guess. So. Yes, or Brother Brudai. <laughs> Brother Brudai. But the steroid thing, that's the, that's the thing to me that, that's the richest thing to come out of this, is Randy Savage, of all people, talking about somebody and steroids. And, oh, my God. I mean, because Randy Savage, before this interview and after this interview, good Lord, we all know his... Yeah, uh, eventually, eventually, but, like, this is 93, Macho Man. He looked like Dallas Buyers Club, man. He was so skinny. Aww. <laughs> Well, he got he, off of it because he was tiny. Yeah, he he would got off of it. That's I, why he was wearing off the shirt. Of well, he's been off of it for like two years at this point because he got off of it yeah. for the retirement to try to have kids with Liz. Yeah, I mean, like no one no one thinks about that. Like when he left to go to WCW, like he was so small. Like, and I know he's the Macho Man, but he didn't look like the Macho Man anymore, in my opinion. Like, and obviously he went there and kind of set it on fire, and it was great. But he got I mean, it back. I, yeah, he he did get it back. But I mean, overall, like I could I could somewhat see where hey, you know, because he was looking pretty old too, old and skinny. Like, you know, what are you really gonna do with him? Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, too, is that, you know, I wonder how much of the fact that they couldn't have kids weighed on their marriage as well, you know? Oh, yeah, that's... Because that mean, happens. Oh, right? absolutely. Any, anything, anything involving children, like, affects a marriage, man. Like, it is just, you know, like, uh, you know, that especially, like, it's, you know, because people feel like, you know, a piece of them is missing. I, I could... 100% see that. You know, because there's some that, there's some that, um, you know, they say, well, you know, we'll just go ahead and try to adopt. They'll go that direction. But more often than not, and I've known this happening personally, where marriages break up because of that for various reasons. Like the, the husband, if the wife can't have any children, then he kind of starts, you know, seeking other avenues. Or, and eventually, you know, there's cheating involved or defect or he just says, listen, we, you know, we just can't, I, I got to be married to somebody or, ha- or somebody be with somebody that has kids. I want to have children, you know, not my children. And, and you know, or the, if the guy, you know, for some reason can't do it. I mean, it, 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 it can happen either way, but yeah, I mean, it, it, that could be a psychological thing as well. Not to mention, I mean, again, all the psychological stuff that went on there between those two for years, you know, for years. So I mean, he- he wanted he wanted kids, and he was lucky enough that, you know, Paul Paul Levesque was willing to raise some of those kids. <laughs> oh, but uh, yeah. I'm gonna lose my company. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's Savage had all this pent up in him. And this was his way of getting it out. And uh, it made news, and it was a thing. And this probably did lead to Hogan not wanting to work with WF ever again, but maybe, I mean, never again, until, you know, 2000s. But maybe, uh, you know, Vince was, like like Dave saying here, Vince was doing this on purpose with Savage the Mouthpiece. But you got to also think he's not the first person in the world to blame someone else for their divorce. It's, you know, sometimes it's easier to do that. And, you know, like, cause you know, he's, 
he's probably hurt and hurt feelings. Sometimes people say the wrong thing. You know, it's it's all fine. It's all hey, fine. Well, they're, wor- they're working together again a little over a year later. So yeah, <laughs> and know? reading through the money, transcript, money talks as we're talking. Like the steroid comments are honestly not that bad in context. Um. It's basically, you know, I did them when they were legal, too, which, you know, is true, but more technically true than true. And aside from that, though, he he says stuff like that they were talking about the Arsenio appearance in the car. I think he says, like, writing to or from or both the Bush Stadium show um, two nights earlier, and that he was begging Hogan not to lie and that Hogan was telling him he was going to lie which okay we I think we believe that he that he was supposed to tell the truth and told Vince he was telling the truth and double crossed Vince based on everything Meltzer's described about his interactions with Vince around all that it seems like that's what happened do you buy that he would be telling Vince one thing and savage the other yes yes okay it is Hulk Hogan what am I saying yeah, what are you... Oh, my goodness, yes. Wait a minute, how do you even ask that question? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he, do, he does that to everyone. He he doesn't play both sides. He plays all sides. Yeah, he's all good again. Yes, that's how, he's, that's how he stayed where he was. Mm-hmm. You think he's thinking maybe Savage will tell Vince? And it's a test or I, something? I don't think he cares. Yeah, he does <laughs> not care. Like, at that, at that point, uh, he was just... Uh, Interested in making movies uh, without blood, of course. And uh, what, what did he call them? Uh, action adventure comedies, brother. Mm-hmm. And he would always do those. And like he didn't care because he thought he was bigger than wrestling. It was it was like not that much, you know, further from around here. Wasn't he talking to a network trying to get something going for himself? Um. I mean, there's been no, no discussion. Well, ninety three, ninety four, though, is like the peak of him trying to play every possible angle, though. Yes, yes, yeah. that's what I thought. Just trying to trying to make it work. I think this is the. I think this era is the first time that Hogan and Fox rumors start. Uh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, the WCW stuff, the Howard Brody stuff, too, with Ring Warriors, which you know we've talked about before. I buy what Howard wrote in his book that Hiro Matsuda had reached out to Hogan and they thought they had something because it sort of also makes sense about some of the stuff that Greg Gagne has claimed. You know, not that Greg Gagne is the most honest guy in the world, but we have pretty good reason to believe that Hogan would keep these irons in the fire as leverage. So Always. Always. So, yeah. But anyway, I mean, it's interesting little deal here. And like I said, we'll, we'll talk about this... Uh, Probably next year, we'll probably do the week that week next year to uh, talk about it even more. I should probably the, put it in the uh, the calendar so we don't forget it to skip it. Or, you know what I mean? Don't forget to do it. No. How about how about that circle right. of the stars though, real quick? Yeah, Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I, I don't remember that at all. I I remember Circus of the Stars was still around into the nineties, but I do not remember Hulk Hogan and Adam Curry. I, I I tried looking it up after I like because normally uh, I don't read any of the notes that get sent to me because I just kind of like to you know see what we come up with and then 
you know, I like to do it that way. But I read like the first couple of paragraphs and I saw and I started going through YouTube and, and Google and I, I found nothing. Yeah, the one that I uh, the one from 93 that I saw was uh, one hosted by uh, Deidre Hall from Days of Our Lives and um, Jay Thomas from Murphy Brown. That's one I, I, I saw online, but I never saw Hogan or Adam Curry anywhere. But yeah, and it went in the 90. I know it was 94, too. So because they have one called uh, Circus Girls Go to Disneyland. So, yeah, who knows? But anyway, they, there you go. All right, uh, Raw. Now, of course, Dade will talk about Raw in the Observer at this time period. Wade does, and Wade has an interesting way of doing shows, and we're going to do this on this entire show. He did this for a while and got rid of it. Why, I don't know, but he did, like, a whole chart of <laughs> grades where he would grade the, show, the TV shows out. So Raw, uh, this week's Raw got a 77 out of 100. Match quality got 16 out of out 20. Of 20 yes. Achieved Purpose got 18 out of 20. Angles got 8 out of 10. Interviews, 3 out of 10. Announcing, 9 out of 10. Production values, 10 out of 10. Pacing, 9 out of 10. And send the tune in next week, 7 out of 10. Yes. Now, so, there's your 7. Something we should note real quick. I have no idea why, because I've never seen anything like this happen before. You copied and pasted it from the text version on the Torch website into our notes. Um, I did not look. So does it read this way on the Torch website with all of these weird? It does. Okay. It does. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I think all of us in our lives have seen, especially copying and pasting from old websites and stuff, weird junk characters that get thrown into stuff, like whether it's to replace question marks, quotation marks, apostrophes, hyphens, whatever. Here, it happened to all of them, but they're all question marks. It's not a different character for each one. It's very strange. That's the first time I've ever seen that happen. I was wondering what was going on. Because, yeah. I mean, they were just the rant. Like, they put random question marks. Like, you know, there's a thing here. It's just like, Johnny Polo previewed one, two, three, kid. Like, yeah. there's a... <laughs> It's dashes, the hypostrophes, and all that stuff. Period. Oh my gosh! Good, good luck. Crush yeah. with Mr. Well, Fuji wore face paint. In the bottom. So, I go through it. I'm not. I'm not Ron Burgundy. All right. Uh, <laughs> so Raw opened up with Vince and Bobby previewing the, the program's contents. Then we got a recap of the Crush Randy Savage angle from the week before, which would be part of our show next year. That would be the Savage that. Crush Summit? Yes. So that was Crush. on... Wait, so what's the date of this? Oh, it's the 20th. So that was the 18th. So that was. So that's interesting. They shot that angle two days after the Radio WWF thing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Crush didn't defeat Philip Hollow. Crush is now Mr. Fuji and wore face paint. So evil Crush. So... There's that. Uh, Ray Cones from Family Feud plugged the Bret Hart team versus Jerry Lawler team Survivor Series match, which does not exist on the network because we wanted to play it. Can't find it online either. So there you go. No Ray Combs. Johnny Rest Polo. Yeah. Johnny Polo previewed the one, two, three kid Marty Janetti match so he could beat both of them with his hands tied behind his back. Kid fought Janetti to double counter, ending with Polo, who came uninvited in the ringside, shoved the day's Janetti out of the way of Kid who was flying through the ropes towards Janetti. 
then we get a Jeff Jarrett video, which we'll talk about more about that later. Uh, Ludwig Borger won a squash match and promoted his match against Tatanka on, on next week's Superstars. And Miller and Mission won a squash match along with Diesel. Wade's analysis, the kid's genetic match was good, but left the jaw-dropping moves that would have set it apart. That notwithstanding, nevertheless, it was a fundamentally sound match and fulfilled its purpose well. Couldn't angle to have them wrestle each other when they were teaming in Survivor Series. Polo was finally showing some of his on-camera strings with mannerisms, bumps, and behind the mic that made him a top prospect in the Pacific Northwest a few years ago. The up-to-date announcing, meaning they do the announcing live in Stanford, made fun of Mitch Williams about Saturday's World Series. Mitch Williams, of course, the uh, closer of the Philadelphia Phillies, who gave up the game-winning home run to Joe Carter, which won the World Series for Toronto Blue Jays. And talk about that day's Oprah show made Raw seem live even when it's not due to post-production announcing. A nice touch. Heenan was entertaining, and Vince continues to be the best straight man in the business. Last week's Raw had a 78, so it did one grade less. All right, I, don't know, I don't know, Wade. That, I, I felt like it was at least an 81, man. <laughs> well, okay, so here's the big thing that jumped out at me as we were going through this. Boy, did I not remember that Quebecer's Genetti kid was like a two-month program. Or two and a half months total, I guess. I remember two matches, and one of them was like recorded, and they went like they broke into Raw saying like, hey, this happened at MSG, right? Right. Well, that's that's the week after the title change. They switch it back at MSG a week after that, and they did the, you know, live phone-in or whatever from Stan Lane. Yeah, but... My point is, so that's the Raw first anniversary is the title switch, so that's like, so that would be January 8th or 10th. I always forget how that works. I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, and then the weekend. So yeah, this is like a two and a half month program overall, and I don't think we remember it that way. Like, if you would have asked me, I would have said this match happened like in early December. Man, Stan Lane phoned in those results. He also phoned in his parenting duties. This is wild. Thank you again, by the way, for getting me uh, that autograph photo from Stan Lane, the only wrestler trained by Ric Flair. Absolutely. That's, of course. Of which, course, that's my community. Which, there by the way, go. I don't think we talked about this on here. You you got that for me. Like, the virtual signing he did was, like, the day after I sent him the request for comment. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Story. Yeah, it, it, all, it, it all kind of pieced together, and I was like, all right, I got a chance at this. I'm going to take it, because I was getting a bunch of Stan Lane to, to resell. And I was like, hey, could you could you do this extra one for me? And, you know, nice guy. Well, let's just be glad that he didn't look at his wife's email and figure out who Bix was. <laughs> There's no way he would have put that together. I mean, he seems pretty Probably. smart. He's the only wrestler trained by Ric Flair. I, I, <laughs> yes, yes. What what was his name at that uh, uh, that pay per view you guys just covered the other day? Oh, with, the uh, wrong uh, real name or misplaced Dave. Jones. Yes, Beck Stanfield Lane, or no, excuse me, Breck Stanfield Lane, which I thought was a hair. Yes, and one thing I did notice was Prazek cut you off. Because you were about to say he's the only wrestler trained by Ric Flair. And I, I heard you start to say it, and then praise that cut you off, and you never went back to it. And I was like, oh, man. Come on, Dave. <laughs> but anyway, all right, so let's talk about some, some stuff on Raw here. Crush, the Crush heel turn. Um, I think it was desperately needed at that time for him, Mikey. What, what were your thoughts on that? 
Uh, it scared the crap out of me. They did the where he dropped. Um, I don't know if it's this week or whatever. Uh, the summit's coming up, but I know that when he dropped Macho Man on the guardrail, and they said that Macho Man like bit his tongue and he had blood coming out of his mouth. That scared the shit out of me as a child. Like just like, boy, did it bother me. And it just, you know, like, but like, you know, like Crush, I see, I cannot believe that Crush got bought off by Mr. Fuji. That always bothered me because, you know, his clown grandfather, like, would not approve of that. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, Crush, uh, he he was kind of, I wouldn't say floundering, but he definitely... Went up to another level once he turned heel. But he looked like like it always blew my mind that they did not do more with him. Just the way he looked. I mean, he was bigger than everyone. He had the best. Like his hair was just so pretty. He had pretty beautiful mullet, and it just like it flowed in the wind. And he was so jacked. And like I mean, he was a competent enough wrestler. You know, like obviously, like you know, he had good opponents, but like, you know, like, I don't know. I thought they could have gone further with him. Yeah, absolutely. They could have, but Uh, yeah. Lacerated tongue is one of the dumbest injury angles in wrestling history. (laughs) I I wouldn't like it to happen to me, but it's no, but why would, why did they decide that was it? Like, I don't get it. That's what ended his marriage. (laughs) <laughs> he couldn't he couldn't use his tongue for those purposes anymore yes <laughs> she's like i'm out of here i'm going to terry's i was gonna try to make a joke about austin aries thinking that women who eat meat taste like battery acid but i couldn't figure out how to get it in there oh god he's <laughs> such an idiot and a piece of shit uh go yes, on he is but anyway um he he needed this but I don't think they really ran with this the way they could have either. No. It it just there was, was something they could, could Yeah, there was something they could have done with him and they just missed the window, I think. Yeah. Alright. Uh talk about Johnny Polo here and Wade talk about how he's finally starting to you know, get comfortable and come into his own here. Um I thought Scotty was great in the Johnny Polo gimmick, Mikey. What were your thoughts on Johnny Polo? Uh, I do love that uh, he got away with uh, telling them that he was at the office and then uh, also telling the people at the office that he was, you know, somewhere else, like the production studio or something like that. Like he would just lie. Uh, but it, the gimmick itself was awesome. He was great with the Quebecers. Uh, just like you hated him. You absolutely hated him. And um it just wasn't enough for him, though. Like, I think that they would have they would have kept him there for a while. He chose to leave, right? No. He, no, no, they fired him because he and Shane were partying together too much. Yeah, he was corrupting Shane McMahon. Uh, well, I could I could see that he took Shane McMahon's <laughs> innocence. He, yeah, uh, he was, yeah, he was corrupting Shane McMahon, and yeah, that's the main reason why. And yeah, I mean, he made Gorilla uh, fun again. Yes. His announcement with Gorilla, I mean, he, like, he, him and Will Gorilla. Will you be serious? 
Emma Gorilla were really good tandem together, hosting All America and doing the announcing. Yeah, they were really good. I don't think he really clicked until the Quebecers thing, though. I think Johnny Polo with Adam Bomb was kind of nothing at first. But yeah, it was cheesy. Yeah, it was cheesy. The other thing too is that he was wearing a polo outfit too. Right. It, once it was just a name, it worked better. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The other thing too is. As your Vince think of someone is too small, so let's make him a manager, guys, go. He, I think, more than anyone else, looked like someone who should not have been a manager. Yeah. But it's he good. Couldn't, he okay. couldn't do it now because he'd be bigger than most of the roster. <laughs> well, he's always been bigger than most of the roster in some ways. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Uh, speaking of, I just worked with uh, Scorpio recently. Great guy. Oh, how was that? It was awesome. He was great. He wrestled in a mask, like not like a lucha mask, like as in like protecting himself from COVID mask. He's and been he doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Good for him. Safety. I'm with it. Yes. Well, also, uh, who knows what shape his lungs are in after all these years? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's to hoping he uh, vaporizes most of the time instead of smokes. Go ahead. But anyway. And. Your thoughts on on when when you're watching it back then as a youngster and the commentary being you know done basically live in Stanford on tape shows, I mean it made it made it sound like they were actually there in the building live and everything was was not taped. I mean that's that's something that's kind of you know not there in wrestling anymore. You know? Yeah, it's it's like. I mean, it's very smart because, I mean, still to this day, like, you know, 2021 where everyone has access to things, I work with guys that are wrestling fans, that they're not internet wrestling fans, they just watch wrestling. And they have no idea that, like, you know, Rampage uh, is taped on Wednesday. They don't know that. They're just like, oh, yeah, like, I was watching that then. They still do not know, and myself as a child... I had no clue that it was something that was taped before. And so I was just like, oh, great, another live wrestling show. How did those people get the same seats again? But whatever. I don't know. That happens a lot here. Yeah. 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 I always wanted that too when I was younger, when I really didn't know. I'm like, man, that, 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 those same fans are there every week. <laughs> Good for them. Well, if Hillbilly or- Jim can get the same front row seat all the time, <laughs> well, that's different. But uh, that's raw. All right. Uh, Undertaker will praise Tatanka in the main event of Survivor Series after Tatanka is injured when the match with Ludwig Borga runs on television this coming weekend. They continue to hype Borga's undefeated, even though he's getting pinned at every house show. Well, nobody's watching that. They just people at the shows. It's it's crazy that you mentioned Undertaker and Ludwig Borga because 2021 Undertaker would probably really get along with Ludwig Borga. <laughs> Very like-minded. This this the lead to Undertaker with the the, the famous uh, opening of the jacket with the American flag sewn in on it. So that you know, very patriotic man. Even back then. Well, they always said he was from Death Valley. Like you know, this is a Death Valley, Japan. Come on, he was always an American. <laughs> he just wasn't a nationalist. That's fine. <laughs> so there's that. All so right. would it be the Blue Lives Matter flag if he did the angle today? Oh, 1,000%. 1,000%, and he'd be teeing over the big boss, man. Like, there's no way. Like, that's – yes. 
the state patrol. You bring, they bring yeah. the state patrol in to be his partner. He's All right. my friend, Buddy Lee Parker. <laughs> He's more of a James Earl Ray kind of guy, though, I think. Yeah, James yeah. Earl Ray, excuse me, whatever he yeah, was. Yeah, James Earl Ray, I oh, think, is... Uh... No, James Earl Ray is the guy who they face the name off of to I give know. it very racist I connotations. Know. Yes, I... absolutely. All right, of course, uh... Well, of course, too, though, too, we know that Lieutenant James Earl Ray has, a, according to some YouTubers, has a very nice ass. He does. Yes. All <laughs> right, um... A man who's going to be mentioned a couple of times on this show this week, Sabu, according to the Torch, wrestled three matches over three nights for WF, receiving trials at the three nights of TV tapings. He was only scheduled to wrestle on the 18th and 19th, but WF liked him enough, so they asked him to stay an extra day. So that's how this got in our week. Sabu was all for the job, but Tillman turned it down due to his Japan commitments and loyalty to ECW and the Upstart World Wrestling Network. <laughs> There's apparently an open door for Sabu to join WF if he were to choose that route down the line. To a Sabu's trials over three nights should be impressive, but one below average match. Sabu looked better at the second tape. This is Dave now. At the second taping, where he's pinned by Owen Hart, an excellent match. And third night of TV tapings, and was offered the job, but turned it down. But his men give up his FNW job, and he's loyal to Anita for giving him his first career break. So, uh, yeah. I- how different how different is indie wrestling, wrestling in general, if Sabu decides to take a job with WF here in 1993, Mikey? The best part of this, okay, is that he did not give a shit about getting a job there. That third date he took was literally just like another date. Like He's like, yeah, hey, I can work here. I can work, you know, in Pittsburgh for an indie. It doesn't matter. I get, I'll, I get paid better here. He didn't even care. He, he's just he was working it as a show. And that is awesome to me. But I do not believe, Dave, that he said he had an excellent match because Sabu has never had an excellent match. <laughs> but, yes, I mean, just, just think about it. How different is wrestling if Sabu goes to work for WF in 93? ECW doesn't probably happen like it happens. No. Wh- when's his ECW debut originally? Well, he's already there. Cause it's yeah. Already- no, but I'm saying how long before it was this? Uh, it was in there. It was like summerish '93. Yes, yes. Uh, that my grandmother, uh, rest in peace. Uh, she bought me from uh, a certain piece of trash from Langhorn, Pennsylvania. Uh, she bought a Best of Sabu VHS tape for Christmas for me, uh, and it had his debut on there. And it is definitely summer. Yeah, it's around time Heyman gets in there, um, which, shockingly enough. All right, Sabu's debut was October 1st, so actually it wasn't. <laughs> His debut was at a Bloodfest. Bloodfest. Uh, really? Bloodfest Part 1 against Tasmaniac. With, uh, he comes out in the straight jacket? Yep, aired on, yeah, TV yeah. on the 5th. And then he won the title the next night over Shane Douglas. So the second night in, he was, he's went the champion. So that's why he's probably a little more than anything else. He's the champion this time. Dick Flair. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Bix, what are your thoughts on this? What if Sabu does decide to go to WF here in late 93? Again, I think it's kind of moot because, uh, you know, as Mikey said, he was looking at these just as dates and payoffs and didn't really have any expectations of being signed or desired to be signed. I guess it depends I mean, I, on do you like do you think he gets to be Sabu in any form? Oh, they repackage him. 
Yeah, I just uh, he doesn't he, last long. I don't think no, he lasts he, long. He'd be having good. Uh, no, no DQ matches against uh, Adam Bomb, and Adam Bob would be uh, throwing those foam footballs at Sabu, just trying to fend him off. Oh, he would be. Oh, Sabu would probably. I mean, he wouldn't be an Adam Bomb guy. He'd probably be working against uh, Bob Holly or Sparky Plug. That's where we're at with Sabu, probably. He, he's at, at, in that range. You know, but I mean, he's not that he's not that small of a guy like and that's the thing. Bob Holly's pretty big, too. Like, it's crazy that after all those like mass releases, Bix, I know you know what I'm talking about, like Billy Gunn, all those guys that got released around the same time and they all started hitting the indies. And then we all realized, oh, my God, these guys are giant. They are all so big. Yeah, because all everybody in WF was big, too. So. Just about everybody. So, yeah, you. you kind of lose track uh, of the grasp of who's big and who's not as far as how tall they are. Well, also the night, the night, go ahead, go ahead. No, oh, you, I, you go ahead. I was going to say that I guess because also in this drug testing era, Vince is looking for naturally large men who can be big without being on steroids. I think that's part of it too. That's why like, the smoking guns look fairly normal sized, but Billy Gunn outside of a WWF environment looks like even now, even if you put him with someone big, he is still bigger than them. Like it's, he's like a legit six five, six six. He's huge oh, yes. all around. I mean so, so big that it was the the day after uh Candido passed away. It might have been like IWA had a show in Valparaiso, Indiana, IWA Mid-South, Ian Rotten, shout out. Um, and Billy Gunn was there, and I remember walking up to him, and like, I mean, like, I was eye-level with his balls. It was insane. He's he's so tall. Like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, literally, I'm being, like, I'm not even joking at all. Like, I could, like, give him a kiss on the belly button and, like, not bend over at all. Like, just, like, straight, that's how tall he is. It's crazy. Yeah, he's a large man, absolutely. Oh, he absolutely is, yes. And uh, who's the other one I was going to say? Oh, I think the funniest one probably is Shane Helms. Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, I went – there was this shindy uh, that I was at one time, and there's this – there's some guy that has kind of like a weather gimmick that works those shows and it was like one of those legend shows and like anytime i see those like kind of close i'm gonna go and shane helms teamed with this you know this asshole that looked like shit and it was i i will find a picture and i will put it on twitter for everyone because i mean it is the funniest thing you guys will ever see i mean it looks like a make a wish or something it's awful <laughs> wow also, right, uh, <laughs> just to close the loop and get back to 1993 WWF, too, before we move on, Waltman never would have been signed by that company if he wasn't as tall as he is. No. Oh, he, he's very tall. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. Sh- yeah, Sean's, like, even now, like, what, 6'2"? Yeah, yeah, he, um, yeah, he's just, like, you know, he's not a small guy. I mean, he's skinny, but I mean, like... He didn't. He never looked like tiny. He didn't look like he was malnourished. You know, no, he was no. just. He was just skinny. Yeah. 
All right, uh, Rich Myers, our crush thing earlier. Rich Myers, who has done a few TV jobs as son of George Animal Steel, was given a chance for a win in a tryout match in Glens Falls. They said they've made Todd Champion like a ballerina. Okay. Um, <laughs> I gotta say, I do not miss the habit of people covering wrestling, just assuming people are related because they have the same last name. <laughs> This is Ramblin' Rich Myers, who is definitely not the son of George the Animal Steel. No! <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like, what the hell is this, Dave? Oh, my God. What? I'm trying to think, who else do we have? Scott Keith saying that Ivory is Ed Moretti's daughter. No, yeah. he didn't. He did. Oh, yeah. He absolutely did. I mean, I believe it. He's not... Uh, what's the word? Skilled. Like, he's not skilled at writing, I don't think. Uh, some of well, his books are... At this point, we I think we agree Scott was most likely kind of a fabulous, right? Because his whole thing at one point was pretending... I mean, well, I say pretending. His thing was saying that he, like, oh, I know this stuff because I'm the one that actually subscribes to The Observer. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, uh... For Christmas, I got some of his books, like probably, I don't know, maybe 2000. I don't know if it was that. A shitty Christmas present. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Like, it's like, man, Aunt Cindy, do you just not like me? What is happening here? (laughs) But I I read them because, like, you know, you're so you're so hungry for any wrestling and you're reading this and like, this is bad. Like, this sucks. I don't know. I don't like Scott Keith. And uh, anyway, where was I going with that? Oh, also funny, though, too, because Ed Moretti's actual daughter married Buddy Wayne and is the mother of uh, Nick Wayne. Nick Wayne. Yes, that is that is true. Uh, Current BLP superstar Nick Wayne, who made his debut uh, in September, the first September. He's good. He's really good. and He's only 16. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, because we have our own child that we we have been rearing into wrestling named Billy Starks. Yeah. So uh, bringing another child, it was like, hey, let, let all the kids fight. That's fine. Nick Wayne makes me feel old, though, in a way that Colby Carino doesn't. I mean, granted, there's like a nine-year age difference, but like because Colby was always around wrestling, whereas Nick, I remember when he was born. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's insane. It is insane. Like I I got the chance to tell him like, look, like I only got to I only got to meet uh, Buddy one time when Brian and I went on the death tour like years ago, and he went down to uh, what was it? Uh, deep not Deep South. What was that? Derby City. Derby Remember City that? wrestling. Yes. And and he wrestled an Iron Man match uh, down there, and Buddy was down there with uh, uh, what's his name, Rip. Rip Rogers. That was my only time meeting Rip Rogers too, which I'm still kicking myself for not getting that autograph because man, but whatever. Did he but, say anyone uh, was the shit? Well, you, you could always book him. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but, but I remember. Make sure, uh, and make sure you run Seymour, Indiana, when you book him too. Yes, yes. Uh, I I actually dated a girl that went uh, that grew up in Seymour, Indiana. So, and it was her last name was not Rogers. So. You know, no, that's I, I, no, I don't think his is either. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But um, I remember Brian told me then that he was on a diet of just black coffee. Rip Rogers was for like months. And he was like telling him about that. Like that was such a wild trip. 
driving around the country with uh, Brian Alvarez. Oh. Interesting time in my life. I'm sure it was. The girl you dated, her last name wasn't Ciara, was it? No. No. Ciara. It's Ciara. No, no. It's no. Okay. I should have just dated Rip Rogers, man. That would like my keys could have fell in the toilet. I would have been fine. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Also gonna try out both nights is Sid Vicious clone Glenn Jacobs. Who be Yeah, I love that. Who would be the Black Knight at Survivor Series? They believe all three nights with the unknown muscle types. Jacobs had worked Florida Indians as Sid Powers and Jim Powers and Memphis as Doomsday currently in Christmas Creature. Black Knight debuted during a Bret Hart and Jerry Lawler cage match on October 19th in Glens Falls. And Yoko Zinni was perfectly clean, blah, 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 stuff that happened before all week. But uh, Sid Vicious clone Glenn Jacobs picks. I like that. I guess it's the hair and the height. Yeah, well, that's what I thought in 95 when he was humongous, you know. You mean Unabomb. (laughs) All all right. Uh, He looked like humongous as Unabomb. In 2021, who do you think had a more lasting impact in wrestling? How are we defining lasting impact in wrestling? Who was the bigger star? Oh, uh, Glenn Jacobs. Yeah. It's Absolutely. yeah, it, it it goes without saying. Yes, like it's I mean, Sid, Sid. Sid is that uh, that that um, I'm trying to think of a music analogy. Sid's that band that had that one great stretch of of hits and stuff. Kane's the guy who had the longevity and was always around putting out albums. They stayed relevant for many years. Yeah, so so Sid Sid is like the new Radicals, which I mean that whole album was great. Every song is good. Yeah, I love but, it, and I and I go yeah, back to it. No, I have a better analogy. Sid is men at well, no, that doesn't really work because his later stuff wasn't big. I was gonna say Sid is men at work. Glenn Jacobs is Colin Hay as a solo artist or something ridiculous like that, but that doesn't really work. I love uh, Colin Hay. Okay, that scene from Larry Sanders is awesome. Uh, anyway, yes, of course. Uh, the thing I always remember, though, for I think it was in the torch when he starts in Smokey, is I don't know if it was Wade or someone else saying he looked like a cross between Sid and David Schultz. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's the curl, the curl hair and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. Okay, guys, I got it finally. Sid is Smash Mouth. Like he had hits for a while, and now when he shows up, it's kind of just a joke. So who does that make Glenn Jacobs? Uh, Glenn Jacobs is. Um... Well, I got it. I, I got it. Sid is Sid is Limp Biscuit while Glenn's Lincoln Park. There you go. Yeah, I just don't like either of them. <laughs> but anyway, all right. After a rep up, Knight went to the cage, pulled all out the door, pulled the ruckus, see Lawler had escaped. Owen Hart ran in, threw Lawler back in. As the Knight was destroying Owen on the floor, Brett managed to escape and win. There are no video walls up during the Glen Falls taping, but they were there on the 20th in Burlington, Vermont, which was the Superstars taping. So that's clearly where, just an issue with the building and how they could set it up, I would think. Yeah. Adam Bomb attacked Marty Giannini in the aisle into a match next week where Giannini loses by count out and all the Survivor partners get involved. And also, official announced on TV this past weekend was a Bastion, Booger, Head Shrinkers, and Bam and Bigelow versus Doinks match Survivor Series. Don't think Savage will be a Doink as speculated on here last week. Probably be Matt Bourne and Steve Lombardi, neither Phil or Ray Apollo, and another guy. 
Okay. Bill and Ray Apollo are different guys. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if he thinks they're the same person or not, though. I think he does. Well, he's not <laughs> the only one, although that's more a later years thing. Because it's not... Ray Lichtelli work. I mean, he had worked as Ray Apollo, but he wasn't that visible. It was more some, like, older ICW stuff. And I don't think he ever overlapped with Phil Apollo there. But they were both New England indie guys, so I get why it was confusing. Because um, Ray Apollo was just like a friend of Bam Bam. That's how I get in, right? I'm pretty sure that's how it went. Well, no, uh, Phil never. Well, Ray Ray is the one who gets the job, though. Phil is doing. Yes. Yeah, Phil does not. Yeah, Phil, yeah, that's Apollo. Phil. Yeah, I I remember I heard somewhere that someone said that it was. Um, he was a, just a friend of Bam Bam's, and that's that's how he got the job. The part that always threw me was why didn't it go to Kern? Unless they felt like they needed to do something completely different for since he was turning babyface and they lost the original. I guess. I don't know. Oh. All right. In, in the IC title match, Razor Ramon beat Ray Martel by countout when Harvey Whippleman came out, but Razor knocked the two of them together and Martel lost. Martell and Woodman started arguing, and then Baum and Martell started arguing the teeth of the ascension angle, but all made up. Bret Hart had a singles match via arrest. Anyway, Mr. Fuji hit Bret with a flagpole. Jim Cornette and Yokozuna came out as well as Owen Hart to set the tag match of Bret, Noah versus IRS and Yokozuna. So there's your TV taping. They debuted B-team shows this past week on a poor show they drew poorly, as in less than 1,000 fans. Uh, because they're working with local because they're working with local charities, a lot of normal costs of running a show are removed. Yeah, wait a second. They're, they're sold shows. They're making the same money, but regardless of how many people it draws. Exactly. The A team loaded up shows drew poorly for their debut in Amherst, Massachusetts on Thursday. We'll have the official attendance coming up, but Dave had about fifteen hundred. Excellent in Pittsburgh on Friday, ninety eight hundred, which is. Maybe right or wrong. We'll, we'll talk about that. 118,000 on gate. Good Baltimore Saturday. Fair Hershey, Pennsylvania Sunday. Brett and Lawler only worked Friday and Saturday. Got the hottest spots. All right, Amherst, Massachusetts at the Mullen Center. About 1,200 fans. Owen Hart over Bastion Booger. His triggers over Spoken Guns. When Samu pinned Billy. Razor of IRS. Yokozuna of The Undertaker. Pinned him. Quebecers over Men on a Mission. Brett Hart over Bam Bam. And Ludwig Borg over Lex Luger. In, in your main event, Pittsburgh at the Civic hang Arena. Hang on, hang on, hang on, pause. Was that the match order? That's what it says here, yeah. So the main event was Ludwig Borga pinning Lux Luger well, with a clothesline. You gotta remember. They, then, they sent the, then they sent them home. You gotta remember, WWF, even in this era, at times, would still do the main event in the middle of the show deal. No, 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 but I get I get Mikey's point. It's not even what's the real main event. It's that's going on last at a sold show. Yeah, like how, you know, like, hey, the racist just beat our American hero. I mean, that's, Bye, everyone. that's the way the results were sent in to, to weigh, because these are torch results. So that's the way they were sent well, in. Uh, what uh, would be the, I'm looking at what's on here. I'm not sure what else you would put oh, on last other than raise your hand. Hang on, hang on. I, I actually just I looked it up. The charity was for the Proud Boys, so that is. <laughs> yeah, history WF, uh, history dot com also has. Okay, we have an issue here. 
Here should WWE.com has Luger over Borga. I think we have a because I'm looking at now Luger beat Borga in every show. Yeah. Except this, this has to be the wrong result. The wrong result. All right, the the, the igloo, the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh on the twenty second, ninety five hundred, oh one over Booger, Razor Virus by Canada, Quebecers over Men on the Mission, Hashingers over Smoke Guns, Luger over Borga, Brett over Lawler, Yokozuna over Undertaker. After hitting him with a salt bucket three times, retain the title. So that's how I pinned him. In Baltimore on the twenty third, from fifty eight hundred, all the same results basically. Uh, but we do have this one match. Men on a mission. Be Axel Rotten and the Executioner. Hell yeah. So, so there's your odds match. That would be either Barry Hardy or Dwayne Gill, I would think, especially since they're in Baltimore. It's probably Dwayne Gill, I would think. Yeah. But what a match that is. Um The most interesting thing on these shows to me is Owen Hart working with Mike Shaw. And I'm curious since they're house shows. Did they try to... Granted, Mike Shaw had gained some weight, but did they try to do an Owen Hart and Singh-style match, or did they just do a Bash and Booger bullshit match? Oh, I'm pretty sure they tried to do something. I don't know how they they succeeded. Yes, because Mike Shaw is not the same wrestler he was even two years earlier. No, not at all. All right, after Luger beat Borg using the form in the first meetings, they bring them back with Luger wearing the protective pad. And still winning. So there's that. All right. Now let's go to the clips. Interesting note about the second Jeff Jarrett video done in front of the offices of Buddy Lee Attractions. Buddy Lee out of Nashville is a leading booker of not only country music, but many other touring attractions. He was also a pro wrestler in the 50s and 60s and married former female wrestler Rita Cortez before making it big in the live entertainment business. All right. Well, let's go to old Double J here. This is uh, his second vignette there on TV. Ain't he great? He is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Double J here again. That's J E double F J A double R E double T. Told you folks you're going to be hearing a lot from me next couple of weeks. You know, I was telling you about the corrupt politics in the country music business, about the wrongdoings in the country music industry. Well, I'm here today at the King Daddy, the Emperor, the Godfather of them all. Buddy Lee Attractions. That's right. Buddy Lee is the premier, the number one talent agency in the world today. But it looks like old Buddy won't give Double J a break. Won't give a local boy, a Music City native, a break. I guess you gotta be from California or New York City or Oklahoma or or Texas, Austin, Texas, Willie Nelson. You know him. What is he, about 95 years old? Oh, my Lord, the greasiest hair you ever seen, decrepit. You know, old Buddy Lee, he made old Willie a lot of money. Oh, makes me sick to my stomach. He's a red-headed stranger. He's a stranger, all right, a stranger to music. Can't carry a tune in a bucket. Can't sing a lick, unlike myself. The greatest voice in this town today, the greatest singer in the world today, not only the greatest singer, but the greatest wrestler. And I'm going to prove it to you, Undertaker. I'm going to prove it to you, Mr. Perfect. And you Steiner boys, yeah, I like things in double. I'm going to prove it to you at the same time that I am the greatest wrestler in the world today. And when I'm done, and when I'm finished using the WWF, I'm going to come back here to Music Row. I'm going to come back here to Buddy Lee Attractions. 
and Buddy Lee himself is going to walk out that door. This door right here. No, he's not going to walk. He's going to crawl on his hands and knees, and he's going to beg, and he's going to plead, and he's going to say, please, Double J, please sign the dotted line, because he wants to tell the world. He wants to tell Nashville. He wants to tell all the country music business that he signed. <laughs> Double J. at J-E-double-F. J-A-double-R-E-double-T. Double J. Jeff Jarrett. How fucking great is Jeff Jarrett in, yeah. in this gimmick, being that he's never really been a heel before, and this is totally against everything he's already done in his career? It's amazing. It's, it is wonderful. And one thing I've learned from his podcast is that he kind of messes up when he talks sometimes, I've realized, and he doesn't care. He just keeps going. And that is that's star making potential right there. Is when you have the ability to do that. Yeah. And something I noticed here too is he's like and maybe he even shouldn't be, but he's kinda layering it like when he is saying the line about, you know, oh, Buddy Lee won't even give a local boy a shot, he doesn't sound entirely like a heel. He sounds like he but it works because he seems genuinely disappointed. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it works. Absolutely. I mean, another thing, too, is these vignettes are a lost art in wrestling. They, they, did su- they did such a great job in these vignettes for everybody they would bring in in this era. That, 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 you know, they did the, the, the weeks of vignettes, and with the time that they actually started wrestling on TV... Everybody basically knew who they were, and they knew what their motivations were, basically. Their character was already defined. Don't have that anymore. Nope. And you know what's also funny about that? Say what you will about what else he takes credit for. Bruce Pritchard is probably the person who deserves the most credit for those vignettes more than anyone else. He was the producer. He is on site for pretty much all of those during his initial runs with the company. Yeah. No one better. No one better. I mean, with with that stuff, it was all about details and just little wacky ideas that, you know, people are afraid to run with. And and he did it. And I mean, look at look at I mean, Razor, all that stuff that I mean, they when they debuted, they were already a star. And that is that is just not happening now. I mean, I don't even remember who, who was the last person to do that. To have any vignettes in WWE? Mm-hmm. Like weeks of vignettes? Mm. Nothing like these. Like, they'll do things like the Eva Marie videos or whatever, but not not the specific on-location character-establishing vignettes. I can't... I mean, Carlito? Carlito was... I was about to say Carlito, yeah. Kofi? Kofi had him. I don't remember them for Kofi at all. Yep, Kofi had him. He didn't do a lot, uh, I don't think. No. Um, I mean, they, they, they would do vignettes, but nothing nothing like this. Nothing. It really, so. they went in the direction of those like short, non-verbal videos. You know, the original Gail Kim run, stuff like that. They shift in that direction. So-and-so is coming, you know? Yes. So they're, they're, they're like these short, like, uh, spoken, sp- the, 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 the talent talks. And you get like the, this flashy like video package or whatever, and yeah, I mean it, it's only lasts like a, a you know thirty seconds or so. 
I'm still waiting for Brockus to show up. They've been saying he's coming. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. The only, like, X is coming one that I think really ever worked, and that's even before they got rid of the vignettes, was Edge. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. For the specific yeah. character they were trying to do, it really worked. But they've gotten away from it, and I don't know why. I mean, AEW should be doing it more, too. They don't have time. No. They got. I mean, they got. They, they don't have the time to, to fit that massive roster they got on the TV. Much less have time to do vignettes. Yeah, Leo I mean, Rush gets do, one, they, and that's it. I mean, they they could do it on their internet shows, I guess, but they don't even do that there. But anyway, when was the last time Rick Baker did her interview segment? Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, another clip we have here: Adam Bombs in a squash match. And uh, he's putting away his opponent here when uh, Giant Gonzalez shows up. Let's go to the clip. And that uh, big clothesline right off the top turnbuckle should be enough here. Hey, it's challenge. Oh, oh, you know what's next? You have any idea what's next? Yes, I have an idea what's next. It's over. It's like next is coming up soon. Well, next is here. Is well, your what are you confuse me now. Next is the King's Court, right? In just a few moments, yeah. Let's go to it now. We're not going right now. We have other business to transact. Thank you. But the people want to hear from the king, Jerry Lawler. Well, the people in Memphis might want to, but they're they're starved for entertainment themselves. Okay, roll it. Hang around the FedEx to deliver the distribution place down there. Wait a minute. What's this guy doing? It's over. Power bomb. Wait a minute. There's no reason for this. This kid oh. can't even defend himself. That's it. Now, he ought to be disqualified. They ought to Reverse the decision. Oh, great. Look. Look oh, at, oh, no. Look at some of the rain. I don't believe it. What is going to happen now? He's going to take over there. There he is, the eight-foot-tall John Gonzalez. Well, the uh, scuttlebutt and the Debbie. What's he doing? You think he's in a parade waving everybody? No, there's some serious heat between him and Harvey. Well, I think Gonzalez finally got an account and had somebody uh, do an audit of his funds. And look at Harvey and Adam does not want to have any part of the giant Gonzalez. Well, maybe Harvey Whitman has dropped giant Gonzalez like a bad habit. I gotta get to the bottom of this. This is a scoop I've got to get my hands on. What's going on here? I'll find out. Between this uh, group, I wonder if Polo has anything to do with this. Oh, I imagine he's involved on giant. Hand me that phone. Here you go. I can't believe they're cheering for Gonzalez. Hello. Hey, fans are into babyface Giant Gonzalez's street clothes here. Yeah, he, he was wearing a leather jacket. He looked like Giant Fonzie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is like the last time he appears on TV. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's something that, that they had a plan and it ended. So, yeah. It was interesting to see him in the babyface role. You know how they would have done done that. Yeah, if I remember right, he was homesick and really not up for the road, and even trying to have wrestling matches anymore. He'd been going there for three years, you know. So, and he was getting older, but he wasn't a young man when he started. So, yeah, I could see that. And that's it. Could have it could have been cool. I mean, even for a few months, just doing something, because like. 
you know, for some heel, you know, a, a win over him would kind of would kind of do a lot for their career, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Um. So that's all for our clips. USA Network has renewed their contract up through 1995. So there's that. 1995. 1995. Yeah. Mania drew a 1.3 on October 23rd. All American drew a 1.8 on the 24th. WCW that same weekend drew a 1.6 and 1.2 for main event power respectively. And a Raw did like a 2.8. Which I didn't put in the notes, but yeah. So there's your ratings for the week. You Bam. mean so ratings? <clears throat> yes. All right. The way that the 900 number thing to vote on whether Shawn Michaels could return when it had no be- bearing on decision whatsoever was done as a total fraud. They realize what pro wrestling is, and he's not sure what the law is. But there's something really sleazy about the way this was handled. How do you know, Dave? <laughs> you don't know. What, what I mean, if, what well, if they got negative well, reaction no, no, no. if it's like he's gone? Well, here's the thing, though. <laughs> here's how you know 100% sure, for sure. Michaels appeared on that same radio WWF as Savage to start setting up his return. <laughs> well, my hang, thing. Ha, hang on, hang on. That that Randy Savage thing was a shoot. Maybe the Shawn Michaels thing was a shoot. Oh, Maybe. Shut up, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm just saying he's better than Brett. <laughs> The thing is, is that we've seen this in wrestling before, these scams to get people to call 900 line, you know, and all the promotions. Yes, this is one of the last outright scammy ones, though. I mean, good Lord, Memphis had one of the worst ones ever, you know, about the special referee for Lawler and Kurt Henning. Yes, because there are a lot of uh, phone calls coming in late from uh, Minneapolis area codes. (laughs) Yeah. What was the... Like, they had a voting for, like, a match, like Raw did or something, and they accidentally gave the wrong match, and they were, like, apologizing because they didn't want to get sued. What was that? Oh, God. There was, Uh I forget if it was the match or the stipulation. I remember there's one where the vote, they had to switch it after announcing the winning choice. That was on, like, a Raw roulette or, well, no, not Yeah, yeah. What did they, was that tab? Tuesday? It was, was something that, like that, and then they did. The they, no, 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 no. I think it was um, no, it was when they started doing interactive RAW or whatever they call it. Yeah, Remember yeah, how and then they months, ran it back. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they like, ran it all back the next months. week or something. Yes, that's what yeah. it was. They did the same. Thing. They did the right gimmick. Yeah, the following week. They, yeah. Yes. Some, someone must have told them like you're uh, you're under federal investigation. <laughs> like Vince is about to be indicted. Why are you doing this? Why do I retain stuff like that? Like, do you ever think, like, the things you forget and then the stuff you retain? It blows my mind. You mean especially since it's, like, late aughts raw? I don't know. Yeah, it makes no sense. It had nothing to do with my life at all. (laughs) Yeah. All right, uh, and the closing. In the Advertising Survivor Series, they're using the slogan, Don't Settle for Cheap Imitations. Obviously referring to the WCW Battle Ball pay-per-view show four days earlier. How is that specific? What are they imitating? Or does he do, does he just mean because it's within a week of their pay-per-view, which does not normally happen? Yeah, think about that. We had two major wrestling pay-per-views in four days in this era because Battle Ball was uh, – wasn't that the midweek show? 
Well, Survivor no, it's because Survivor Series is a midweek show still at this time. That's right. This I is thought, the was... next to last Thanksgiving Eve show, I believe. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, so Battle Bowl was the Sunday, and Survivor Series on a Wednesday. Yes. That's what, the, that's what they're doing, you know? And also, yeah, Battle Bowl is, I believe... Well, no, it's Battle Bowl and Super Brawl 4 are until the very end, I believe, the only WCW pay-per-view is not released on home video. But it's yeah. also it's also bullshit kind of guys that like they were in Pensacola and they did not have Jerry Stubbs at all in Battle Bowl. He should have not only been in it, but he should have won because, you know, he just fits in and WCW should have taken him then. But they made their mistake. That's fine. I mean, WCW in that era did always want to sign Mr. Perfect. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. He's the original Mr. Perfect. Indeed. So, there you go. All right, Mikey had to step away for a little bit, but he will be back later on the show as me and Bix will go international now and begin with Japan, the land of the rising sun, and all Japan pro wrestling. Where their latest tour ended on October 23rd, another sell to 16,300 at the Budokan in Tokyo. Where Mitsuhara Masawa retained the Triple Crown, beating Stan Hansen in 22-10 with a small package. They didn't have a first-hand report on the show. However, from what, he heard, what we've heard, Masawa legit broke his breastbone during the match, and fans knew he had nothing left. Dave gets the finish must not have been must not look convincing since it was heavily booed. The semifinal that determined the number one contender for the Triple Crown saw Tusha Kawada beat Kenda Kabashi in 29-37, and what was said to have been the best singles match the two have had thus far. No word if Masawa's injury will cause him to miss the tag tournament. But if he does this tournament, it'll severely damage the tour and tournament since he's the most popular wrestler in the promotion. It'll also pretty much guarantee before the thing even starts what the finals will be since it'll leave just two teams, Hanson and Ted DiBiase, and Toshio Kawada and Akiratawa with any chance of winning the thing. All right, full results. Mitsuo Moto Mighty Inoue over Masao, Inoue and Yoshinari Agawa. Can-Ams, Crawford and Furnace over Shoshikuchi and Satoru Sako. Dory Funk and Taboon Honda, or as Dave calls him, Taboon Honda, over Joel Deaton and Kendall Wyndham. Giant Baba, Jumbo Shiruta, and Russia Kimura over Haruka Egan, Rumi Zamita, and Masafuchi. Dr. Def Williams and Big Booba over uh, Danny Spivey and Johnny Ace. The Eagle and the Patriot, the Eagle, of course, being uh, Georgie Hines, Jackie Fulton, over Akira Tawe and Takao Mori. Ted DiBiase over Ju Nakayama. Toshio Kawada over Kenakabashi and Masawa regaining the triple retaining, excuse me, the triple crown over Stan Hansen. Yeah, I mean, you, I, it was obvious if you watch this match that that finish I think was not the intended finish. Would you go along with that? I'm not sure when I last saw this match. I know I watched a lot of the '93 TV at some point, but. I mean, Masao was going to win? Absolutely. But I don't think Masao was going to win with a small package in 20... You know, because that's not an all-Japan triple crown finish. Now, that is a finish I could see Masawa booking, but it's not a finish you would expect on a Baba-booked card in this era. No. Well, it's not a triple crown finish. Oh, absolutely not. No. So, I, I, I'm sure... This, there's truth to this. I forget. Does he work the tag league? Um, I think, I think he did. I don't remember, you know, 
direct, but I think he did. I'm going to look. Um, I think, uh, yeah, he did. Okay. He sure did. Yep. Um, him and Kabashi. Yep. And they won it, too. Yeah, they won it, too. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, you look at this. Look at this time in all Japan, and uh, yeah, this is some of the best stuff, man. That Kawada Kabashi match was their best match to that point in time. Uh, Ted DiBiase Junakayama, I, I, I thought it was a really fun match and an interesting match to watch, considering you know DiBiase is about to be done and Nakayama's on the rise. Um, Doctor Death and Big Bubba against uh, Spivey and Ace, I thought was a fun match. I mean, this is a, and of course, Baba Jumbo and Rusher as a team. Yeah, awesome. So, yeah, this is a really fun show. And for anyone who's listening, and I know we say this every time we get up to one of these tours, but we gotta say it. If you have never seen Boss Man in all Japan, you need to Booba. change that. Yes. Big he, Booba. I mean, he looks like pro- he looks like he's at worst one of the 20 best wrestlers in the whole business when he's on these tours in 93. Anyway, and the thing is, is yeah, he's big booba, but he's wearing the boss man gear. Well, and also his entrance music is a cover of Hard Times sung by a Japanese man out of tune. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, good stuff, man, good stuff. And all, all Japan stuff's out there, so let's check it out on YouTube. Yes, that's one Our- of the things that there does not seem to be much copyright crackdown on. Yeah, yeah. We're lucky in that regard. Yes. Uh, Masawa Kawada Triple Crown match probably won't be taking place until late January when Masawa having beat Kawada in the last three singles meetings. The idea that it's Kawada's turn and that spells title change will make the match an easy sellout. Boy, does reading this here make you realize that Bob waited way too long. Yeah, because he does not, Masawa does not lose Triple Crown until July of 94. <laughs> so yeah after which he's beaten Kawada another one or two and, times and, and he loses to Dr. Death yes <laughs> not, not Kawada um so yeah I mean it's it, it went way too long it was one of those things where I mean Jesus Christ when, when, when is the trigger ever going to be pulled you know it's that was the, one of the most frustrating parts of it, you know. You because mean that for the Triple Crown, it took five and a half years from their first meeting? Yeah, and Kawada doesn't get his defense, his, his, uh, def- uh, his challenge until 6394. Oh, Masawa, this is that one, yeah. Masawa does not defend the title for eight, almost eight months. There are no defenses in between at all? None. Zero. Not a. What, what were they headlining Glutacons with? Um, it was a triple crown match. Just I can tell you that. <laughs> um, well, the boot. I mean, December of course is tag league. You know, they sure. don't have a Budokan. They don't have a Budokan show on the uh, January tour. Um, March fifth was Masawa Kabashi against Bob Hansen for the unified tag titles. Yeah. Uh, champion Carnival, of course, was the, the Carnival uh, Finals. Yeah, Kawada and Doc. 
And then, yeah, then, uh, then Masao Kawada. Huh. So Kawada won this match, then won the tr- carnival, and that's when he gets a shot. He does all that shit to finally get a shot. And then loses. And it's an amazing match, but do you think they didn't pull the pig trigger there because of whatever injuries or whatever were keeping them from having Masao defend the title? That if you're wait- that with so long between the matches... It's too much of a foregone conclusion, or it's the thing to me is Kawada beats Doc in the Carnival Finals, and then Doc's the one to beat Masawa to win the Triple Crown. I think once once they gave him the first pinfall in the June '95 tag, it, they shouldn't have waited. They Baba should not have waited another three years to put this to give him the title win over Masawa, or or you know another two years until his first singles win, which he which is also one of the worst things, Baba ever booked and maybe probably the worst after he went all to all clean finishes right I, I think you'd agree with that the yeah. carnival 97 finals which you explain that for everyone just how ridiculous it was well i don't remember all the details so okay, you... the short version is it was a i think it was a three-way tie finals i think it's masawa kawada and kabashi i think it's masawa kabashi goes first the, the, Kabashi's eliminated. I forget if he loses or it's a draw or whatever. And then Mas- and then Kawada beats Masawa in like seven minutes because he's tired and injured from the other match to win the carnival and get his first singles win over Masawa. And then the thing here is that Doc, he beats Masawa. He gets he has a defense on Kabashi. Then Kawada beats. Hmm. And then Kawada loses it to Hanson. So, yeah, I mean, it's just... Masala Kawada is so much political bullshit that went on in, in this era between those two that that's a little, another reason why this is happening like it's happening. So Okay, so I'm curious. I pulled up you know their feud and singles matches only on wrestling data in the encounter section. So yeah, the first one is October ninety two, that's their first carnival match. Then July ninety three then, yeah, if we're only doing title ones, then June 94, uh, July 95, uh, yeah, June 97, that's right, Kawada got a title shot at the next Budokan and then still lost. Yeah. And then finally at the Dome, May 1st, 98, Kawada gets the big win, and you know what? Maybe if nothing else, that, it's, arguably the least of their matches because Masawa's knee is so messed up. That's still one of the best moments in the history of all Japan. That finish and that crowd reaction for Kawada winning the title. Yeah. So, took way Uh, too long, but at least they got there in the end, even if Kawada didn't get to have any successful title defenses off of that one. But that's a whole other story. All right, Fritz von was a guest on the show. And also include the return of Jumbo. Yeah, this was Jumbo's return. That's a whole other thing. The Jumbo worked about three minutes tops in his comedy match with Bob and Rusher. Uh, it, it, except for one knee to the chin, Jumbo did nothing but punch and kick. And their reports were that he looked to be nowhere near ready to return to the spotlight. Well, I mean, we're now. I mean, this is basically Jumbo's lot in life. Pretty much the rest of his career now is working in this type of match. But uh, he was. He would look a little better in time. Like I remember, well, he would get better, but he wasn't, you know, Jumbo. No, but he he got to the point where he could work a few minutes with one of the younger guys and look like Jumbo. 
Yeah. You know, like the one I think of is on the undercard of the first Kabashi Kawada draw. There's a trios match where they're the two stars on opposite sides and while he's in there with Masawa, at least Jumbo still looks really good. But he just didn't have the stamina or whatever from the hepatitis. Yeah. How about Fritz being on this show? Man. He's I guess a legend it, I mean, in that company. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, and it's it's, it's it's probably good for him to get to you know to go to that show because God knows ninety three was a tough year for him. So yeah, there is that. And also ninety three, Baba was doing the like the guest and judge thing quite a bit because Dick, yeah, Dynamite, Dick Fire, yeah. I'm sure there are more I'm forgetting. Yeah. Uh. Tomon Honda, who debuted earlier this month, is already starting to get something of a push. Honda represented Japan as a super heavyweight in 84, 88, and 92 in the Olympics. And Greco-Roman teamed with Dory Funk on several shows. He got to score pins on guys like Masao Inoue and Kendall Wendell. It took him over a decade, but eventually he got really good. Yeah, it took Honda a while, but uh, he became a solid player to really do something. So, Yeah. Yeah. The Heavenly Bodies will be coming in during our 19, early 1994 tour. And they did! And they were supposed to be regulars, but then they signed. So there's the that. Alright, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Word seems to be getting around about the week house shows this tour as only two of the six house shows this week have sold out. Well, let's look at... This is a super great tag league tour, too. Let's look at the, the results we have here for a couple of shows. No TV taping during our week, so I just picked a couple of shows. October 25th in Fukuoka, the General Exhibition Hall for 2600. Tetsuya Takeiwa over Tokumichi Isizawa. Shatoshi Kojima over Shinjiro Otani. Sean Royal over Manabu Nakanishi. <laughs> Which, okay. Well, well, who was Sean Royal's trainer? Here, Matsuda. There you go. Kengo Kamura, Michiyoshi Ohara, and Shoko Shinaka over Akira Nagami, El Samurai, and Takuki Azuka. Kunya Kobayashi Masashi Oyagi over Hiro Saito Norihonaga. The Hellraisers, Alt Warrior and Power Warrior over Black Cat and Shin Hashimoto. Super Great Tag League, Osama Kido and Tetsumi Fujinami over Jushin Thunder Liger and Wild Pegasus. And your main event, Hiroshi Hase, Keiji Mudo, and Masahiro Chono over The Barbarian, Hercules Hernandez, and Scott Norton. Then we go to Nagasaki on the 26th. Where we have the International Gym from a 2150. Satoshi Kojima over Takeiwa. Sean Royal over Yuji Nagata. <laughs> wow. Kunakobayashi Masashi Oyagi over Manabu Nakanishi and Shinjiro Otani. Liger and Wild Pegasus over Black Cat and Takamichi Sasawa. Super Great Tag League Tournament Match Hellraisers over Kira Nagami and Takeyuki Yuzuka. JJ Jax. Shinya Shimoto over The Barbarian. Kengo Kamura, Kunio Kobayashi, and Shiroko Shinaka over Masuyo Chono, Osama Kino, and Tetsumi Fujinami. And then Super Great Tag League matchup. Jurassic Power, Hercules Hernandez, and Scott Norton over Hiroshi Hase and Keiji Muto. If there's a Phallus tape or anything with Hashimoto versus Barbarian, I definitely want to see that. Well, let me see what aired from this tour on the stuff that I... Because I don't have... I haven't watched all of them because some of that stuff was all, all kind of mixed. So let me see if there was anything uh, from this. Because this is yeah, around I'm, the beginning of the Valis tape series, right? Or was oh, that 92? It's, well, it's, 
it's after. Okay. Yeah, the the Valis stuff I have I have September '93, and then the next one I have is February '94. Okay. But there's still there's still a lot of that of stuff I haven't gone through, so there could be some. So. Okay. One oh. of the things that jumps out for me here, though, is um, the Benoit Liger team, and what it really like seeing them there, and how I liked how they fit into this tournament, but it really makes you think about just. How much more, especially these days when they have... Oh, lives. wait a minute. What? Hold on. I I do have some stuff on the tour. All right, so I have 101593, mm-hmm. which has Liger and Pegasus against Chono and Hashimoto. I got 101993, which are Jurassic Powers against Liger and Pegasus. I got Hasea Mudo against the Hellraisers. Then I got November the 1st, Hasea Muda over, uh, 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 over Liger and Pegasus. Hmm. So I do have those. Okay. What I was going to say, though, is but, like, but yeah. I like the variety of having the juniors team. Or, you know, outsiders in the G1 like they had for a few years and stopped doing. It just adds a different element that makes it more exciting. And like I was going to say, like... Especially these days when New Japan has so much less turnover in terms of foreigners. Yeah. Well, New Japan was always better than all Japan when it comes to mixing the juniors into regular heavies. Absolutely. That was, that's just an, that was all time. So. They were, but now they've stopped doing it again. Yeah. When the G1 especially could have used someone like Hiromu Takahashi or whoever. Yeah. All right, FMW, Fukushima City Gym on October 21st, 4,095 fans. Dark Ranger over Tetsuya Kuroda. Yuki Nabano over Bad Nurse Nakamura. Masato Tanaka over Mr. Chin. Big Titan, Rick Bonner over Katsutoshi Niyama. Masaru Toei and Hideki Asaka over Onita Jr. and Shodan Senshi Battle Ranger Z. No one contender for the FNW Women's Title Tournament. Shark Shishuya over Kershomeo Damari. Megumi Kudo and Miwasato over Combat Toyota and Supari Mac. Tarzan Goto over Ricky Fuji. In their main event, a street fight. Mr. Pogo, Mr. Danger, Mr. Matsunaga, and the Gladiator, Mike Awesome, over Sushi Onida, Sabo Sako, and Mr. Ganasuke. I do think it's kind of a misnomer how to FMW. I feel like. A lot of people don't realize that the street fights were the bulk of the main events. The deathmatch stuff was very rare. Yeah. And 4,000 fans on a show that was a televised. I mean, with, no, with a group that's not got no television. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I, I still have not watched that Dark Side of the Rain. Does that even come up at all, how great they were drawing and the fact they had no TV? Not really. Because, I mean, we put, that, we, we put it on here all the time. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, very good episode. All right, definitely worth checking. Yeah, out. So I, I got to get. I, I, I think. Uh, I mean, with NFL getting going again, and other stuff going on there. I, I you know, I, I try to watch it live, but I guess I need to try to watch some of the other stuff too on delay. But anyway, XPW this week. So, well, as an aired as you listen to this now. So, so yes, right, this coming block. week now that this is it's come out is the steroid trial season finale. Oh, there you go. All right, um, Michinoku Pro Wrestling, uh, Tawada City Gym on October 21st for the 276 fans. Leopardo Negro over Masato Yakutsuji. Wilton Wilkins Jr. over Nahir Shikawa. A scramble survival match. 
Jensei Shizaki, Superboy, Taraka, and Akihiro Nakawa over Shiru, Takamichinoku, Jiraiya, and Sato, Daytoga. UWS Super Welterweight title, Super Delphin retained over El Oriental. And Independent World Junior Way title qualifying tournament finals, Great Sasuke over Grand Naniwa. You made a bet. 16-year-old Grand Naniwa. Yeah, so we're in the early days of Michinoku Pro here. So Yeah, yeah. about six months in, if I remember right. Yeah. And uh, they haven't quite found themselves yet. No, but they're, I mean, they're building. Yeah. And uh, for those who don't know, Leopardo Negro is uh, Hanzo Nakajima. Mm-hmm. Pro Wrestling Crusaders. They ran a show at the Hiwajama Park Baseball Stadium in Tokyo on October 22nd in front of 1,050 fans. We have Kishin Kawabata over the Viper. Not Randy Orton or Mike Davis. Or uh, what? Or what's her face? Um, or uh, Piper Nevin. Yeah. Yukimasa Watanabe. She, well, she was born by this time, I guess. Yukimasa Watanabe over Hodif Min. Kazoo over Kishikawabata. Yukimasa Watanabe over Kazoo. Shinichi Nakano over Yukimasa Watanabe. Wild Wakamatsu over George Takano. And Uchu Power X over Shinji Takano. Sure. <laughs> Very PWC show here, folks. Yes, and uh, Piper Niven is almost two and a half years old at this time. Yeah, so not definitely not her. No. Um, that is a very pro wrestling crusader show. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I like all the different... Uh, are those all Ishimitsu Wakamatsu? <laughs> uh, who knows? <laughs> all right, Wing! Shiojiri City Gym on October 23rd and from 1523. We have Hideo Takayama, Hito over Ryo Miyaki. Zuyama over Miss Janif. The Cuban Assassin, Dave Sierra over Fukumentaro. Ricky Santana over Nobutaka Araya. Los Cowboys, El Tejano and Silver King over Masayoshi Motegi and The Winger. Freddy Krueger and Gato over Leatherface and Yukihiro Kanemura. And WWC Caribbean heavyweight title match, Jado, the champion, retained over Shoji Nakamaki, one Lama Namanumi from uh, ICP Strangle Mania. What a show. That's one of the more interesting wing shows I think we've read on here. Yeah. I definitely did not know that Dave Sierra versus his Hentaro had ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> um. Because yeah, Fukumentaro equals FM Taro equals Entaro. Um, how about Doug Gilbert and Ghetto versus Corporal Kirshner and Wing Kanemura? <laughs> yes, yes, fantastic match. It's a good old Wing. All right, Rings. Akira Maeda's return to the ring after being out nine months after reconstructing knee surgery. Uh, Seventy-five twenty-six. To the Fukuoka International Center on October 23rd, as he made Sotir Gotchev submit his 616 to a half crab. A newcomer named Duev seems to be groom, being groomed for an eventual main event, main event against Maeda, as he made Andre Kopolov, who's one of the top guys in the group, submit in the semifinal. 75 26 is set here. Willie Peters over Yoshiisa Yamamoto. Bitsaze Tariel over Peter Yura. Herman Renting over Hans Nyman. Volk Khan over Masuki Naruse. Dirt Leon Verge over Willie Williams. Duev over Andre Kopolov. 
And Kiramaeda over Sotir Gotchev. The Eastern Europeans are uh, all over this one. Yeah. It, well, well, not all Eastern. I, I don't think uh, the Dutch guys are Eastern European. But basically every, yeah, every match on this card has at least one foreign wrestler. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, let me ask you this. I don't know if I'm going to phrase this the right way. At least with today's eyes for in-ring and for giving something different from regular professional wrestling. Rings was the best of the shoot style groups, right? Uh... <laughs> um... I think if nothing else, they differentiated themselves in the ring the most. Yes, I will, I will grant you that. Ring, I mean... <sighs> Oh me! Um, like and, and real quick, and real quick, Duev is Nikolai Zuev. Okay, I was wondering about that. Um, and I don't even Rick, consider battle arts entirely shoot style too. So there's that. I'm always going to prefer UWFI because it's more flashy. Uh, PWFG. Uh, I mean, I love for other reasons. Rings was more of a serious version of those. And rings have Volcan. Yes. It's one of the all-time big parts. Yes. So, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, I guess they were more serious. So they they were like the, the true shoot style, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'll never forget when I watched the, you know, the April 95 Weekly Pro 13 Promotion Dome show back. And I wrote an article about it for Fighting Spirit. And how... They put all the shoot-style matches together one after the other on that show, and that turned out to be a very bad idea, because when you do that, the flashier, more pro-wrestling-y ones look even more pro-wrestling-y. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you watch that, and it's like, oh, the UWF isn't that far from New Japan style, which is understandable, but still, like, you watch that, and it's like, oh... So, I don't know. I found I found that interesting when I watched that. But like, it's really glaring in that context. But anyway, love rings. Oh yeah. All right, all Japan women. They ran Miyazaki Japan somewhere on October twenty second for fifteen sixty nine. We have Mima Shimoda over Numachi, Takako Inoue over Tomoko Watanabe, Suzuka Manami and Toshio Yamada over LCO, Eskomita and Akira Hokuto. Uh, Asha Kong over Kyoko Inoue, and Manami Toyota and Sakashigawa over Utops, Karito and Yumiko Hota. So, yeah, they're still, this is their, this is, I mean, 93 is golden age, all, all Japan women at this point in time, absolutely. So, mm -hmm. great talent on those shows. All right, uh, LLPW, they're at Cork and Hall on the 25th, 2,000 fans. That's Rumi Kazama beat Mitsuki, Mitsuki Endo, Norio Tateno over Michiko Nagasaki, Eagle Sawai and Mikiko Futagami over Carol Midori and Ataro Hosumi, Bull Nakano over Yashikura and I, and Holly Saido Miki Honda over Shinobu Kandori, and uh, Endo. Mitsuki Endo, yeah. So there you go. So, LOPW. Okay. Bulls on the show. Bulls on the show. So. That's what I was going to say, that it's always interesting in this era when you see the shows from the smaller promotions that have the All Japan Women wrestlers on them 
since it's usually the wrestlers from the smaller promotions on All Japan women's shows. Yeah. Yeah. But there you go. All right. Uh, and this international, so let's go to Germany. Auto Vance CWA Hanover on October 24th. We got August Smeissel over Colonel Brody. Rambo, Luke Poirier over Klaus Karloff by disqualification. CWA Junior Heavyweight title, Lance Storm over Hiroshi Yamamoto. Yes, Tenzon as a junior. Franz Schumann over Rip Morgan by disqualification. Larry Cameron and Mad Bull Buster retain the CWA tag titles, beating Emilio Zerno and, oh, excuse me, they won the titles, beating Emilio Zerno and David Taylor. Holy and shit. CWA, CWA Commonwealth, Commonwealth title, Tony St. Clair over Fit Finley. Okay. So That's a think- show. Yeah, so, okay, a few things here. Um, first off, is this the tour where Larry Cameron dies? No, that's when? December. Okay, I couldn't remember. Because I knew it was soon. I didn't think he made it to 94. No. Um, that is an interesting tag match, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, always, I know I was getting this right lately. Oh, now I'm forgetting. Mad Bull Buster is... Gary Durant. Oh, no. Damn it. Pretty sure it is. Uh, no, it is Durante. You're right. See, the way I always try to remember is that Durante was considered the worker of the team. Durante was Mad Bull Buster and Mad Bull Rex. So, yeah. Weren't they also the Mad Bull Busters somewhere? They had so many different names. It's hard. I mean, it's easy to get them confused. Yes. Pitbull Dogs, Pitbulls, American Bulldogs. I know yeah. I'm forgetting a bunch. It's easy to get confused, absolutely. All right, well, on that note, uh, let's go to... Well, yeah, let's go to halftime. Try to remember where halftime is. So after some uh, great 1993 commercials, we'll have to halftime and come back and we'll go to other North America where we have uh, some stuff about Canadian elections. We got some interesting Western Canadian results. And all kind of news from Mexico, including uh, Elvis. Elvis has entered the building. And uh, all kinds of other stuff. So we'll be back after the break. WWF Royal Rumble from Acclaim. Now on Genesis. More wrestling superstars. More specialty moves than ever. 16 Snake Mayhem. Six men in the ring action. WWF Royal Rumble on Super NES. And now on Genesis. Get ready to rumble. Do you want to jam? Get new Nestle Crunch Jammin' Bars. Rip into rock, unwrap the wrap, jazz, and reggae. Collect all 12 Nestle Crunch Jammin' designs. You want to jam? Get new Nestle Crunch Jammin' Bars. Elevator to the rooftop service center for a tune-up. Check out the new cars in the showroom. Then raise the gate and go. Matchbox Motors. Matchbox Motors and cars sold separately. Some assembly required. It's your magic copier. And now it does more. It holds lots of paper for copies galore. Draw a cool picture and press just like that. You can copy your dog. Thinner cat. Super and travel magic copier. Each sold separately. Batteries not included. Just about everything I had, I had lost. Losing your job could be just the start of your worst nightmare. I lost everything I had worked hard for. I lost it all. If you have an alcohol or drug problem, National Recovery Institute can help. Creating individual programs to meet specific needs. We can quickly get you back to living a positive, productive life. 
Call now. Most private and Medicaid insurance accepted. Some people are content to be entertained by simple one-color electronics. Somehow these people have just never heard of Game Gear, the multicolor portable from Sega with tons of new titles. <laughs> Education got you down? Well, snap into it. Hip it to a Slim Jim. Turn to the spice, that busy, juicy taste. What is the meaning of this? Feel a little excitement? Snap it to a Slim Jim. Some people are content to be entertained by simple one-color electronics. Somehow these people have just never heard of Game Gear, the multicolor portable from Sega with tons of new titles. Hi, I'm Jim Palmer for The Money Store. Does it seem like the weekend is the only time to take care of personal business? The problem is, is that when you're off, just about everyone else is too, but not at The Money Store. If you're thinking about refinancing your home, you can call The Money Store this weekend and apply by phone. There's no application fee, and the chances are you'll have an approval by Tuesday. So if you want to refinance your home, call the money store this weekend at 1-800-LOAN-YES. That's 1-800-LOAN-YES. What is radial keratotomy, or RK? The cornea of the nearsighted person has too much curvature. This excessive curvature prevents a properly focused image. The result is blurry vision. RK, through a series of microscopic incisions, reduces the curvature of the cornea, enabling it to create a clearer image. So if you're tired of the hassles of glasses and contacts, RK may be able to help you. For more information on RK and to reach the nearest member, call Metropolitan Eye Associates at 1-800-200-EYES. Tonight at 7, 6 Central. Woo! For outrageous comedy, turn on Townsend Television with special musical guest Taylor Dane. Check it out! Then Martin's getting all his friends in shape. This is me and you, brother. <laughs> Even if it kills them. He is out of control! Twin! On an all-new Martin. And is Sinclair's new job for the birds? I'm working at the Turkey Burger Hut. Hey, has anyone asked you why you crossed the road today? <laughs> Living single. Tonight, beginning at 7 on Fox 5. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed those great 1993 commercials. That's been to the halftime seven of the show. Well, we'll start talking about Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And yes, we haven't recorded it as we record this yet, but we will be soon as we are going to do part two of the 20th anniversary of the NWO. And that will be our next show that will be coming out in just a few days from now. And uh, we'll be talking about the months of August through the end of October into November of 1996, ending when Eric Bischoff uh, joins up with the NWO and then uh, all the mass exodus of WCW guys joins the NWO to make one big uh, clusterfuck. So that's where we're going to stop it at right there. But Yeah, it's, uh, what is it, Bagwell? And then is it Norton joins the same night, I think? I thought they all joined the same night, basically, just about. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that's coming. Bagwell was the main one, I think, during the Bischoff promo the week after the heel turn. And then, what is it? It's like Norton, Michael Wall Street. I forget who else. It's a lot of them. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, so we did part one, and that's already up, of course, where we talked about from Memorial Day to the end of July. And you can listen to that. And everything else that we've done in our five full years of Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets, five dollars a month. Gives you access to that archive of that great audio there. Lots and lots of stuff up there. So everyone should check it out if you haven't checked it out already. Dollar a month gets you access to the Discord, and thanks in this segment, which we'll do in just a minute. $25 allows you to pick a show for the week, just like we're doing this week from Jason Nakarado. And uh, if you want to put down $25, you can pick a show. Now make sure that you pick a show that we haven't done already. And if it's one, it's one we have done already, make sure you have a backup show handy just in case so we can uh, take care of you, whether it's a show that we've done already or a show in the calendar. And we're adding more shows to the calendar as we speak. So uh, people are putting some dates in. So people just... Uh, if you want to do a show, let us know, and we'll figure it out if we can make it doable or not. And you know, we'll we'll get it. We'll get you straight, no matter what. Uh, thirty day rule in effect on that. You get the information in before thirty days. Ten year rule. Follow the Patreon website to get that information to fix, and we should be all right from there. Fifty dollars allows you to sit in for a segment of that show if you choose, and a hundred for the whole show if you choose. That's, you don't have to do it. It's part of it. At Patreon.com/slash Between the Sheets. All right, Bix, who we think this week is our new and or returning patrons? All right, we would like to thank Michael Warner. Thanks, Michael. Eric Moneypenny. Thanks, Eric Moneypenny. James Brennan. Thanks, James. William Lanham went up to 25, which we uh, already talked with him about, and is going to be uh, Survivors, the week of Survivor Series 2001 next month. Mm-hmm. Thank you, William. Yes. Ricky Schmidt. Thanks, Ricky. And Prez Ricard. Thanks, Prez Ricard. So we thank all you new patrons, returning patrons, old patrons, patrons have been there from the beginning, come along the ride. We thank all of you for supporting us on patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, IWTV, Bix, what's uh, going on there this week? All right, at independentwrestling.tv, I guess the main thing as of this recording that's gone up on demand new would be uh, the Lucha Memes show from a couple weeks back featuring Negro Navarro versus Jonathan Gresham. Yeah, Absolutely. Just saw that, uh, you know, the stuff from that, from the show live, uh, the pictures, the stuff, and uh, yeah, it looks like it was a hell of a match, which has to be expected considering who's involved. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a match that you definitely want to check out if you can. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's interesting. And it's at Arena Closel Corcalco, which is a very interesting venue to watch wrestling at. So you might want to uh, just watch it for that as well. Just, Which just, one just is watch. that? Is that the is that the really fun looking venue that? It's outdoors. Okay, I was trying to remember. Was this something else? That's, that's where all the that's where all that's where you know a lot of the, the Black Terry Junior stuff was shot in Negro Navarro. That's where right. all that stuff was. Okay, but yes, I have not watched that one yet. Also. Uh, Various archival stuff dropped, including what did I say it was UEW from California, I believe, which notable mainly because and actually whoever filled out the match list didn't seem to realize this. 
includes uh, some early Jungle Boy matches when he was Jungle Boy Nate Coy, but it just says Nate Coy, so if you're searching for Jungle Boy, you may not find it. But those are up as far as, yeah, Underground Empire Wrestling shows that have gone up from 2018. Uh, those are up as far as Archival. Of course, our friends at Action Wrestling are continuing their uh, Next Up series that they take before the main shows. New one of those went up. And then, of course, as the live schedule goes, so starting with things that have not happened yet as we're recording this, but have already happened by the time this podcast goes up, the main one would be uh, what happened this past Thursday night, where our dear friend Dominic Greeny got to have his dream match with Minoru Suzuki. Yeah, like I said, it hasn't happened as we record this yet, but uh, that should be in a, a hell of a damn match. I know Dom uh, is definitely excited for that, so uh, yeah, everyone watch that if you haven't watched it already. Yes, absolutely. Very much looking forward to that uh, which is happening again tomorrow as we record. And then uh, also there had been freelance stuff and uh, another ICW No Holds Barred uh, deathmatch show that went up. And then, uh, oh, completely forgot about this one, too. Uh, last show of the weekend before this podcast went up. The uh, is Wait, is this the return of Sup to the Basement East? Or is it the second it's... show back? No, they haven't run a show. Yeah, so this is the return of our dear friends at Southern, un, the Southern Underground Pro uh, running their first show. Well, it's not even just first show in basement. Well, wait, I forget. Did they run a show there after the they rebuilt after the hurricane? Or is this they, their they first show period they since ran, the hurricane? They ran, no, they ran a different venue. So this is the first show in basement East since not just the pandemic, but also the hurricane. Yes. Wow. So that's pretty cool then that that's finally happening. And then as we go to, geez, they have so many shows. There's a No Peace Underground show <laughs> over the weekend, too. Um, and then next week, oh, of course, I need to, Jesus, this snuck up on me. I need to make my plans because we've got the three H2O shows, including the Onita show on Halloween, which is now this, yeah, this coming weekend, now that this show is out. Yeah, so there you go. A lot going on. A lot going on. On yes. IWT, so you definitely well, want to be a part of that. Well, and uh, Beyond Uncharted Territory Season 3 as well is ongoing on every Thursday night. So, of course, if you want to check out independentwrestling.tv for $9.99 a month, you use the code BTSPOD. You won't get a discount or anything right now, but we will get a little bit of a referral fee uh, as long as you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, coupon code BTSPOD. And there's a lot of old older stuff up there too that you you know from the indie generation ago. So uh, yeah, there's a lot that's up there for you people that may not be into the newer style of wrestling. But there you go. IWA Mid South, CZW. I feel like I'm Wild Side. This one's Wild Side, of course. Uh, FWA. Yeah, it's it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm sure there's more I could think of if I started go looking through it, but you get the idea. All right, and Viper VPN real quick. Yes, tinyurl.com slash btsvpn. Viper VPN is a wonderful virtual private network service. You can use it for enhancing your privacy, especially if you're on open Wi-Fi uh, access points, but also to get around geoblocking with a slew of countries that they have servers in. They have good speeds, good privacy features. It's third-party verified that they don't log your traffic. 
etc., etc. And especially among the bigger VPNs, they have probably the best deal, which is 60 bucks for three years, less than $1.67 a month. TinyURL.com slash BTSVPN, and again, we might as well just say it. Anything you can do to support, uh, excuse me, of anything you can do to support us outside of just being a patron and continuing to do that, this is actually the one we get the most money from. We get a shockingly high percentage of what you're paying. Mm-hmm. And y- yes, there, you know, you can run into some issues, you know, with VPNs at times, but still, it's well worth it. Especially at that price. Yeah. yeah. So, And to be clear, Chris is referring to various sites trying to figure out which VPNs are popular and trying to block their servers and stuff. Yeah. Which which was bound to happen. And, is, and, it, <laughs> and obviously the VPNs, because they know it's their bread and butter, too, are going to keep up with it as much as they can. So it's a game, yeah, but it's the not, reality of the situation as well. Yes. Yeah, they ain't going to let them just do do everything on them, so yeah. Yes. All right, so uh, there's that. All right, plug time. Uh, no other podcasts on the pipeline, but uh, we do have Between the Sheets next week, where we go back to 1989, and we'll discuss uh, Halloween Havoc 1989. Yes, two short weeks of Halloween Havoc, so we have that, plus... Dave's there live, and he gets his perspective from live and from watching on tape. And we have all, uh, other stuff, too. Of course, Steve Beverly and Matt Watch has their thoughts on things. And the NWA section is packed. One of the longest sections we've had for an 80s show. So, um, yeah, I think it's around 11 pages for NWA. So, yeah, quite the, quite the section. A lot of stuff well, going on there. It's a WCW pay-per-view in 1989 in Philly. There's going to be a lot of people there hearing a lot of things. And, and uh, yeah, and Wade Keller has his thoughts about Ric Flair, the booker. And, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, section. Uh, a lot of stuff going on. So we have that. We got all the international stuff, including Stampede. Not a Stampede. We got um, stuff from the indie scene. Of course, Memphis. Uh, Jerry Lawler is... Getting ready to kick up his heel turn, so we got that going on. And uh, USWA in, in, in Texas got changes going on there in many ways. And of course, WWF, we got um, we got all kind of stuff going on there too. As a Tully Blanchard is fired <laughs> from the WWF, so we'll have that story and well, other stuff. He's not exactly <laughs> fired. He quit and was suspended. Well, the newsletter said he was fired, so we'll so we'll talk about that on the That's show next week. Curious, yeah, Dave, Dave Wade, and Steve Beverly all said announced he was fired. So we'll we'll have that on the show next week. Um, with Robert O'Connor making his return as our guest, so always should be fun. All right, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K R I S Z E L L N E R. Show proper at BT She's Pod. Bix at David Bix. And Bix has some stuff to plug this week as uh, his Mel Magazine article came out with Pat, Pat on Pat Patterson, which in turn led to him showing up on a show that nobody would expect. So, Bix, uh, go ahead and talk about that. Yeah, so uh, finally, as I had mentioned previously, there were some delays just from... Various stuff from Mel starting back up. Some of the editors, who are now also management, had their time 
taken up by more management things than usual. Then there was, there was, you know, another editor that they've hired on in the last few weeks. So things are kind of normalizing now. So certain freelance stuff wasn't necessarily going to come out as early as ori people originally wanted, but I think it's going to be fine net from here on. And this article that I did, it stemming from a Freedom of Information Act request I did over the winter after Pat Patterson passed away, requested his immigration records, not really expecting anything. It's something I do semi-regularly because we've talked about this a little bit before. You might find some financial records. You can get an idea of what main eventers were making in certain territories. You know, you get their reference letters. And, you know, you'll get some interesting stuff in there, but you never really know. But that's also the game of filing these FOIA requests. Because the more you file, the more likely you are to find something that you would have had no idea you were looking for. And that was the case here, because in addition to his green card application process from 1971 and his citizenship application, which was successful in 2002, in the mid-60s, what was then the INS, which was part of the Department of Justice, it was which... I don't think any of the immigration stuff is now. Uh, they tried to deport him because of his quote-unquote homosexual activity. Which not only was not a thing that was known publicly, as it turns out, you know, and I talked to Jerry Briscoe for the article, and he talked more about this after, and Meltzer mentioned it too when he was plugging it on Twitter, none of Pat's closest friends in wrestling had any idea about this. Whatsoever. You know, it's in the article, people will see, you know, with hindsight, Briscoe mentions he'd talk about being watched, and then, you know, on, as we'll talk about in a minute on his podcast, being followed, and not wanting to go to gay bars, and stuff like that, and not wanting to do certain, maybe, uh, more extreme ribs, or at least certain wrestling-type ribs in public view, because he's being watched, and they weren't sure what he meant. And it turns out this is most likely what he was talking about. You know, there was a hearing. At one point, it looks like they tried to dupe him into leaving for Canada to apply for a green card with the idea of being they'd spring a psychiatric exam on him and declare him a sexual deviant or whatever and get him deported. Um, they interview him. They, it all stems from them. Well, two things. One is the... the quote-unquote moral squad in Portland, their police department was investigating the local gay community in some form, as police departments did back then, unfortunately. But also, Pat had had some kind of liaison with a wrestler who was, I guess, still technically on duty in the Air Force. And they had found out about it, and because it's the 60s, they're trying to see if they can prove he's gay and kick him out. Now, we don't know who it is. I asked around a little bit the name that one person thought of as far as an Air Force veteran. Like, it wasn't anyone anyone would really know. But that's how it seemed like it came well, about. Well, it's the 60s in Portland, so yeah. Yeah, but anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, tons of more details in there. Source documents linked throughout. Um, have some Jack Pfeffer collection stuff that I linked to. So it really came out well. And then, so, okay. It did not surprise me that Briscoe had told John Layfield about the article, because they're good friends, and JBL was good friends with Pat Patterson and all that. Layfield loved the article so much 
that he unblocked me on Twitter and Briscoe asked me to come on their podcast. And the same day. Yeah, same day. He was like, hey, do you want to? I don't know. It's kind of last minute. And I mean, he's been constantly plugging it, too. Um, Some people have asked me and okay, it's twofold. One, Briscoe did me a solid. He gave a very candid interview. I mean, there's tons more stuff I could have used that I did. If he's asking me to come on his podcast to talk to him about what he learned that added a new context that made him understand with his friendship with his dead friend much better, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> you know? So the other thing, though, it does seem like JBL mostly getting out of wrestling the last few years has greatly changed in you, a positive way as a person. You don't have to apologize for anything. I'm not apologizing. No, you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to explain your actions. Explain I mean, my Jesus actions, Christ. be that as it may, then from there, namaste. I mean, here, here <laughs> I, I read something the other day. Uh, this is, and it, it, it's like, it, it, it's hilarious to me. Now, there, we have a whole generation of people now that just, it boggles their mind that people have different opinions on things than they do. I was reading this article, this study about this, about the, you know, the young, younger generation. Uh, I forget which ages they poll from, but it says it really bothers them. It affects them mentally to know that there are people in the world that, think differently than they do what the fuck literally in that general <laughs> sense not even like this specific person has politics that i find whatever like literally just yeah, specifically that people think okay it tr- yeah it troubles them that that, that that not everybody thinks the same exact way uh <laughs> now that i mean ridiculous. yeah i mean it is it yeah it's, it is ridiculous they, they think it's wrong and so, and, and a lot of them are college students, and they talk about how they're taught that by their professors. <laughs> it's like Jesus Christ. But I wanted to—I figured if I'm going to say anything, it's better to say it on here than try to squeeze something onto Twitter or whatever. Well, yeah, a I mean, people it, it, asked it, it, me, not, not really angry even, but a couple asked. Well, the, I mean, listen, uh, I mean, JBL's no saint. We know that he's had a pat, but you know. Whatever you know, I mean, it's an opportunity for Bix to do something and get and get out there and plug his article and yeah, I mean, good lord, people. <laughs> I mean, you don't have you don't have to go and deny availability to somebody who you can't, you know, put your work out there for a broader audience. You know what I'm saying? There are people that are watching that, that watching that podcast that wouldn't have known about this un- until they watched that podcast. So this, this put that article out there on a subject that, I mean, Pat Patterson was very well known in wrestling. Wrestling fans know him, you know, probably more from the night, late 90s, early 2000s. They did from his career. And to hear this stuff, I mean, this is some shocking stuff. This is crazy, the stuff that Pat Patterson went through in the 60s. So any any way that people's eyes and ears can be exposed to something like this, take the opportunity. Well, because this is, and I, you know, it was, um, you know, Tim Burke, formerly, you know, Deadspin and Daily Beast, who really underlined this when he shared it um, on Tuesday. 
people don't really know about the extent that the U.S. government went after gay people in that era. And it's important to know that. And this is a way to tell people that. Yeah, it happened. I mean, it was, it was not a good time for that, you know? I mean, they believed that was wrong. And, you know, a lot of that came i mean there's a lot of that going on but a lot of that came about because people were kind of you know they didn't want that type of lifestyle being promoted quote unquote. It's, something that's, it's gotta be you know this behind closed doors because of, you know there are a lot of people that were you know going out there pumping all that stuff that were uh privately engaging in some of those activities as well so always you know when I when I see people and hear people that are just hard, I mean they're hardcore, you know, talking about being anti-gay and this stuff, I think they're the most suspect, you know, because when you're out there going that hard and you know talking about that, then you're hiding something. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's repressed emotions or feelings or whatever. But if you're that hardcore out there talking like that, then I, I'm thinking something's going on with you. Well, it's so, also it's also the reason that the quote unquote Barney Frank rule is a thing, that it's okay to out someone if they are using their power to harm gay people. Yeah. So. So, and on that note too, some of the other stuff we get into on that podcast includes a story I had never heard before about, and I won't give the whole details. Pat Patterson using the whole Anita Bryant anti-gay teacher ordinance controversy to get heed in Florida. Yeah, people may not know who Anita Bryant is, and I'm not going to go into all that, so uh, Google Anita Bryant. And it's but, explained uh, on, on the podcast, too, but we talk a lot about that. You know, we hear more from uh, Briscoe, you know, about kind of what he recalls and some side notes of some other stuff with his dealings with Patterson. And, we, you know, some other side conversations, of course. And at the end, when I'm doing my plugs, you know, when I mentioned the... Uh, article I put on my substack at babyfaceheel.com trying to figure out what the ratings of WWF on TBS really were and if they were as bad as they were made out to be over the years, which, spoiler, not quite. Everyone check that out. Uh, so I figured, you know, I mean, I'm on Jerry Briscoe's podcast while I'm plugging this new post. I might as well ask him some stuff about it. We ended up doing like at least another 10, 15 minutes just on that. And he shared some stuff that I've never heard before as far as how the whole thing came about, which he, of course, called Green Saturday because he and his brother greatly benefited monetarily from it. But I hope everyone checks that out. Yes. Which is what the official name of their podcast again? Was it Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw or something like that? Uh, yeah. Um, something. I can't remember the or name Briscoe of that and thing. Mayfield, I guess. I forget. I forget, forget the exact name because I think there was an abbreviation too. <laughs> so there, there's a few things going on there, but I had a good time. And I mean, the other thing too, though, is like, I, again, this is not defending me, but like, it does seem like there is a difference between the current John Layfield who marches in gay pride parades and the John Layfield who is in the wrestling business. Yes. So if me, if Meany can make up with him, I can at least be on his show talking to Briscoe. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. That's the thing. Him and Blue Meanie had a Mia culpa. So, yeah, I mean, come on. Everybody everybody has passed and people can change and be repentant. So, you know, let it go, people. 
All right. Enough about that. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to North America now. We start with Canada. Pro wrestlers did fare too well in the Canadian national elections on October 25th. Paul Butcher Vachon, brother of legendary Mad Dog and father of Luna, among numerous others in the family, ran in the district in Montreal and finished four out of seven candidates with a 2.24% of the vote. Former Montreal city manager Deepak Massand, or excuse me, former Montreal manager, not city manager, as in wrestling manager, who was listed on the ballot as Deepak Dashik Massand, fared worse, garnering 0.27 the vote. In his district, finishing ninth of 10 candidates. Massad got a decent amount of curiosity publicity with Abdul the Butcher came to town the week before the election and in a suit and tie campaigning for him, which got him a big newspaper photo and local paper. Masan and Abdullah wrote the paper thank you letter for the coverage with Mr. Shreve signing it for Mr. Abdul Mr. Shreve signing it, Mr. Abdullah Butcher. <laughs> Not Abdullah the Butcher, Mr. Abdullah Butcher. Well, Chris, what did his all Japan jumpsuit say? A butcher. There you go. <laughs> it also reminds me of was it uh I think it was our friend Tom K. When uh, when he he and Phil Schneider were in Atlanta for that Lu- Gary Jester Lucha show, went to Abdullah the Butcher's house of ribs and Chinese food. I don't think they were able to eat there, but Tom started coming up with this whole thing about Deacon the Butcher, ha- like in a like a parody of E.A. Men and having his own parking spot. It was very weird. Mm-hmm. A butcher. But yeah, another story about wrestlers and elections and uh. Not faring too well. No. I mean, they rarely do. That's why the Ventura thing, you know, his wins was always such a big deal because he was the one of the few that actually would always win his elections, basically. <laughs> well, they didn't expect him to the second time. No. Well, who, I mean, really, who could have? But, uh, yeah. Wild. Deepak the Sheik Masan. I like how he put his gimmick on there on this ballot. Crazy. All right, let's go to the western side of Canada, ICW. A group called ICW drew 1,510.66 10, paid respectively in Monato and Vancouver, British Columbia over the weekend. All the calls to show were such that they were said to be losing efforts. Among the names that were at the show were Earthquake John Tenta, The Bushwhackers, Rip Martell, Jim Neidhart, Colonel DeBeers, Me and Mike Miller, Beef Wellington, and Banny's Allen. All right, the 22nd in Monato from 1500, we have Ole Olsen over Buddy Wayne, Canadian Buddy Wayne. Michelle Starr and Vern Sievert teamed up with Mike Miller and Mike Rosselli to be Firefighter Adrian, Riptide Rockford, Billy Two Eagles, and Moondaw Moretti. Earthquake John Tenta beat the Basher. Rocky and Bobby Delacera over Jajit Singh, Jason Anderson, and Gama Singh. Bushwhackers over Colonel DeBeers and Beef Wellington. And your main event, Jim Neidhart, double count Rip Martell. Vancouver the next night, 1066. Michelle Starr with Betty Wayne. But McIntyre over Iron Maiden, not the rock group. Firefight Agent and Moon Moretti, and along with Riptide Rockford, Bill Two Eagles over Bite Miller, Bird Sieber, Ole Olsen, and the Terminator by its qualification. Earthquake, John Tent over Basher. Bushwhackers over DeBeers and Wellington. Neidhart, double count Rip Martell. And in a street fight, they went to a no contest. Bad News Allen and Timothy Diamond, Timothy Flowers. Okay, two things jump out right here. One, um, boy, does it seem like Tim Flowers was a good uh, promoter at this time. 
Yeah. Good Those houses. Some really good houses there, yes. Because I'm pretty sure this is his promotion, because I feel like uh, when Alvarez and those guys used to talk about it, they always used to call it, I think, Tim Flowers ICW. Well, I, I mean, look at the names on the card. I mean, he, he got some good names. Yes. They're still relevant. Now, that's it. Have you ever seen, besides these two shows, more Western Canada meets Pacific Northwest lineups in your life? Yeah, they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty Western Canadian for and sure. We've got Ole Olson, Buddy Wayne, Michelle Starr, Vern Siebert, Mike Miller, Firefighter Adrian, Billy Two Eagles, Ed Moretti, John Tenta, the Delisaris, Jason Anderson doing a Tiger Jeet Singh relative gimmick for some reason, Gama Singh, Ed Wiskowski, Beef Wellington, and Jim Neidhart. Yeah, actually, wait, yeah, did Tim I mean... Flowers wrestle on the first show at all? No. Or just the second. Okay, Tim Flowers, too. It's very Northwest. Yes. Not just Canadian, Northwest. But that's, I mean, well, what do you expect? You know? I mean, that's that part of the world, and there's a, that talent hung around, stayed, and constantly went back. So, yes, yeah, to be expected. Interesting shows, though. All right, uh, let's go to Mexico now. Triple R. Juventud Guerrero, the teenage son of Fuerza Guerrero, is getting heavily praised by veterans because he works like someone with years of experience, even though he's only been a pro for a few months. On October 22nd, his first television match in a few months, they made it obvious he'll be in line for a significant push since he pinned Rey Mysterio Jr. again to win a trios match. Now, um, let's, we'll talk about him in a second. We've got more on this. The crowd will be up significantly on October 22nd to be about 6,000 fans in a Rudos Cultura Rudos match with Cien Caras, Mascar Año 2000, Jerry Estrada, up against Perota Morgan, Satanico, and Fishman. Estrada's team won a straight falls in a two-star match. After the bout, Satanico blamed Morgan, who was being cleaned by Estrada in the second fall. The two have been partners for the past several months. As Los Infernales, Satanico refused to shake his hand after the, the match, even though Perota tried to make up for several minutes. Finally, Satanico walked out on him. Hoovy was brought in for a trios match with his father and La Parca, beating Rey Mysterio Jr., Volador, and Solar. The younger Guerrero, who looks to be about five foot three and maybe 140 pounds, but already shows unmistakable signs of being a potentially great worker, brought in the WWE lightweight title he had won the previous week from Ray, and Ray put him over strong once again, and the third fall loses to a German suplex. Main event was a four-star match with Io de Santo, Otagon and Blue Panther, beating Heavy Metal, Love Machine, Eddie Guerrero, when Santo made Metal submit to the camel clutch in the third fall. No hints of any turns in this match. This was done to set the title versus title match with Santo defending WWE welterweight title and Metal defending the Mexican national welterweight title on the October 29th show at Gimnasio and Olimpico Juan de la Barrera in Mexico City. Results of this show, Chicano Power, El Magnate, which was Mr. Mexico, and Elvis, over, or should be Elvez, I guess, over Hecatombe, Marimoto, and Terrimoto, La Briosa, La Monster, and Neftali over Lola Gonzalez, Patera Serena, and Wendy. Everyone knows it's Wendy. Remisterio Jr., Salar, and Volador over Fasagreta, Hutagreta, and La Parca. Holy shit, Blue is Panther. that on tape? Blue Panther, it was a TV tape, yeah. Blue Panther, Yoda Santo, and Octagon over Eddie Guerrero, Heavy Metal, Love Machine, and Cien Caras, Jerry Estrada, and Mascar Unusumil over Fishman, Perota Morgan, and Satanico. All right, who went to Guerrero? Yes, he is uh, very young at this time here, and. Uh, Dave, Dave could see it. Everybody could see it. 
when that guy first started, you knew that guy was going to be an amazing performer, and he was. Yes. And by the way, that trio's match appears to be on both Roy Lusher and Fredo Esparza's YouTube channels. Yes. So there you go. So I need to watch that because I've never seen that. But yeah, Hoovy. Yeah, from the beginning, that's how everyone talked about him, and he deserved it. And I think everyone forgets until his issues took over, and then on and off for a few years after that, he's pretty much at worst one of the ten best wrestlers in the world. Well, he was a great performer, absolutely. When he was on, you know, I mean, he was fantastic. Yes, and here he is about to turn nineteen. Yeah. So, yeah, he's very, very young. Good Lord, can you imagine 19-year-old Hoovy in AEW <laughs> with the guys yeah. they have in that age range? Yeah. All right, Lismark regained the WWE light heavyweight title from La Parca on October 23rd in Maklova. So there's another title change. All right, a uh, district judge, a federal – I mean, excuse me, district in Mexico City, so Distrito Federal – Ruled on October 21st that after reviewing the tapes of the Triple Mania match that Conan should be reinstated. Amazing. Right. Which is a way for the commissioner who wanted to uphold the stipulation of the retirement match to save face and still allow Conan back. Conan's return has been cleared and will take place on November 5th rather than the, no, October 29th, although Dave's heard both dates mentioned. He returned on the 30th. Uh, Jake Roberts will be appearing as Conan's first opponent in Mexico, although there are still plans to bring him into Mexico, possibly with Sherry Martell as his manager. Yes, folks. To cheat this like a shoot, they had a real judge uh, rule that Conan be reinstated. I forget, though. Is this also tied to um, Paco Alonso screwing with Conan's work visa, though? Like, I forget. Oh, I Did he I don't tie know it about to that? that? I don't know that about earlier? that. I don't know about that. Okay. Timing. I always forget when that was, if that's really early in AAA's run, or if they did that angle because they knew he was going to have issues because of Paco um, with, you know, the retirement thing. And by the way, I just looked it up. I forgot. So Hoovy's been wrestling a little over a year and a half. It's just that he's only st- – well, no, he's been wrestling as Hoovy Guerrero for over a year, if Luchawiki's right. But his first few months, he was EO de, de Fuerza Guerrero and Fuerza for a game at different points, but it says he's been hoovy for over a year. But still, he does not wrestle like a rookie at this time. No. All right, newcomer Elvez, who was formerly known as Ricky Boy, so he's gone from copying Rick Rude to copying the Honky Tonk Man. <laughs> well, well, I think it, I think it was spelled Elvis, wasn't it? I know, but the it is spelled Elvis, but still, so it would be Elvis. Uh, well, it can be, but the the famous it's a famous uh, Elvis the first from Mexico, Elvis. So yes, and, but he uh, spells it E L V E Z. So that anyway. also that also reminds me too of uh, I don't think it was something that was ever actually in the show, but one of the early pieces of Simpsons merchandise was the Simpsons family photo album, which included pictures of Marge and Homer going to see Elvish, the Turkish Elvis impersonator. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, another wrestling connection. One of Rob Russin's big things before wrestling was being the promoter of the first big Elvis impersonator show, the Big L Show. There you go. How about that, folks? The Santo movie that debuts on November 5th is said, is said in Mexico to be the best movie ever starred in by a wrestler. Of course, they'd never see Mr. Nanny. 
I don't know if it's damning with faint praise or not. The, the best wrestler, the best movie with a Mexican wrestler in it. So who knows? Mm, um, I mean, I they're know. all in a certain type of genre anyway. So yeah. Well, also wait. It says said in Mexico to be the best movie ever starred in by a wrestler. That doesn't necessarily mean best movie starred in by a Mexican wrestler. It means period. That's why he's making that joke, I guess. Yeah. So anyway. Else. Elsa Tonico appears to be staying, although Viano Tessero has already started back with UWA. So there's that. All right, CMLO. A lot of maneuvering going on behind the scenes. If I'm the country's highest paid wrestler, Canadian Vampire. No vampire, Casanova. No, just Canadian Vampire. Vampire is currently earning $2,000 per match on weekends and $1,500 on weeknights, which make it probably the highest paid active wrestler in the world right now, with the exception of Sting and Vader. It's telling wrestlers he's either going to retire at the end of the year or cut back his schedule to two shows per week to concentrate on being the rock and roll band. In the ring, they're continuing to build a Caballero Coach Caballero match with him against Black Magic, Norma Smiley, which is generally scheduled for December. Yeah, two grand on weekends and 1500 on weeknights. Per match. Per match. Yeah, I don't think people realize just how much the americans and canadians were making in mexico before the peso crash well it's not it, yeah but it's not just that it's that guy i mean that guy was a major star no i know but remember when we did the art bar show that he was apparently making something like a quarter of a million dollars yeah but he was working a lot more than vampiro is sure but still like, wow I mean, like I said, Vampiro had the band here. He's been a soap opera star, all kinds of stuff going on. So he was he was a big deal. And you know what? Yeah, but, I don't think we've ever actually had any indication that he didn't save his money, have we? I haven't heard anything about him being broke or having any issues with it, money. It seems so. like he's able to go stretches without working. I mean, if you don't, if you never watched him. In this era, you just don't understand, especially in Monterey, you know, how over this man was yeah. to, to, to the fans. I mean, it was insane. I mean, he was a rock star in those rings, as big as anybody. Yes. Like I there. always say, if you want to understand how Vampiro, of all people, became this big star watch the entrances from his first Apuestas match with Parada Morgan. And the thing is, the guy was not a good worker. <laughs> oh, no, and he that's even like, admits that. That's the thing, and that's the thing, you know, that's the thing with wrestling that so many people, I don't know, they just can't grasp it. That, yeah, it's great to be a great worker and everything, but look at your draws. Look at your major draws in the history of in wrestling. Most of them have been shitty workers in the ring. It's everything else that they bring to the table that brings the fans to the building. So you can have you can have great wrestling up and down your car. You can have nothing but great wrestlers on your car, but you won't reach the the masses until you have people that are actual stars that portray that are portrayed that way, that have the charisma, have the look. You know, and, and have what it takes to bring him in there. So he was that guy, even though he's working for CML this time, who, who are, you know, not doing that hot. 
but he's but he does but he was doing business in other places on his own too. So yes, and I always remember uh, from that first torch talk Conan did in '94 that the term in Mexico for having it for having cur- that kind of charisma and stuff is having the angel, and Vampiro definitely had it. Yeah. Speaking of Conan, Conan and Arroyo Jr. are having a war of words in the media. Arroyo called Conan a paper idol. Conan counter calling Rayo a toilet paper idol. <laughs> they claim the only fans Arroyo draws come to the arena disguised as empty seats. <laughs> yeah. A little Sounds ribbing like there. <laughs> yeah. Negro Costas handled a lot of the booking for CMLL. Costas is a rudo everywhere else, but he has been working as a technical the past few weeks in Guadalajara. Turn back on October 20th when he turned on partners Brazo and Brazo de Oro. All right, so we go to Arena Mexico on October 22nd. Olympus and Ultimatum over America 2 and Riba Cunero. Guerrero Mayo, Titan, and Tornado Negro over America Roca, Filoso and Plata. Blue Demon Jr., Brazo de Plata and El Brazo over Hakimate, Quejos and Masacre. Black Magic, Number Smiley, Dr. Vanden Jr. and Emilio Chavez Jr. over El Dandy, Red Disco Jr. and Vampiro. And King Haku, yes, Haku, over Petoff by DQ in the main event. Then October 26th, we're going to Coliseo. We have Angel de Plata and El Gentario against Komodin and Lynx. Cynthia Moreno, Lady Apache, and Lady Star. Uh, went up against La Diabolica, La Praticante, and Maria Daniel. Apache suffered a foot injury in the match. Americo Roca, Chicago Express, and Plata against Cachorro Mendoza, Jaraco, and Javier Cruz. Plata suffered a leg injury in the match to finish the show. Brazo de Plata, La Fiera, and Oro over Dr. Brandon Jr., Hakimate, and Chaos. Oro's final match. He suffered brain injury, passed away before they could get into the ambulance. And Pantera against Felino in a Super Libre match. Now, yes, we talked about this last week. We covered this whole deal uh, on Between the Sheets, show 15. Uh, with Kurt Brown, which I don't know if it's made it back up to the feed yet. I need to do that, yes. I should probably do it before this show goes up, yes. But um, So we go in-depth on that there with Kurt, who was very close to the scene. And uh, we talk about all that happened there because, yeah, the aftermath, you know, took place after our, this week is over. Because this is the last day of our died in the ring week. on the 26th. Right. This is the last day of our week. So the 27th is when everything gets out there. So right. it's no covered one, more there. No one has any clue what happened yet on the 26th. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, Tuesday night. Every match, it, uh, the three matches in a row were there injuries. That's crazy. And then the death. You know, what a curse show this was. Yes. And it's out there. I assume it's on YouTube. I've seen it. I mean, it's not graphic by those standards necessarily. I wouldn't. I wouldn't advise anyone watch it. But there was no autopsy done, so we don't really know for sure. But what happened was, I forget which of the rudos he's in with when it happens. He takes a chop. For some reason, decided to take an exaggerated bump, looking like he got dropped on his head off the chop, and then he doesn't get up. Yeah, and the thing was too, and I again, I guess the only reason he did it off a chop was wanting to completely control his own bump in a lucha ring. I guess 
But he was telling everyone, you know, and this is in the, you know, the bio that Jose Fernandez did for him. He was telling everyone before the match, I'm going to do the Kabashi bump. Yeah, because he was a big fan of all Japan and was watching that stuff. And yeah, it just backfired, sadly, for him. But yeah, you hear Maris talk more about that from over five years ago now, six years ago, basically, on that show. So hopefully it'll be up. All right, Monterrey. On the 24th, Plaza de Toros, La Monmetal, Jacuarcito and Tigrillo against Mini Aguacil and Mini Sheriff, Prince Fancrin and Tigre Universitario against David El Millonario, David El Millonario, and Gran Houdini, Bronco and Humberto Garza over, uh, went, went against those Commandos, Humberto Garza Jr., Terminator and Valente Fernandez over Hakimate, Quejosa Masacre, and Dragon de Oro, La Fiera, and Ray Lisco Jr. went up against Mano Negro, Negro Casas, and Perov. So there's your Monterrey show. And then UWA, after three straight weeks of crowds in the 1,000 range, Otorreo, the group loaded the show up on October 24th with Connect versus King Haku, and brought in Vampiro, and the crowd picked up to around 3,000, which is still pretty bad under normal circumstances. Results of that show, Incognito. That's what most of the fans were. Carlos Fagade Jr. and Principe Maya beat El Coloso, El Sagrada, and Raquel Sotada. Ilda Anibal, El Marnaca, and Transformer went against Ingenjur, Scorpio Jr., and Shuga Guerrero. The Killer, Vita Hiroki, and Yamato, Tiger Taguchi, Tiger Chung Lee, beat El Signo, Gran Hamada, and Negro Navarro. Uh, Enrique Vera, Super Astro, and Vampiro over Los Vianos, 3, 4, and 5 by DQ. And Kanek over King Haku... By uh, what they went to a double cat out, so of course, nobody's jobbing in that match. What are you talking about? But there you go, Grant Vampiro helped raise the crowd up by a couple of thousand people. Huh. So good for him. And any idea who Vita Hiroaki is? Vita Hiroaki, um, I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, Going to Lucha Wiki. I just think it was some random. I think it was some random. It was nobody that's like a random Japanese guy. So it's probably somebody that was a maybe a war uh, young boy to just flaked out. Um, it looks like no Lucha Wiki profile. Yeah, I mean they there's a mention of uh, him in a getting a trios title shot on the UWA trios title page, but that's it. Yeah. All right, Mikey's back with us now as we head to the independent scene and we begin in Massachusetts for Century Wrestling Association. But they drew a crowd of 1,500 fans to a show on October 23rd in Waitfield, Massachusetts, headlined by Big Steamboat versus the Iron Sheik. Well, <laughs> the, the results here from the tour say 1,500, but 1,300 paid. Tape for local TV. As Crystal Blue and Mighty Drew beat Little Louie and, the, and Black Lady Wrestler. Black lady, one word. Yes, black lady wrestler. Hmm. It, I mean, I guess it is Massachusetts, so that would be rare. Uh, Ray Odyssey over Lex Lavender. <laughs> well, that would be Mr. Flex Lavender of YouTube fame. Get the F out, Lex Lavender. Also, do you remember what Mr. Flex Lavender's uh, entrance music was? What was Call to personality. There you go. Uh, Tasmaniac over El Mascaro, <laughs> Double Trouble, The Undertakers, Puccio, all that, uh, over the mass interns, 
Tony Alice over Tommy Dreamer. And Iron Sheik over Vic Steamboat in your main event. And Tony Rumble was a heck of a promoter. You know, say what you will about him. He, he always uh, did good houses. I don't know if I ever heard any bad things about him as a person, though. Have you? Not him as a person, but just say about like, some of the shows and stuff. And, oh, you mean the quality of the shows sometimes. Okay, yeah, but... yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I can't go wrong with that shit. Yeah. No. Mikey, you know well. I mean, 1500 House on an independent wrestling show, even in the 90s? I mean, shit. Goddamn. I mean... <laughs> Uh, considering I am about four years in now and I have not hit that yet. Close, <laughs> but not yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, wait a second. So what was the official total attendance for uh, Three Cups Stuffed? Uh, just under 11. Okay. That's still good for indie, indie wrestling. Well, also, and there were, that was a complete supernova vacancy full house to the fire marshal. Would not let anyone else in. Yes, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty big. Vix made sure that the fire marshal won't let nobody else in. Oh, no, will too. you stop? <laughs> All right. Um, John Arezzi's Weekend of the Champions Convention included a wrestling show on October 22nd at the Ramada Inn in Queens, New York, which drew a full house of about 680 fans paying $11,000. It's not been a good show, although some of the matches with high-flying wrestlers were, in, were marred because the ceiling was too low to do any top-rope moves. Terry Funk, Kevin Sullivan match ended with The Sheik, who ended the period in the state of New York since being suspended for life in the early 60s. Did a run-in, chasing fans, leading fans who followed him everywhere. Sabu busted several tables and losing his match with Conan by countout. While old-time New York favorite Ivan Pusky told the ref about Greg Valentine using the gimmick on Scott Pusky and got the decision reversed. At press time, we don't report on the convention itself, although attendance was said to have been lower than in previous years. Well, we got the results of this show. 680 fans. We have Mike Norman over Mondo Vial. Luis Piccoli over Bobby Blaze. Conan El Barbaro over Luis Piccoli. Tasmaniac over Chris Candido. The Power Twins in Sunny Beach over Metal Maniac, Tom Burton, and Dennis Knight. How do you even decide to book that? I gotta ask Sean. What the hell? Uh... Well, hang on. The Power Twins in Sunny Beach hooked up with John Arezzi? No way. <laughs> they did uh, everything with him. <laughs> and everything he ever did. All of his international tours. You'd see all these stars, but you see the Power Twins there, too. Well, Herb Aver- John and Herb Abrams had a long common. How about, uh, well, that, uh, least, how about that, that other well, team? At least that. <laughs> well, well, they worked together briefly. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, say, I'm not uh, accusing John of uh, heavy drug abuse or anything, or or bouncing oh, checks or anything. No, 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 no. But uh, that other team, I mean, that, is he Johnny Shiro Tenru here or something? <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, Conan over Sebu by Countout, Medusa over Malia Hasaka, Buskier Valentine by DQ, and Funk over Sullivan by DQ. All right, Bix, before we start on Sebu, you were here. Yes. You were at this convention, so <laughs> what are your memories of uh, all that happened here? Okay, I did not go to the wrestling show. I don't remember. Okay, so, well, you can tell me. Is the 22nd Saturday or Sunday? Uh, well, Raw was the 25th, so actually it's, fr- it's Friday. Oh, okay. I think every year— How old we- were you? I am about to turn Eight. nine. Yes. Okay, yeah, you're eight. So. <laughs> I love this. I, only him. 
My all parents right, so took me to every. My parents took me to all four. I mean, what can I? I say? told you he was re- he was reading his sheets to the kids in preschool. <laughs> he was breaking down quarter hours. I can't stop laughing. I mean, my no, my I kid that. is ten. I have a ten year old, and like, there's no way she would show any interest at all, even kind of in something like this. Yes. All right, go ahead, Bix. Okay, Continue. so okay, so the like your convention guests, and I got the I got the program signed. I wish I still had it, but yeah. So I met you know Sabu, Sheik, Conan, Medusa, Terry Funk, Kevin Sullivan, Woman. Um, second time I met Nancy, I believe, because I think she was at the '91 convention too. Um. Albano, I think that's just about it as far as the main convention guests that you got with, you know, the main ticket, which the previous year they had strayed from that, and uh, I guess it didn't go over great, because previously, like, you got all of these autographs, like, you know, because the year before was like, Buddy Rogers, Luthes, Ric Flair, Superstar Billy Graham, you know, just absurdly loaded you know bruno was not there the day i went but bruno as well on sunday at least and then the next year which was you know eddie gilbert lightning kid jushin liger i forget some of the others they did all, all individual boogie tickets. woogie man well yes because you have the program you just tweeted about it that it was yeah uh, larry zabisco because they did the larry zabisco bruno thing yes the handshake Yes, I did. I mean, I met Larry at that one too. Oh no, Bruno was there both days in '92, but L- Bruno was like on a break when I met Zabisco, and Zabisco, of course, was wearing a, his arm in a sling to uh, sell the injury. Oh, the doggone! I mean, Zabisco's not really the doggone; it that's more Bruno. But anyway, no, I'm so, saying about Bruno, Bruno being on break. Well, yeah. So '93. Um, Is that Kerry? No, '92 no, was Kerry because he. Dead. No, 92, 92 oh, is when Harry yeah. Von Eric falls down trying to walk into the room. Um, but 93, I mean, it was fun. It was probably was less crowded. 91 was by far the most packed. It had the highest budget, too, so I don't believe John made money. But, like, literally 91, it was a two-hour wait to get inside. And that's the one where Rip Rogers was selling photos to people online in his gear. Of course. But, of course, I mean, he, he had investors quote-unquote, for all of these. I uh, recently read his his book about all this stuff. It's it's There's some wild stories. I'm still overdue on reading his book. I need to. But uh, I guess the big thing I should say, you know, so uh, was the uh, was meeting Terry Funk, where he signed my autograph on my program, Stay Out of Jail, Terry Funk. <laughs> Which, you know, as I would learn later... Uh, is a thing he did more than once, but still. So we we fast forward a little less than a decade. Jersey All Pro Wrestling, same night as the famous Danielson uh, London match in ROH, however many miles away in Philly. Terry Funk versus Jerry Lawler's main event. Uh, I think it was before. I forget it was before the show or going into intermission. I think it's before the show. Um, I'm sitting there with Pete Stein and Ray Duffy. And Terry comes out and he's just, you know, shaking hands with fans. We're, you know, walking by, shakes my hand, walks past me, stops, turns back to me and says, so did you stay out of jail? No. 
Yes. Oh, you didn't know the story? Yes. Um, I didn't know that. As he would explain later when I interviewed him for his Fighting Spirit article, his thing he would do is he'd do little things like that, and then, knowing he did it enough times, would reference it knowing that if he had the luck of meeting a fan that he had done that for, he'd create this amazing special moment. That is awesome. That's why I stare your phone. I, uh, my quick generosity note is I have, I actually own a lot of his personal collection uh, that he sold in the years since, including his uh, personalized Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert promo that says, to my main man, John Arezzi, thanks for everything. Uh, it says, uh, I don't know what it says, but it says, uh, first class operation, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. Yeah. Yep. John John had, uh, had quite the run here in the early 90s with all the stuff he had going on. But here's issues on this show. So let's go to the Pro Wrestling Torch. Oh, yeah. Sabu says he went the extra mile for a resi to make his convention better and got the short end of the deal at the end. Sabu admits to having a pretty bad match of Conan. The ceiling's only seven feet high and really limited us, he said. We were only in the ring seven minutes, so after the match, I wanted to get the fans something extra. I did it for John to put over his show. For Sabu, that something extra means destroying tables. He's made his trademark. A trademark he's willing to pay for. I asked John before I went out how much tables cost. Sabu, he said he told me 800 bucks, so I busted up two tables. Sabu lost by counting when he flipped onto a table, intending to hit Conan, who moved first. So later, John said the tables cost $225 each. Sabu says, these aren't good-looking new tables. They were beaten up, had tablecloths on, and the cover of them up. Anyway, I was willing to pay for it. Sabu felt a little misled, but later he says a compromise was met. The tables would be broken to five pieces and auctioned to fans along with the other rest of merchandise. It worked well as a table piece sold for a total of $225. But then John took $125 of the money. Sabu says it was all part of the deal that the rest would donate items to be auctioned and John would get half of it. Sabu felt these items, though, fell to, into a different category and that Arezzi shouldn't have profited off his extra effort which above all else risks his physical well-being, especially when he says Arezzi greatly underestimated the cost of tables in the first place. I wouldn't have broken through tables if I knew what they cost, Sabu said. Working for Arezzi again is not out of the question, according to Sabu. It's good publicity for me to be at his conventions, and I still came out ahead. He was paid approximately $1,000 for his Friday and Saturday appearances and three th- oh, excuse me, and lost three fifty for the table cost. Now, John Arezzi, a week later in the torch, responded by claiming... He never estimated the cost of the tables to Sabu. How in the hell would I know what the price of them are? He wrote, and Rezzy claimed Sabu was paid 100% of the cost of the tables and said he had signed a receipt as a signed receipt to prove it. Sabu responded by saying he and Rezzy did discuss the price, but he, Sabu, brought a dollar figure of around $100, which John agreed with. Sabu claimed he was paid only $125 out of the $225 to broke a table piece and sold for, and says he never signed for the money, but instead someone got the auction money for him. He says that person didn't have the time to steal $100 for himself, which will solve this part of the dispute. Then comes the twist. Sabu was charged $450 for the broken tables on that point, but Perez and Sabu agree. 
But Sabu thought he paid for two tables for $225 placement cost. Instead, Sabu paid for three tables with about $150 replacement cost. Sabu says he only broke two tables, but was willing to pay for three to help Arezzi recoup his losses. Arezzi says he didn't notice the $450 was for three tables. He just paid the bill when he received it. Arezzi now says he's going to check with the hotel to see why he was charged for three tables and check the videotape of Sabu's match, which he hasn't seen yet, to see if Sabu broke two or three tables. He says he'll send Sabu $150 for the third table if he didn't break it. Way finally trying to give, finally gave up trying to decide who was fair. If someone who was cheating or forgetful or who owes whom what, all Way knew is Sabu and Arezzi had nothing bad to say about each other, despite indirectly saying the others mistaken or lying on several key points, and he was very confused. The moral of the story? Way doesn't know. Send Wade your possible morales to this strange story. John, I mean, John. My, I, I, my I, which, by the way, he he, yeah. he thought morals was es. He means morals. Yes, <laughs> I said, I said, I said, and I said morals too. Uh, Mike, <laughs> you're you're a promoter, so you know about how this stuff. I mean, that's something that people don't think about when they, you know, go to these wrestling shows, and you have, you know weapons and plunder used. Well, they're this, a little more aware of it now because of the finish, doors. Let me finish. Let me finish. Go ahead. Yeah. So you're so people aren't aware that this stuff actually costs money. And uh, I that, actually, I have a story that actually is directly the same thing. Okay. Uh in September of I want to say twenty nineteen, there's a match between Bear Country and uh Violence is Forever uh, they used one of the venue's uh, tables in Summit. The venue came up to me and was like, hey, you got to pay for this. And I told those gentlemen, hey, guys, I don't care how you guys figure it out, but I'm not paying for this. And I don't know how they figured it out, but it got paid for because it was not agreed upon. None of that. I like to have everything set in stone. You know, hey, this is what the deal is. This is what's going on. You know, please don't, please don't cause any damage that will cost the company extra money. So that's how it went. Wow. So yeah, I mean, this is stuff that is is part of the whole experience of promoting a wrestling show. You have to deal with costs like this. You know, the venue. Well, that's why you need notice. Is because if someone wants to do something like that, let me know, and I, I'll make sure it's there for you. Like I will make sure. You know, I don't, I don't have a problem. You know, getting stuff for people like like Bix just said, the doors, all that stuff. That is a very cost efficient way of doing, you know, an interesting spot like that because, you know, it's it's not going to break the bank and it still has the same exact effect. But, you know, when you kind of go and do your own thing and end up costing, you know, X amount of dollars that we did not budget for, that is just not something that works. Oh, and what was so that, what it, uh, the GCW show earlier this year? Was it Mance who was getting a little bit out of hand and Brett grabbed the microphone at a GCW show? I think maybe in L.A. and was like, you got to quit breaking the fucking chairs. Yeah, yeah. He I mean, that happens all the time with GCW. It's always <laughs> trying to see Brett like wrangle these people all the time is like is such a sight to see. Because, you know, he like he's always in control. He he's in control of the situation. But sometimes like, you know, the guys need to be 
you know, kind of reminded a little bit, hey, guys, come on, come on. And then when they finally notice, it's like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Because it's like, you know, there is an excitement of being out there in front of the live crowd and all that stuff. You know, you're kind of going with the adrenaline. But, you know, the stuff costs money. It costs money. And there's a bottom line. And, you know, we're all trying to get there. Because if, if, we, if we're all losing money, there's not going to be any companies to be running. Yeah. So who's in the right? Who's in the right here, Mikey? In your opinion, of this situation, yeah. uh, if if Sabu, I mean, the fact that Sabu was willing to to pay for that stuff, you know, like if someone offered to do that for me, I would immediately say, "Hey, I'll go half with you." Like, you know, if they're trying to help me out, like for sure, I, I don't think Arezi. I mean, like, like I said, I read his book. He's definitely, you know, not the best guy. Uh, you know, you could, you could kind of, you know, sense some of the stuff, like we were talking about Macho Man, how some people, you know, don't take blame for anything. That's kind of John Arezzi, you know, with all of his conventions, none of it was his fault and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, yeah, a very, one of, uh, very few times I will say Sabu was in the right. <laughs> Bix, what, what were your thoughts on this? I'm just confused. <laughs> If so, is he saying they cleared it but didn't go over specifics? Or yeah, that, that's what he said. He said that Sabu said he threw out the number. Like, what are they like a hundred bucks each? And Arezi, which like anyone would be like, oh uh, yeah, because if you don't know how much they cost, you don't know how much they cost. But like a venue, a lot of times will tell you, hey, they cost this much. Like I've had an issue with my venue saying. Hey, this is how much you need to do or how much you need to pay to replace this table. Well, I just found tables that were exactly the same for much less than what they said. And I replaced them myself because, you know, <laughs> they're, they're going to they're gonna give you a price. And I just, you know, back the truck up. Hey, here you go. Here are your tables. You know, it's but like because venues will do that all the time. They'll tell you like, oh, hey, that chair, that chair that you broke, that's two hundred dollars when you know it wasn't. It's just, you know, it's a steel chair. It costs ten dollars at Walmart. Although particle board tables are weirdly expensive for what they are, even if you just bought them at like Home Depot or whatever. He got the particle board. Bash of the Beach 96. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, this crazy story. It's a, he, he said, she said and everything there. So. All kind of stuff in that. Yes, last anyway. convention, though, for Arezzi. Um Well, we're about to talk about that in a second. Okay. All right, so just hold, 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 hold that thought. All right, Medusa and Malia Hasaka were on the National Howard Stern Radio Show on October 22nd, promoting the convention, which wound up being nothing of note. I'm sure Howard was making his uh, standard lines at the time about the two of them, so probably well, trying to get them to kiss each other. You, uh, you know what I think would actually be interesting if it came up? Because she's talked a little about it. I wonder if conversation would have gone in the direction about uh, Medusa's unused Playboy shoot. Oh, if Howard knew that, but who knows? Right. Yeah. I'm saying if he asked something that would have led her in that direction, but I doubt it. Yeah. And now we can talk about this. John Reyes' convention itself, not the wrestling show, drew in the 500 range total, which made a major financial bomb to the tune of more than $30,000 in losses. So wait, 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 wait. Are we to assume that the convention drew like 380 on Friday, most or uh, drew in the 400 range on Friday, 
and then drew only 100 the rest of the weekend? Because I got to think that people who went to the wrestling show also went to the convention. That's what it's saying here. That's what the numbers Dave had. Those numbers don't make sense to me. There were that, there were not that few people there on the Saturday. I'm just saying that's what it said in the Observer. No, I know. I know, but you I, I agree with me, though, seeing off. Said. Yeah. I don't remember what the book said. Like, it's... I mean, he... I knew he owed money to people, and he claims that he ended up paying everyone back because he would always go back to this one radio station all the time, and, you know, he would work there for a while, and then he went to country music and blah, 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 blah. There's... He had an interesting life. I mean, he's still alive. But now he's friends with Vince Russo, so he's stupid. His life, his life's about to get more interesting. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> all right. So, anyway. Yes, but, oh, the, the other thing I was going to say as far as closing the loop on that, though, uh, the following year, he has, like, a little carve-out at a, like, baseball card show at the convention center, like, under the Nassau Coliseum where Cactus, Mikey, and Missy are there, plus a few, like, vendors, along with all the regular, like, card show stuff. And that's the last time he did it. But, I mean, just, I want, before we move on, I want to ask Mikey real quick. I mean, you haven't done conventions, but you've been a vendor. You've done a lot of autograph-related stuff. A, like, full-scale wrestling fan convention. I, I've I've actually been looking into it lately. Yeah, like, um, ha- what do you need to draw to make it at least break even, do you think? Uh, you need, like, it depends on, like, if we're talking 2021, okay, I'll, I'll give, like, real numbers because I've actually done the calculations, okay. You're probably going to be in about 25 grand because, you know, your big star is going to be 10 and then there's going to be the other 15 is going to be pretty much the other smaller but big stars, you know. And then your money is mainly going to be made by a like a super ticket if you can, like that's going to be like include all of the stars, and you're going to try getting people to buy that for you know hundred dollars or something. Are like you that. and you're and talking just, strictly about talent expenses, not venue or anything? I'm talking all in. Okay. I'm talking oh, you all, are okay. All, like, yes, yes. There's, uh, you know, there's. Yes, there's there's venues around here, especially that you could you know you could work that in and all that, and then uh, but you also got to take into consideration printing out the photos and finding photos, and uh, sometimes you have to license photos, you know, to be able to to use for something like that. But like you know, cert, certain people they have such crazy costs, especially during like this era. You know, like back then, like in the 90s, like I I heard that some of these prices like will blow your mind because they were so low. And uh, it's like it's it's insane just how how low they would go. But like, you know, there are certain stars that even three years ago were like five grand and now they're 15,000. And it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But you know, there's there's still money to be made because there's, you know, people are hungry for those autographs and and like if you could get you know a big star and charge you know forty dollars for a picture, forty dollars for an autograph, and then like a sixty dollar combo that adds up pretty quick. Yeah. All right. 
Indie promoter Dennis Coraluzo is now handling disability insurance for wrestlers and Lloyd's for Lloyd's of London. Well, that explains <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Blows my mind. <laughs> oh, look, oh, his day job was selling insurance. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, oh, I, honestly, I didn't know that. Like, oh, I, yeah. was, I, was, I was ignorant to that. So that's okay. That That actually does make sense. It's kind of, you know kind of fitting and he's clearly not the first one selling this to wrestlers he's clearly because you know i think animal's already in with his thing by this point he has to be yeah because yet he's stopped wrestling so he would have already had the policy Mm. so this is more dennis knowing he can sell it to wrestlers based on some of the other policies that are out there i think yeah pretty much here's the thing there you know, with what Lloyd's of London said they did and they insured everything and all that, the wrestlers were absolutely in the right to buy these policies and try to collect on them if they were permanently disabled from working again. The problem is that there were guys who tried to scam it. That's that's the problem. Which always happens, sadly. Yes, There's it's happening be because situation. it's... And especially because it's wrestling. It's, it's wrestlers yeah. running, you know... I was going to say running cons. It's wrestlers working, so to speak. So, of course, that's what happens, but... And the re- the real shame of it is everything that Bret Hart had to go through with them because of what everyone else did. Yeah. They would have given it to Sean pretty quick, I bet. <laughs> Probably so. All right, ECW, Eastern Championship Wrestling. TV on October 26th will enjoy Styles and that's more matches for November to remember. November 13th, including a shoot fight match. Between Kevin Sullivan and Iron Man Tommy Cairo. Sullivan did an interview previewing the match. Mr. Hughes did an interview. Bad Brain won a squash. Jason, the sexiest man in the world, did a segment promo- proposing to manage wrestlers in ECW. Rocket Rebel and Chris Michaels ended when Wild Man Sal Balomo attacked Rebel out of nowhere. What a fucking sentence that is. Paul Danielson did a lengthy interview about the Philadelphia Phillies losing the World Series. Talked about Shane Douglas' sensational share being on double secret probation. He drooled as he did invitations to Hawk and Terry Funk. Todd Gordon said Sal Balomo will fight Rock and Rebel in a non-sanctioned chairs match in November to remember. WF ECW did it first. Pat Tanaka, Paul Dimer, scheduled to face Don Morocco and Jimmy Snuggle, but were attacked by Public Enemy first. Styles announced Sherry versus Medusa for the November to remember. And Shane Douglas retained ECW title of defeating J.T. Smith. And yes, this is on WWE Network, folks. If you want to watch this spectacular, there's the only thing going through my head right now is just Dick Flair, because anytime <laughs> I think Shane Douglas, and also I had the biggest crush on Sherry, lifelong. Oh, uh, I mean, <laughs> Sherry was an entrancing character to say the least. That was she. She was uh, one of a kind in wrestling. So yeah, absolutely. A lot of a lot of young men. Uh, had crushes on Sherry, absolutely. But but like she came to IWA Mid South like when I was like in my early twenties, and she reminded me of my grandma, and that made me so sad. <laughs> well, we all we all get older as you as you're finding out now, and I'm finding out. Now. But she looks oh, like forty yes. then. I, yeah, I, but she lived the life of a yeah, seventy year old. Yeah, she. <laughs> it was yeah. I don't know, Bix. It was it was not a good day. To be Mikey that day. 
she 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 lived a hard life on the road, man. She was sweet as can be, though. She was so great. Oh yeah, I still have that autograph. Yeah, everybody loved her. She had lived a hard life. Galaxy Wrestling Federation in Tower City, Tower City, Pennsylvania, on October twenty third. We have special delivery Jones over Chris Evans, not the actor. Johnny Gunn and question mark. Tom Brandy, that jobber, and some other jobber. Beat Johnny Handsome and Abuda Singh. They hate Abuda Singh, Boo Bradley, Boss Mahoney, of course. Haiti Kid over Tricky Nikki. Mr. Hughes won a battle royal. Chris Candido over Flex Wheeler, not Flex Lavender. Kamala over Papa Shango by disqualification. And who's he? The clown? Steve Kern doing his doink gimmick over Mr. Hughes in the main event. Who's he, the clown? Wow. Uh, I, actually, Chris, I think you're wrong about Chris Evans. That that actually is the actor, Chris Evans. Oh, wow. I saw, I saw an interview on Access Hollywood where he talked about his legendary feud with Special Delivery Jones <laughs> uh, back in 93. So well, you I, stop. I, I, <laughs> sorry. That, of course, is Chris the Edge Evans of Monster Factory fame. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm, I'm confused. It's late, Bix. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so Galaxy Wrestling Federation. But who's he? The clown. I love that. Love that. Amazing. <laughs> what the heck? And also, it's not a uh, early to mid-90s Northeast India results without a tricky necky match. No. Or Flex Wheeler. I need I need some of those tapes. Kamala Papa Shango sounds like a weird match too. So. Also, I love that it's you copied and pasted the the Observer results for this one. Yes, which means that of course because it's Dave and it's Kamala outside the WWF, he spelled it Kimala as opposed to Kamala. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Just like uh, Coco Ware. K o k o c o c o. Yeah. Both the New York Daily News and Miami Herald, which was syndicated nationally on the Knight Ritter service, ran stories about the University of Miami defensive tackle Dwayne Johnson. Talking about him being the son of longtime pro wrestler Rocky Johnson. New York Times story didn't mention that he was the grandson of the late Chief Pierre Manavia, although it was emphasized in the Miami story. He claimed his uncles included Jimmy Snuka, the Head Shrinkers, and the Wild Samoans, which Dave doesn't believe would actually be blood relatives as much as spiritual. Johnson, who is six foot five, two seventy five, is a red shirt junior split time in, ro- in a rotating force from a defense tackle, and will likely someday end up in pro wrestling. Man, yeah, I'd say he did. That's interesting hearing about the young rock, you know. Yes, because yes, exactly. But Dave, once again, like no one gives a shit about Chief Peter Maivia outside of wrestling, like. When the Miami paper did. No, but they're talking yeah. about the family members is the point. Like, Yeah, I, I get that, but still, like... And Peter might be a big star in New York. Here's the thing, though, that you'll notice when you do newspaper research and stuff like I do and Vix does, is even though there's a national story on on something... There are versions that would appear in these papers that would be edited, truncated oh, versions. There are some weird edits of Wire stories sometimes. Yeah, yeah but like – but the other wrestlers like – and you are right with – you know, he was big in New York. But like you know, the boom period of wrestling that everyone remembers 
that you know a lot of like the average fan would remember they all know jimmy snooker they know this they know the samoans and stuff like that like they might not know you know they know rocky Jess, but they might not know peter maivia and i feel like if they're going to edit a name off that's the name that's going to go mm. uh, so i'll say I this mean, oh yeah no go ahead uh, now that you see how he was talking about the Samoan wrestling dynasty in articles when he's in college, I don't really blame all of the other Polynesian wrestlers for claiming that they were his uncles anymore once he became a big star. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the way they're, they all consider themselves family. No, I know, but remember how, like, when uh, when he really broke through, how, like, they were all very insistent, and you'd have Afa doing <laughs> interviews about his wrestling floor, he's like... Yeah, The Rock's my nephew, Jimmy Snook is my cousin, like, all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, they consider themselves family, and, like, uh, I believe Peter might have done, like, that one of those, like, Blood Brother ceremonies with Afensika, I'm not sure. He had done one with Nefmaiava, so they consider themselves, like, brothers. Um, but, but yeah, he's doing the same thing. It's the Daily News article actually does not have a picture of Dwayne Johnson. The only picture is of Jimmy Snuka. <laughs> and I got to read oh, this. Uh, this is the end of the article. I plan on taking athletics as far as I can, he said. If football doesn't work out, I'll go right into wrestling. It's in my blood. Besides, you can't wrestle when you're 50, 60 years old. How old is Dwayne now? He's not 50. Let's see. Oh, no, I think he's 50. No, he's not 50 yet. Presumably no? he's wrestling at either he's 49. He's 49. Oh, come on. So if he wrestles... I said he was at 50, so I'm right. Okay, so if he wrestles <laughs> at this year's WrestleMania, because his birthday's May 2nd, he'll he's be... He'll still be 49. He'll be barely... Yeah, yeah, he'll be almost 50. And if the match with Reigns or whatever they're doing is until the following WrestleMania, then he will be 50. Yeah, but the I'm, I'm it's sure a Rock. Is, I know, but he also had no idea. That's what I'm saying. Actor. How often is Rock? I mean, think about it. You look at the last twenty years of uh, Rock. I mean, Rock's wrestling schedule. I mean, he uh, he's talking about people that are wrestling full time. I know, I know. And now it gets even better, though. This is how the article ends. Ends. Johnson has even thought about a nickname. I'd probably call myself the Destroyer. He said. <laughs> Dwayne the Destroyer. That's good. Beat him. Beat him to the punch on that one. This sensational electrifying destroyer. I guess. I I mean it didn't matter. It would have worked. Yeah, but the rock would have won out in the end no matter what. It is what it is. So is he gonna be an actor the destroyer? No. Can't do it. The rock is a whole lot better in that regard, so he is kind of lucky that he ended up with a nickname that translated when he decided to use it as his actor name, too. Which was not necessarily what he wanted to do originally, either. Yeah. You know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Dwayne Johnson. Now, these days, he's really more just The Rock again. He is. Yeah, he is. He's The Rock. You don't hear Dwayne Johnson mentioned as much anymore as The Rock. So you're telling me a man a man named Ice T can get work, but if his name is Destroyer, he can't get work? Or Ice Cube? Destroyer is violent. Ice T could be violent if you, you know, 
Yeah, if, you spike, if you spike it, if you spike yeah. it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let, yeah, exactly. Well, Mikey had to step away again, so he'll be back for uh, WCW. But we're going, me and Bix are going to finish up the Indies here as uh, we go to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. We we'll start with Wade Keller, who has an interesting uh, thing here. Two years from now, it's going to be interesting to look back at the past two men who are linked together as similar talents of a similar generation. Both Jim Cornette and Paul E. Dangerously Heyman are young minds who have desires to be active on the promoting end of the business. Yet, despite their long list of similarities and career paths, they are very different people with, frankly, not a lot in common personally or philosophically. Both respect the other, but they probably could not work together in the creative capacity. Cornette is taking a retro-progressive position, trying to promote an organization based on old-style promoting with a modern twist. Heyman is leading an upstart promotion in a progressive traditional direction, promoting modern hip wrestling with respect for traditional angles in U.S. booking. If either or both are major players three years from now, they will set the pace for how wrestling is perceived into the next century. Huh. I mean, we definitely see what ECW you know, would do to the wrestling business in the next two to three years. But I mean, it's safe to say that as far as running a promotion and doing it like that, Heyman was more successful than Cornette was. But Cornette did not have to shut down the weekend he shut down. He did not have to. So it's not, it's not a one-to-one comparison. No, but but Smokey didn't become the major player. No. That Wade is thinking they had the possibility to here. No, but that wasn't. <clears> and, you know, and, 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 and you know, you think about it. If Smokey handles their relationship with WWF, like ECW handled their relationship with WWF, I wonder how different Smokey could have been. Because Smokey, I mean, their relationship with WWF was so open. I mean, with WWF name talent coming to these big shows, which what happens when you have WF talent showing up at these shows it makes your other shows not look special unless they have WF talent on those shows. So you're, you're hurting your local guys. Heyman, you know, he, I mean, the WF talent he had were guys who weren't being used and, and then he used them to a way better, um, capacity and WF did. So if, if Smokey would have took on that thing and just, you know, had like some WF mid-card, low-card guys and used them right, then Smokey might have done better business, you know? Because at least you're not conditioning the fans to skip certain shows. Exactly. Or, or thinking that, I mean, we... Ha- if the Steiners or Savage or whoever, you know, you can do that maybe once a year, once or twice a year, but they, they got to where they were doing it a little too much. You know, it was becoming too dependent. Yeah. Which ECW didn't never did. No. So yeah, it's interesting reading, you know, Wade's thoughts on Cornette and Heyman at this time. And, and really, and, and think about the. And here's what Day and Way's talking about. This isn't ECW. This is WWN, Heyman. This is what Way's talking about, not ECW. It's so both. That, He's booking both there, at well, this time, but yeah, but Way's specifically talking about WN. Yes. yes. 
So that that's interesting too in hindsight because it's ECW that Heyman, you know, becomes great at, at what he did, not WWN. So anyway, slow week with two spot shows, the only cards with as the only cards with no shows next week. No wrestling this promotion until November fourth until the Moon Dogs debut. Well, we have Whitewood, Virginia on October twenty second for a six fifty. Tim Warner over Dirty White Boy, Armstrong's over the Bruise Brothers, Rock and Rolls over Heavenly Bodies, Tracy Smothers over Brian Lee by DQ after Utah the Chain, and Smothers won a Battle Royal. Then October 23rd, in one of my favorite places to visit, Pigeon Forest, Tennessee, at the elementary school in front of 500 fans. Tim Horn over Dirty White Boy by DQ, Ricky Morton over Jimmy Del Rey, Robert Gibbs over Ron Harris by DQ, when Don Harris interfered, Scott Armstrong made the save, Steve Armstrong over Tom Pritchard, Tracy Smothers over Brian Lee by DQ. In an elimination match where the Rock and Rolls beat the Armstrongs, Bruce Brothers, and Heavenly Bodies, where the winner received $5,000. So, there's your house shows for the week. Um, Daryl Van Horn, uh, his m- mysterious Egyptian wrestler, uh, debuts on November 19th. All right. Um, so, there's that. I'm going to move this text down, Bix, to the actual clip. For this, because I don't want to screw you up. Alright. Thank you. Alright. Um correction from last week. Smoky Mountain isn't on Sports Channel America, it's on Channel America. I guess it's easy to get that confused, Bix. Do you agree? Sorry, I accidentally muted myself. Uh I guess you could confuse them. Yeah. They're Channel Americans. Uh, well, and especially if you don't know about Channel America. Which is not exactly the most high profile thing in the world. Yeah. All right. Smoky Mountain TV on October 23rd had Jim Cornette and Heavenly Bodies hold an in ring sit in until we found out who the mystery team was to find the Heavenly Bodies. Well, let's find out, shall we? Let's see who's going to face Heavenly Bodies coming up. With us right now, Jim Cornette and the Heavenly Bodies, a team you said that was going to take care of the Rock and Roll Express. We know who they are now, Jim. Well, let me just say this to you. Let me just explain something. The Rock and Roll Express have followed us to the World Wrestling Federation. They would follow us to the ends of the earth. They dogged us here at Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Every footstep that we took, they were right along behind us. So I decided to dog them a little bit. The Moon Dogs, the wildest, craziest tag team of all time. They will bring anything to the ring. They will do anything. They don't care what happens, whether they get fined or suspended or banned. It's happened all over the country, all around the world. All they want to do is chew the Rock and Roll Express up like a couple of yesterday's soup bones and get them out of my hair. Meanwhile, the Heavenly Bodies are going to be concentrating on the World Tag Team title, going to be concentrating on a lot of things going on in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and then once the Rock and Roll Express have been decimated and defeated, those belts will be lying there ready for the Heavenly Bodies to pick up. But the only thing that I'm upset about, I want to know... Who is this team that has requested a contract for television here today to take us on for the number one contender spot? I don't know any top tag team that's made any kind of move or gone anywhere. So I want to know who these Johnny-come-latelys are, some nobodies that think they're going to come in here and make a name and a reputation off of Jim Cornette's heavenly bodies. I want to know, and I want to know right now. You're going to find out, Jim, and you're going to find out soon enough. Well, I want to know right now. You're going to find out when you get into the ring who they are. Well, I ain't going to take that. I ain't going to leave. We I need to leave. know now, Bob. Yeah, yeah we want to know now. Get it off the 
You don't tell a sugar whore that's tough. We ain't going to leave. I don't care if you need to take a commercial. I don't care what you need to do. We ain't going to leave. We want to know now, Bob Cottle. Now. No, now. you're going to find out when you get in the ring. We yep. ain't going to leave. We're going to stay here through this commercial break. We're going to stay here. We're not going to leave. All right. Now let's go to clip number two. Pull another stunt like this, 
then I'm going to make sure that you're back there in one of those biker bars like I found you hanging out with all the white trash just like your stinking brother here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. Listen to me. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean to say something like that. I'm sorry I lost my head. I tell you what, I think it would be best. I believe it would be best if we went ahead and had the match like you say. And as a matter of fact, no tennis racket involved. Let's have the match like you say. And may the best team win, and I sure do apologize for what I said. Powder. And right into the eyes of one of the Bruise Brothers goes some kind of powder out of the pocket of Jim Cornette. Cornette quickly out of the ring, now got his racket back into the ring. The heavenly bodies, both of them, attacking the other Bruise Brother. And Dutch, they've gone with a racket. They're holding him down, and look at Cornette beat him as he flails away with oh, a racket. Oh, what a tennis racket by Cornette! Now, out of the ring they go. What a big Cornette now. right after this all right now i go to the second video that was that was a wow. wild time in that ring wow. i i don't know you you were right in the middle of everything wait stop the they're still destroying everything back there they're killing each other back there stop. well dutch wait what? a minute they say it's still going on and here it is hey, here the fight is still going between the Bruce brothers the body's out wait a minute they're working their way clear it out here they come Let, let's get the heck out of the way here dutch wait a minute we got guys wait a minute watch out they tearing all this equipment up, Bob. Right out here now. Over here at the desk. Watch out. Here they come to the desk, Dutch. We got several guys trying to get them apart. The trying to get them separated now. There goes the desk. Uh, heavens, Dutch, they're about to wreck everything. What bad blood is there between these? We got five or six guys now trying to separate them, trying to get them apart. Well, we got two separate. The Bob, we, we got two separate fights going on now. All around us, Dutch. And I tell you, we're in dangerous territory right now, too. Cornette, by the heavens alive, with that tennis racket. He wheels that thing like a bat. What a tremendous blow he lands with it. Bob, and we got going they're right going out, out the, the door, door into the parking lot. We can't quite they see from our right vantage point. The, right out of the arena, right out the door, and right out into the parking lot they go fighting. Well, our microphone cord prohibits us from going out there and exactly seeing what's happening, but they're in the parking lot. Our Smoky Mountain Wrestling blood cam is outside, and I just hear a lot of noise going on. Crawling in the dark, they're, basically. I can only get a glimpse of them out this door here, but it looks like they're out in the parking lot, and this... And this is a gravel parking lot here right next to the Smoky Mountain ring truck. And it looks like those Bruise Brothers are romping and stomping on the heavenly bodies out there. It is a wild scene. 
We had bodies laying all over this floor, Bob. Our desk is turned over. We're all a kilter here, so to speak. And they're still outside. Dutch, wait a minute. Let's try it. Let's try to get a word here with with the Bruins brothers. My heavens, all. Hold, hold on a minute. Give me this a step back. It's like we tell everybody we're the best in professional wrestling today, and nobody, but nobody, talks to the Bruins brothers and the like this. We might not be the best wrestlers, but by God, everybody knows. Can't nobody stand toe to toe with us in a final on Raw. And by God, Jim Cornette, you're going to learn that. And if I can keep my hands on you, I'm going to break you in a million pieces, boy. I mean, when it comes to reasoning for, for doing that turn, I mean, it, it all made sense. Yeah, it's too bad, though, that the new babyface tag team has Nazi tattoos, though. Well. Visible Nazi tattoos. In the Smoky Mountain world, there are a lot of uh, people that are sympathetic to their cause. Unfortunately, I guess. So, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were thought that they were the best team. They should be in the WF with... Uh, with Cornette, not the Heavenly Bodies. I mean, all that makes sense. It's, it's logical. So, yep, and the fans, fans got into it. So, yeah. By the way, I hope watching this, if anyone wants to look it up, will disprove the urban legend that they were bragging about the tattoos to someone who told them to talk to Heyman because he'd love it. Because. <laughs> they haven't worked for ECW yet. But, as you can see, they already have the SS tattoos. Yeah. Alright, also on Smoky Mountain, Dirty White Boy beat Larry Santo to retain the TV title. Tammy Fitch, Brian Lee, and Ron Wright came out. Wright was rambling about matches he had in the 60s. And, uh, yeah, he's he's got some issues going on. So let's go to one Ron Wright with Tammy and primetime Brian Lee. Right now with primetime Brian Lee, our heavyweight champion, legendary Mr. Ron Wright, Tammy Fitch. You know, the white boy, he's after that championship belt that's around your wrestler's waist. Do you realize that, don't you? You're aware of that? You know, Ronnie has been such a sweetheart. He's buying me all these gifts. He bought me diamonds. He bought me a new bracelet. He brought me new earrings. He's been such a sweetheart. But you know... We're not really worried about the dirty white boy because we know how to treat Roddy the way he needs to be treated. He's on new medication, and he's feeling better than he's ever felt before. Brian, what about this and the white boy? What about the white boy? What about the white boy? White boy, what are you going to do? What about it? What do you mean, what about white I don't care nothing about white boy. Let me ask. Let me, thanks, Brian. Let me ask Mr. Ron Wright. At least he cut a promo without saying his height. Do you miss the dirty white boy? You know, Bob, I've sitting here thinking about when me and my brother back many years ago, we we won that Tennessee State title. I can, uh, 
I can't remember whether it was in Johnson City, Knoxville, Memphis, or somewhere, but you know, I've really had some fond memories in this wrestling life. We've won them titles somewhere, and things has really been kind of out of focus, but winning them belts was some of the greatest highlights in my life, Bob. It's just uh, something that it's hard for me to remember and get all straight when it was and how it happened, but it was, it was something, I'll tell you. Uh, yeah, and I'll tell you another thing, you know, back in my career, it spread such a long time. I mean, I've won many titles, and I, I can't remember the dates and where I got them and stuff, but I'm telling you, it seems like things get jumbled up, and it's hard to kind of get everything straightened out, but due time, I'll get it straightened out and get the dates straight on it, and we'll try to get it worked out. Well, uh, gosh, I, I found out everything except whether or not he misses the dirty white boy. What about it? I think I want to go home now. Let's go home. Now let's go home. Oh, wait a minute. I'm taking you home. Come on, I'm taking you home. You don't want to go with him. Come on, Roger. Don't let him go. Don't let him go. Ron, you understand. All right, you two, you listen up. And you listen up real good. Either one of you two hurt this man any way, shape, form, or fashion, and there's going to be hell to pay. You understand me, Chuck? Well, fans, we talked about it before as primetime Brian Lee, Tammy Fitz, they take Ron Wright right out of the ring area, but we talked before the feelings that the dirty white boy has for Mr. Ron Wright, and evidently they are as deep as Dutch and I had talked about earlier, those feelings. We'll be back. We're going to have more right after this. They're drugging Ron Wright. Yes, and one of the best parts of this, too, you know, previously where the storyline had been with him before that, he's not even 55 yet. No, but, I mean, he's perceived as old. Yes, he is. Um, yeah. All right. uh, They are futzing with his medication. I think it was also, uh, how, wait, was it that they were drugging him or they were withholding important medication? Or was it both? They were drugging him. They, they gave him their own medication. They said that, so... Okay. Alright, next we get Tracy Smells of a Chris Comet. Maybe it's Tammy's Tips on Table Manners. Uh, I don't want to play it, so we'll skip that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daryl Van Horn. Yes, we talked about Daryl Van Horn earlier, and uh, he's promoting Prince Karis coming in, and yes, if we have Daryl Van Horn with Bob Cottle, we're definitely playing that. So let's go to the clip, shall we? All right, fans, with us right now, new to the Smoky Mountain Wrestling area, Mr. Daryl Van Horn. That's right, I'm back here in the Smoky Mountain area once again for the last time in a few weeks, here in the land of rednecks, white trash, and blue-collar scum. All the paperwork has been signed. The right palms have been greased, the backs have been rubbed. In fact, we're getting together a group of Nubian princesses to tend to my Egyptian prince's needs. And he's going to make his debut at the second annual Thanksgiving Thunder Tour, where he will change the face of Smoky Mountain Wrestling as we know it. In fact, we've got all kinds of things going on. We're putting together a harem for my prince right now, Bob Cottle. It includes Vanessa Del Rio, Nina Hartley, Amber and Ginger Lynn, Tracy Lords, the list goes on and on. You people had better start showing me and my man proper respect when he comes in here and makes his debut. You shut up, hillbilly. I want everybody out here to understand something. This man will change 
the face of Smoky Mountain Wrestling as we know it. All we need to do now is find the first victim. And you fat women over there yelling at me to shut up, get something through your heads. I will never leave because my absence would enrich the lives of the unfit, and I would never be that charitable. Fans, on that, let's go to the ring. Fans, this is your TV main event. How great is Jim Mitchell? <laughs> Vanessa Del Rio, Amber and Ginger Lynn, <laughs> Tracy Lords, Nina Hartley. Yes, he is a legend. God damn. How many times are you going to hear that on wrestling broadcast? Oh, man. About as many times as you're going to hear Felching the Family Dog. <laughs> Chris Candido beat Bobby Blades when the junior heavyweight title. Candido throw, about to throw the title belt in the river. Uh, Wade's analysis, the Bruiser Bay face turn was well executed. How the show? Pacing was up from last week's highlight show. Dutch Mantel and Bob Cottle continue to be excellent in getting across the desired points while being entertaining. Ron Wright's interview was entertaining and well done. Score of 76 on weight scale. So there you go. All right. Let's go to the USWA. October 23rd TV. Saw Mike Anthony and Jeff Gaylor beat PG-13 by DQ and Midget D interfered. The Midget was swung around afterwards. Promoter Eddie Marlin ruled that Anthony and Moondog Spike were tag champs, not Richard Lee's new Moondogs, so he was stripping the dogs and holding the tag tournament on Monday. Then we got Brian Christopher. Uh, in a heel-like interview, you can see he could trust Jeff Jarrett to be his partner in a tournament. Jared agreed to be his partner. Uh, we'll skip that. Uh, Christopher won a squash. was attacked by Doink and Reggie B. Fine. And Jeff Jarrett made the save. Well, we're going to play that. Doink and Reggie B. Fine. So let's go to the clip, shall we? For Brian, but look out. Reggie B. Fine and Doink the Clown both in the ring right now. Brian Christopher still smiling. Backs up. Here's Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. It's Jeff and Brian. And now Reggie oh. B. Fine and Doink the Clown are backing up. Oh, yeah. The fabulous one steps in there. There goes Reggie and Doink. And oh, yeah. Got him. Brian almost had his hands on Doink the Clown, but there they go. Reggie B. Leading the way. <laughs> All right, Jeff. They got it going over there. We'll say it is. Well, it looks like you're looking at the winners of the tag tournament because you can put together a WWF tag team, a USWA tag team, or one from each organization. It doesn't matter because there ain't a team, a team alive today that can beat Jeff Jarrett and Brian Christopher, and you can take that to the bank. You see what happened when Jeff and myself stepped in the ring 202? They took off running, didn't they? Well, that's what it's going to be like this week in that tag team tournament. Because I don't see anybody, I mean nobody, nobody from the WWF or anywhere else that can beat this two right here. So you just show up because you're looking at the new tag team champions, baby. I tell you what, as a team, they've got to be considered favorites, at least among the favorites, to take home the tag team titles. we got a lot more coming up from the USWA. Frank Morrell is climbing up into the ring right now. The best part about that was Corey uh, doing a fist pump at the at the end. He was he was so excited about Jeff and Brian teaming up together. 
You know, it really is a shame in a way that Jeff went to WWF when he did because Jeff and Brian could have been the Lawler Dundee of of that generation. Yes. Where they, they feud, they team, they feud, they team and just keep it going. And who knows what that could have done for business. I mean, Jeff obviously made the right career decision. I mean, he became a national star, but yeah, alternate universe, Jeff Hank stays in Memphis and him and Brian become new Lawler Dundee. What am I something? Yeah, I would have liked to have seen them do it more than a couple times they did. You know? Yeah. Especially since, you know, Brian was actually a pretty good baby face. Well, he's, yeah, I mean, he was a great baby face, great baby face and great heel. So, you know what I yeah. mean, though? Yeah, I, know I feel what like you they mean. would have gotten more out of him as a babyface than even they already did because of, because of the whole dynamic. Yeah. All right, Lawler said his part in the tournament would be the Red Knight. And then uh, Tony Adams came out and said she thinks Brian's out in like a goody two-shoes. Mm. Don't train touch, man. <laughs> but we've got a new woman heel coming in the territory named Sweet Georgia Brown. It was a few years back. A babyface built as Brick House Brown's sister at the time. Well, let's go to Reggie B. Fine, and uh, he's going to make the introduction of one sweet Georgia Brown. Not to be confused with the other woman in the territory who used to wrestle as sweet Georgia Brown. But not there. What do you want? <laughs> I got a surprise. I got somebody to put in my corner. I'm pretty. You know I'm pretty. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine and I'm pretty. I got somebody to be in my corner and find and put in me. And you know, buddy, just wait one minute. Let me go get it. Uh, Reggie, what are you doing? Uh, there again, he's delaying the whole thing here. Reggie, be fine. Don't tell him what Reggie comes up with back there. I know. Doomsday I and know. Boss Paul are leaving the area right here. Here comes Reggie back. Yes, that was a good take. You remember her, don't you? I've got some bad news for y'all low budget in Memphis. We're finna get rid of Miss Texas. We're gonna send her back to Dallas down there with that, that horse there with no tail, all that weed she got in her head. Y'all take a look at this specimen right here. She gonna be in me and Doomsday Corner. And Miss Texas. Shut up, baby. The Texas. real woman of Memphis is back. Always when needed. Sweet Georgia Brown is in the house. Yes. Georgia Brown, brought out by Reggie B. Fine. She's going to be in your corner in the tournament. Is that what I hear? Yeah. And everywhere I go, you're going to see this. And Miss Texas, she can go. Now we take that man on back down to Dallas. Miss Texas, Miss Texas is not going to just back up and go away. I tell you. Now, let's go to break. We'll be right back. Ah, yes, good old Reggie B. Fine. <laughs> well, he did not like this show. So the show feels sort of achieving purpose in several areas, including Lawler giving away that the, his red knight would be no big deal after not dropping any hints to his identity. Christopher's continued turn seems forced, weak, and nonchalant. Lawler's interview was below par. Production values for the Monday call CM Cliffs were lower than usual because Kevin Lawler ran the camera when the usual operator no-showed. Score 38. Eesh. So... There's that. Um, Kim Wayne and Danny Davis are back in as the American Eagles. So there's that. 
the Memphis Commercial Appeal on October 24th ran a feature story on Lawler. The story noted that Saturday Live Memphis television show is still the highest rated wrestling show in the country, drawing a 14 rating. The story said Lawler dropped his sports talk show on WMC TV because it was in the same time slot as WF Superstars on another station. He said he expected to wrestle for at least another five years. He also said no matter what, that he won't work Thursdays for WF in the summer because he plays softball that day and won't work Sundays in the winter because he plays touch football, which explains why he's been working the Friday and Saturday night shows, but not the Sunday cards. You see where Sid gets it from. (laughs) Sure. But did you know that was the reason why the Jerry Lawler show ended? Yes, because I've read this article before. Yeah. It would end because he was competing against himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is something interesting in the article that I'm going to mention because of how it's written, okay? And this is fairly deep into this article, which is about his artwork and stuff, okay? So, here's what it says. Uh, let me make sure I'm starting at the right place here. Okay. So, we go with a Lawler quote, um... I think it's more a sense of accomplishment because I do get the same type of feeling when I do a painting or a piece of artwork that turns out really well, you know, relative to, you know, wrestling success or whatever. Uh, He said, it's the feeling I can do something as well or better than anyone else. Ah, yes, the painting. A recent example are the wall-sized paintings he's done for a friend of his, Stacy Carter, who owns a hair salon on Raleigh Lagrange Road. He has done 12 paintings of women and one man, soon to be joined by a second man, in the Art Deco style of the late Patrick Nagel, the Playboy magazine artist who died in 1984. Hadn't he been with Stacy for like five years at this point? Um, uh, something like that. How kayfabe was their relationship? Very. Uh, read into that what you'd like, I guess. So, yeah. All right. Um, one night tournament for the tag titles on October 25th from 1,100 fans at the Mid-South Coliseum, which ended up with Jeff Jarrett and Brian Christopher versus Jerry Lawler and Red Dye as the finals. The match started scientifically, but soon Christopher pulled trunks. When the ref asked Jarrett if he did it, Jarrett lied and said no. Both teams started brawling from that point on, and Jarrett ended up using the chain that Christopher gave on him to Lawler for the pen. Del Rios was the Red Knight and will be one of Lawler's partners in the Survivor Series. Interesting that is, is that in the first round when Lawler and Knight wrestled Reggie Fine in Doomsday, the Black Knight for Survivor Series, Glenn Jacobs, was under hood as Doomsday. Of course, it talks about the titles being vacated. All right, the results a little eagle over Midget D, Sweet George Brown on Miss Texas. PG's 13 over American Eagles. Moondogs over Jeff Gaylord and Mike Anthony. Lawler and Red Knight over Doomsday and Red to be fine. Jarrett and Christopher over Doink and Coco Beware. And Doink here is played by Steve Lombardi. Lawler and the Red Knight over Moondogs. Jarrett and Christopher over PG's 13. And Jarrett and Christopher over Lawler and Knight to win the tag titles. Yeah. So, here's that. At one point during the card, Coco Beware also hit Miss Texas with a chain. And she did a stretcher job and called her a USWA tramp. Wow. Uh, by the way, yeah. was it ever formally determined who the three knights were? Um, Terry Funk was one of them, wasn't he? That was the rumor going into the show, and apparently was something that was planned. 
Like, I know there's the one that people thought was either Jacobs or Gaylord. Jeff, Jeff Gaylord, Greg Valentine, and Barry Horowitz. That sounds right. But then sometimes we've heard it was Glenn Jacobs and not Jeff Gaylord. Well, at this point in time, there ain't much of a difference, so there you go. And by the time the match happens, they're artifacts who are teaming with Michaels instead of Lawler. Yeah, because of Lawler's legal issues, yes. Now, Tony Adams missed the Miss I Call CN show and probably got her stomach pumped, but was back in action a few days later. So there's that. That's Dwight ominous. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Doit the Clown's always been Steve Lombardi, not Matt Bourne. They stayed here last week. And Doit and Shawn Michaels added to the mix drew two good crowds and one bad crowd at Small Towns last week. Shawn's working here because he's on his sabbatical from WF. At this point in time. So there's Memphis. All right. Rob Russell's IWA ran shows this weekend with Barry Horowitz winning the U.S. title using the infamous ringside photographer shooting the fire finish on, from Preston Steele on October 23rd in Champion, Ohio. Steele regained the title the next night in Warren, Ohio. Where in front of 375 fans, we had T.C. Reynolds over Cy Youngblood, Scott Summers over Ron Cumberland by Countout, Preston over Horowitz, Little Chucky over Irish Leprechaun, Leprechaun won about a royal, and Bushwhackers over Lord Zoltan the Psycho Mike. That's, That's not Anthony Durante, is it? No, I don't think so. No, it can't be. He's in Germany. No, excuse me, Gary Wolf, I meant. I don't think so. Pitbull Psycho Mike at one point, wasn't he? I mean, could be. It's possible, I guess. It's getting late. I'm getting tired. I, I mixed <laughs> up the Pitbulls in a way I shouldn't have. Um, I don't know. Two things I see here... One is that I think Preston Steele was always the IWA US champion. Or was it Intercontinental yeah. previously, too? Yeah, something like that. And the other thing I think of with Preston Steele is, of course, this is America. In America, we work light, not <laughs> stiff. Light, <laughs> not stiff. Who do you say that to? Uh, Sam Panico, Shirley Doe. No, I mean, he said, no, excuse me, he said it to Koji Katow in front of Shirley Doe. And then Koji Katow turned to him and said, like, can you at least ask if I spoke English? And then Katow gave him an Uranagi and separated his shoulder. <laughs> Sounds like Katow, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. All right, let's go to this. Another unique game match was on October 22nd in Mount Washington, Kentucky for Tri-State Wrestling. Mike Samples agreed to wrestle the local sheriff. Shot Dooley. What a name. Blindfolded. After Samples put on the blindfold, the sheriff got into the ring, but with him was Nightmare Danny Davis, who actually wrestled the match. I don't think the sheriff did was help Davis as he put on a Boston Crab finisher. Well, that's cute. Yes. I wonder if he's any relation to Norm Dooley. Possible. All right, um, Mount Washington, Kentucky, on the 22nd. We have Dan Childers over the Texas Hangman, Jerry Faye in the hood. Gigolo Joe over Todd Morton. Staples over Day Davis. The Ballroom Brawlers, Doug Vines and Troy Haste, not Jeff Sword, over Bill and Steve Marino. George Weingroff working out the sheet, beat Moondog Spot, and then the Sheriff over Mike Samples. And in Central City, Kentucky, the next night, Billy Joe Travis over Chris Michaels, Moon Warrior over New Dog, Psycho Sam over K the Kentucky Trapper, Mr. Clyde over Dan Seals, 
Man Man Pond, though, and Tommy Sledge over Dr. Feelgood and Eric Fontaine. And Mike Sables and Dan Shannon over the Bounty Hunters. So, Dr. Feelgood and Eric Fontaine, huh? That's a mixed bag of talent there. Yeah. And is this a Mike Samples promotion? I would guess he's part of it, yeah. Is this maybe what becomes uh, KCW? Possible. Tokiana Championship Wrestling? I don't see any uh, Flash Flanagan, but otherwise it fits. Well, we're about to talk about him. The second championship WrestleMania show drew uh, on October 21st drew reported 847 fans and a $4,000 gate. Although one hand counter report this to the crowd at 450. Headlined by a three and three quarter star match with Tracy Smothers, who Dave was told was a super heel, beating Rod Price when heel manager Freddie Fargo, or when who told Dave that, hit Price with a loaded cast. The match lasted nearly 30 minutes. Ironic as Fargo's Price is manager on Texas Indie shows. Rex Hargrove, a former Memphis State University football star, only asked about one week of Smoky Mountain because he was so green. Surprised everyone having a good match at primetime, Brian Lee. Their main event on the 28th was to have Lee and Smothers, who are feuding with S- in SMW, work as a heel tag team against Todd Morton and Chris Michaels, who are being pushed as a Rock and Roll Express type tag team. All right, results. Chris Michaels over PC Austin. Star and a half. Sonny Rogers over Johnny Mercedes. Two stars. Todd Morton and Chris Michaels over Flash Flanagan and Mike Samples, Bix. Uh, two and a half stars. There's Flash. Eric Fontaine over Mr. Clyde, one star. Bradley over Rex Hargrove, three stars. And Smothers over Rob Price, three and three quarter stars. Pretty far ago, huh? I mean, it's Makes possible sure. he didn't send the stuff in. It's the Observer, not the Torch. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. I wonder what he thought of Chris Bruce. <laughs> Who knows? All right, Global Wrestling Federation returned to Dallas on October 24th with a tape from a card held six weeks earlier. So there's that. They're back. Stephen Dane and Chaz Taylor are now being called the Skyliners. Yes, they were matching tie-dye tights. That's the name of a doo-wop group from the uh, late 50s, too, I think. So there you go. All right, Sportatorium, October 22nd. 685 fans, 92 pay. As Mike Davis beat Black Bart, Ice Mickey Parsons over Johnny Longhorn, Rod Price over Bigfoot Sanders, the Canadian Lumberjack match, Chris Adams with WDQ and Killer Tim Brooks, and Steven Dan and Chaz Taylor beat Vito Mussolini, oh, and Guido Falcone, oh, by disqualification. Meanwhile, in Big D on the 24th, they drew 122 fans for Alice Porto over Chuck West. Black Bart and Wobble Irwin teamed up with Scott Braddock and Gary Young and Rob Price to be Terry Sims, Action Jackson, Mr. Mr. Mike Davis and Chris Adams in an elimination match. And Mr. Mr. be Black Bart, Chris Adams over Scott Braddock, Terry Sims over Gary Young by DQ, Action Jackson and Wobble Irwin by DQ, and Mike Davis over Rod Price. Do we think that's 122 paid? <laughs> yeah, that's 122 people there, so I don't know. Not, none of it. Nobody's doing good in Dallas. No. I, it, not at it's all. doing so bad that uh, Big D has to focus on running Big D and not working on his Big D shows. Yeah. No. Yeah. Chantry Wrestling USA in Portland, October 23rd. We have CW Burster member Nick Danger. That reminds me. We once had a uh, representative for one of our bread companies 
his name, and I'm not lying about this, his name, and it was his real name, was Rick Danger. Hmm. I, thought that was cool. I thought that was cool as shit. Rick Danger. Uh, Carl Pope over Sumito. Larry Oliver over John Rambo. And Bruiser Bryan over Lou Andrews by a count out. That's a very CWUSA show. And speaking of Pacific Northwest, from the torch, former GWF announcer John Craig Johnson Horton has accepted a position with KSTW-TV Channel 11 in Seattle as a backup sports anchor and producer of the NBA Seattle Supersonics television product. And he's been in the Seattle area ever since, hasn't he? Yeah. Or, or did he or did he move back to the East Coast recently, maybe, now that I think about it? Well, he was there for many years. Yes, so. he was there well into the 2000s, at, at a minimum. Absolutely. Even did a... Um, his production company did commentary on it, too. Uh, he did taping for Pinnacle, like a pilot taping, when they were running. If I remember right. Yeah. So, yeah. I think he still has his production company, right? Uh, I guess. I haven't flying seen Flying Colors, I, I think, right? I haven't seen him around in a while, so I don't know. I see him on Facebook, doing stuff on Facebook from time to time, but I also don't really look at Facebook that much. Yeah. All right, let's close out with World Championship Wrestling. Dave Meltzer. How is it impossible to put together a show where from bell to bell the match quality is the highest of any pay-per-view show since February and it's topped off by arguably the best match bell to bell of the year in this country and still have only be a marginal thumbs up? Answer? Have Dusty Rose book the finishes. More on that later. But based on phone calls, despite the fact that thumbs up, thumbs down numbers would indicate something of a diversity of opinion, the responses are almost all uniform, going something like this. Match quality was very good. Man, event was incredible. But the worst finish of all. The finishes were so bad, it may or would have been a thumbs down show if not for the main event. Or in a few cases, even the main event could have said the show because of the, all the finishes. They loved the show because he thought 78 matches were good, which is more than you pay for either WF or WCW to law tie. The work in the main event deserves all the superlatives to be receiving. But one can't argue with any of the complaints by those who didn't like the show. When you do unrealistic screwjob finishes in every match, then none of them are going to work except to turn off fans from repeat business. After years of declining and erosion of this business in this country with screwjob finishes, one of the leading culprits, one would think someone would wake up to see the former promotions that are thriving by doing clean finishes and how they turn their companies around when adopting that policy. Screwjaw finishes did work in building the return matches in the 70s, but hadn't worked in years. Because everyone who has tried to copy the formula of the 70s has failed miserably, and the only companies that have been successful are those who have created a new formula. Maybe screwjaws on occasion, when incorporated into a product with 90% clean finishes, would still work today. Drawing money because there would be something different, but we'll never know at this rate. All that we do know is that when done with regularity, they serve no purpose other than long-term erosion of product interests. That can be pointed out not just in WCW, but in several other companies and in several other countries that are still booking behind the ties fashion and are steadily following WCW's path to oblivion when it comes to house show attendance. Halloween Havoc took place in New Orleans Lakefront Arena. The show drew 6,000 fans, about 3,000 of which was paying the buildings lit up for 8,500 capacity. Although the paid crowd and gate was small in a fall brawl in Houston, it was far more lively, which made for a much better atmosphere. All right, just uh, let me interject for a second here. 
Mm-hmm. I somewhat disagree with you, Dave, uh, regarding the the screw finishes to come back. But the problem with this was that there were so many of them. That was the problem, is that there was just too many on this particular show. I mean, most of the card was just, you know, count out or disqualification. There was just a lot of that stuff. So no. you, can't do all, you can't do all of them, but some of them could still work. I mean, well, if you're going to do a screw, here's the thing. It's like, it's like um, if you got your guys to go out in the first match and they go out there and just do all this wild and crazy shit and this, that, and the other. I mean, now nowadays it's kind of different. But for many years, I mean, they go out and do all this wild and crazy shit in the first match. You kind of have set a tone and, and, you know, you get these guys come on later in the show. They can't do so much. It's kind of it's going to hurt their chances of maybe getting a response. I mean, times have changed in that regard because now we have shows now where every fucking match is crazy as shit. But I mean, it's that it's why it's mainly why for forever and ever and ever wrestling was about let's start with our opening match and build the card up as we went along. You know, you have promoters that said, listen. You these you cannot do these certain moves because they are protected for the guys that later on the show, the main event guys. Not everybody can do this. Now, I mean, that's completely out the window. But I mean, it's 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 the same thing with finishes. If you if you were doing a, a whole card of screw job finishes, then you know, it means the impact of the screw job finish that you want to do in your main match is gone away because you've done so much. You numb the crowd to it. Uh, and as Chris will explain in just a minute here, uh, with this show, they definitely did not start hot. Because oh, no. it, could, it, it could only go up from there. So why don't you go ahead and start that? Well, thank you. I sure will. All right, Ice Train, Shopmaster, Charlie Norris, <laughs> the Harlem Heat Equalizer, Dave Sullivan, and 945 when Master, one <laughs> member of Heat. <laughs> yes, Harlem Heat job to the, their master. But a bear hug fall into a power slam type move. For the safe review on the road, the other member of Heat was standing there right in front of the finish, trying to figure out how not to break up the bear hug with no baby face keeping him from doing so. But match is fine, uh, much better than it looked to be on paper. But it looked scary on paper. Except when Equalizer was in the ring. Post-match brawl with Shotmaster and Equalizer was awful. One star. And we probably should say, just so no one gets any false impressions about Dave here, they had not done a good job distinguishing Kane from Cole of Harlem Heat at this point. Yes, this is that era. They're not Booker T and Stevie Ray on WCW yet. They're still Kane and Cole, correct? Also, I had completely forgotten that Fall Brawl was in Houston meeting their first big high-profile matches. Harlem Heat was in their hometown of Houston. Yes, WCW, everybody. <laughs> oh, we got more of that. Well, and, and they would chant Houston problem... Heat at them at house shows in Houston, too. Yeah. And what Dave doesn't understand was there's a lot of pretty girls in the crowd back then. So maybe that's why he didn't interrupt that bear hug, because he was looking at a pretty girl. That happens. He's just a human being, Dave. It's very possible. Paul Orndorff replacing Yoshi Kwan, who blew out his knee about 11 days before the show, beat Ricky Steamboat by a count out. So that means we almost got Chris Champion and Ricky Steamboat in a pay-per-view match. That's uh, bullshit! He sure is. First, <laughs> series of really good matches with lame finishes. The Assassin was Paul Ondor's manager with no interview explaining it, no reason given. 
Yeah, that shows you how short li- live that was because he just starts up here with Orndorff and uh, to- Naomi Havoc. Good action throughout with lots of nice air falls towards the end. Finally, Steamboat hit a crossbody, but Assassin distracted the referee. And by the time he turned around, Orndorff kicked out. Steamboat got several deer falls at the shoulder blocks. Steamboat threw the ref out of the way, but mischarged Orndorff and sailed to the floor. Assassin then loaded the mask, headbutted Steamboat, who's counting on the ring three and a half stars. Why? Yes. Are, are we talking about Yoshi Kwan? Because someone in WCW Creative watched the, the legendary film Short Circuit, and they came up with a a gimmick. Um, yeah, I mean, well, okay. Mortal, is Mortal Kombat out yet? Yes, it is, 1992. So, I, I mean, I always thought that Yoshi Kwan was a rip on, on Raiden of Mortal Kombat. Uh, that's, that's what I always thought. Either hmm. way, like, can you imagine someone trying this now? Boy, would that no. be so bad. No. <laughs> yes, a, a non-Asian uh, doing his eyes to look Asian and, and doing the stereotype gimmick. Oh, yeah, that would go over swimmingly in today's wrestling climate. <laughs> oh, yeah. my goodness. Also, so wait, wait, Mikey, are you saying that Chris Champion is the Fisher Stevens of professional wrestling? I am saying that, yes. Uh, and uh, I did that, try... That he was I, the injury, Stevens, a professional. I, I actually tried booking Chris Champion, like, right when I started BLP. And uh, he passed away shortly after that, unfortunately. But, yeah, I definitely wanted Chris Champion on the roster. Uh, but one thing I do want to talk about this, man. 1993, Paul Orndorff. What a awesome wrestler. He was still oh, he great. Was fantastic. Yeah. Oh. As a character, as a performer, that was a great year for Paul Warndorf. Absolutely. Yeah, what, how come How come when Hogan was there, I, I was thinking about that. You guys had a different show recently. I'm sorry I'm going on a small tangent. Why didn't they do Orndorf and Hogan at all? It, it, it boggles the mind, doesn't it? it really I mean, does. like, you had it right there, and Orndorf looks so great, too. Yeah, I mean... And I like Orndorff and the Assassin as a pairing. I, I, well, I love the Assassin. So anytime the Assassin gets gets on TV, I'm down. So, yeah, I mean, Orndorff was, was really damn good. I mean, it started the year earlier in Smokey. He got his groove back at Smokey and then yep. brought it to WCW. All right. Uh, next, we get a battle of Brits as Lord Stephen Regal went to a 15-minute draw with Davy Boy Smith. So Regal retained the TV title. They worked European style early, which is really good, as David did a lot more and a lot of different maneuvers than he usually does. He's actually quite agile for his weight, but in a lot of matches, never shows it. Regal was great doing the mat wrestling, although fans in this country really don't comprehend what he's doing. The finish was supposed to be Smith doing a power slam at the bell. However, the timekeeper told him they had 10 seconds left when Smith picked Regal up for the move, but then announced 20 seconds left over the house mic. So Regal had to kick out. That'd be so everybody. They provide mm-hmm. a driver at the bell, near fall, two and three quarter stars. Yeah, Warlord was watching it at home and saw him kick out, and he's like, that son of a bitch. <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought the the Regal Davy was a natural, natural uh, rivalry, and it brought something out of Davy that we hadn't seen for Davy. Yeah, that's because Regal made him work, man. He he you know, he rode him hard in this one, and it was just and Davy was hanging in there. Like, this is uh, WCW like 93 Davy Boy Smith I thought was awesome because like I feel like he thought 
you know, with his firing that, you know, he had to go to WCW and kind of prove something. And I, I think he did. I, I enjoyed his matches, almost all of them. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a much needed change for him to get out of the WF to get with a whole bunch of different people, new people, new setting. I, I liked him and staying together as a team. So yeah, I thought it worked well. Next, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. Cause if you really think about it, like, of all of his notable matches from that year, he has a pretty good batting average as far as good matches. So, yeah. yeah. You know, the, I think the Vader series is pretty underrated. I really like those matches. You know, of course, he works well with Regal for the reasons that were already discussed. Um, The Rude stuff, where you know, right before he leaves isn't as good, but that's because Rude is not the old Rick Rude anymore. Um, oh, he was a shell. I forget. I feel like there's something I'm forgetting. I mean, you know, there's, well, Masters of the Power Bomb is part of the Vader feud, I guess. I feel like there's something. Cheatum. Yes, Cheatum, the evil dwarfing person. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Dustin Rose retained the U.S. title beating stunning Steve Austin in 1423. The graphic listed Austin as being managed by Colonel Parker. But Parker wasn't with him, and the graphic was about two weeks ahead. WCW, everybody. By normal standards, it was a good match, but heat was lacking, and these two had tons of better preview matchup more than a year ago. After seven near falls, Austin got a pin with his feet on the ropes. Referee Nick Patrick ordered the match to continue as Austin went to lift for the belt. Dustin schoolboyed him for the pin. After the match, Austin hit Dustin with the title belt and Dustin Juice, two and three-quarter stars. This, to me, showed that Dave Meltzer anti-Dustin Rhodes uh, that he always had forever for no reason because he said, like, the heat was lacking. Like, I don't know what match he was watching, but it wasn't this one because there was definite heat throughout the whole thing. And, like, Dustin Rhodes from, like, 91 on was awesome all the time. He was like, hey, I'm going to be awesome, and he just stayed that way. And Dave's like, uh, you know, his match was okay. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, all these matches were great. Yeah, we, we've gone over it, you know, in the Patreon shows, the whole thing with Dustin. But, but yeah, and, but, and these two would have another match at uh, Starcade. Yes. Which was uh, another fun match where uh, the lights went out. But, uh, yeah. Two I mean, out of three falls, right? Yeah. So, uh yeah, I mean, Dustin and Austin always had fun fun matches. They, I mean, they were together in 91. They had stuff in 92, 93. I mean, yeah, they, they were. They and, were really... and in uh, when when Austin won the title, Vince McMahon was like, and your opponent, Gold Dust. I'll never forget that either. Yeah. But anyway, there and you Dustin go. Dustin needed this feud after the rude feud went on for way too long. Oof. Oh, yeah, that, that drug for sure. All right, next we get the Nasty Boys regaining the WCW Tag Titles, beating Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Tuchel Scorpio in 1436. Scorpio stood out with his acrobatics and flying moves, including the move where he dove off Bagwell's back onto, into a tope on both Nasty Boys. Early in the match, Bagwell kissed Missy Hyatt. Missy then slapped Bagwell when they got him in trouble. Bagwell did a great job selling for seven minutes to making a hot tag. Scorpio got a hot near fall with a moonsault. At this point, both Hyatt and Teddy started getting tangled up in the apron with ba- Sags and Bagwell. Bagwell rammed Sags and Missy's head together. Scorpio, Scorpio splashed on knobs. Sags took up his boot and Scorpio with it. 
Roll knobs on top of the pin. Very good match, but have you noticed that every Nasty Boys victory has the same exact finish? Three and a half stars. Which is it's, it's up because the title change, <laughs> you know, was on the, the Saturday night, but right before this show. Yep. Where Bagwell and Scorpio won the belts. And we're going to play that later. But um, yeah, here, I mean, very quickie title change here. Yes. And. Not the last time they would do that with Bagwell at Halloween Havoc. No, no, they it's do not. Literally the same thing with Stars and Stripes the following year. And M- Missy had every right to smack him. Right, he he forced himself on her, and then and then he rammed her head because he got mad that you know that uh, she ignored his advance, so he he rammed her head. Uh, into Jerry Sags. That's Marcus Bagwell. What a, what a criminal! <laughs> Sage say he won't be on any black label shows, will they? Uh, no, no. He does text me though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he does. All right. Uh, next we get Sting over Sid Vicious in 1041 to remain the franchise. <sighs> Okay, what title means anything if you've already got two different world champions? A Battle Bowl champion upcoming and two other singles titles, yet the franchise match involves two wrestlers with no titles. This is very much better than their 1990, this is 91, but 1990 Havoc main event and a lot better than expected. Vicious sold a lot early and they brought to the crowd. After Sting was distracted by Colonel Parker, Sid gave him a choke slam to gain the advantage. Vicious took control and used a chair shot and dropped Sting throw first to the guardrail. Fans to chant at this point, Sid, Sid, which announcer said on the air were chants for Sting. Sid slowed it down with long bear hugs. Sting came back with two stinger splashes. At this point, Parker wound up looking, grabbed two legs, which he thought were Sting's, but actually one leg of beach. He held on to Sid's leg harder, and Sting had Sid pinned, but he kicked out. As Sid and Parker argued, Sting came up from behind with a rolling reverse cradle, two and three quarter stars. Yeah, as far as Sting and Sid matches goes, I mean, this was probably the, the best match you could probably get out of these two. Yes. And it's all setting up the potential Sid babyface turn. Well, yeah, I mean, they're they're clearly going in the direction. And, like, and if he's about to turn face, a loss isn't going to hurt him because it doesn't matter. They have to explain why he's exactly. turning face. Exactly. And Parker's screwing him over. So yeah, and, and losing the Sting is never going to hurt you. It doesn't oh. matter who you are. But how about them billing this as being the match to be the franchise of WCW? Nick Flair. <laughs> Even though these guys don't have titles. Yeah, that, that's the that that is the interesting one that Dave, you know, is talking about here. So Yeah, but still I feel like he's just picking it apart for no I mean, they they did that so the match had a reason, you know, like the that's all they had to say was like, "Hey, I'm you know I'm the franchise player." I'm, now they have a reason they're fighting instead of just fighting cold. It's well, they've been they've been kind of feuding, all, you know. In yeah. Different- oh, I know the Cheatham and all that. I know, but I'm still like it's still just like they're just adding a little. They're sprinkling a little, a little uh, magic to make the match a little more special. I don't but, I don't have but, any issue with it. But Sting was considered the franchise, so yes, there's, there's your hook. Yeah, and then. And, of course, the big heel's trying to say, hey, I'm the franchise. And that's, you know, that's what a heel does. Mm-hmm. The Millennium Man. Hang on, that's later. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. All right. Uh, now we get the first of our world title matches. 
Rick Rude retained the now officially re-recognized World Heavyweight title, beating Ric Flair by DQ in 1922. This match had two referees, one of which was Terry Taylor. His referee shirt was supposed to equate his babyface turn, although Dave doesn't think most people got it. Earlier in the show, Taylor did an interview pretty much saying that he's changing his ways. Also earlier in the show, announcement was made that the international promoters of WCW recognized Rude's title as a World Heavyweight title, so the title is now valid once again. This was made the fans at the home think this company lacks any long-term thought process, not to mention how this rescinding a title's validation and then giving it back so easily makes all the titles in the promotion look bogus. A lot better than last month's match. Very good with Flair doing very little of his normal routine, but with the worst finish thus far in the show. Flair started fast and got the figure four on in two minutes, but Rude made the ropes. Flair continued to work over the leg until Rude went to the floor. Rude continued selling for a long, long period of time, making the earlier damage seem realistic. After a double bump over the top, Flair came off the top rope to the floor with a punch clothesline. Flair tried a second time, but Rude caught him with a punch to control. Once in the ring, Rude came off the top, but his knee buckled and he sold it, but still maintained the advantage using his patented several-minute camel clutch. Flair made a comeback, hit the Rude Awakening at 16.54 near fall. Flair came off the top, but Rude got his feet in Flair's face. Flair came back with chops. And then we had two ref bumps. And this is where we'll pick it up. So let's go to the action here, Bix, uh, if you're ready. So, Boy, both men have given it. They're all rude. Flair kicks out. Now Terry Taylor's going to get in the ring. Thank goodness for two referees here. And Terry Taylor's going out of the oh, ring. Christ. Taylor goes down. Oh. No. He's got the foreign object again. Back suplex. There you see it.
Hogan gets the belt back and leaves town. And he should get it back. What a wild one we've just seen. Rude retains his World Heavyweight Championship. He will go on tour to the UK and Germany with that World Heavyweight title. Well, fans, this Halloween... <laughs> so, we have the photographer at ringside get pick up the Nux on camera, then throw, throws them to Flair... And that's what Flair used to, to put Root out. Terry Taylor was the one to make the count, but Pee Wee Anderson stopped him because he saw what went on. Which is, isn't it something that this this finish happened in a Ric Flair match and Ric Flair's not the one that's the heel in all this? Getting saved? It, it was just so overbooked. Like the, it was, the whole ending was so elaborate. They actually tried getting uh, Terry Taylor to referee the opening match, but he said there was a couple reasons why he didn't want to. I don't know what that was. <laughs> well, I'm sure he was excited to referee a Ric Flair match, Bix. Yeah, of course. You mean because he wishes he was the only wrestler trained by Ric Flair? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was discovered by Ric Flair. So there's that. He's no Wallace Tanfield Lane. <laughs> but... I mean, Bix, what were your thoughts on that whole finish? How it came off? What the fuck was that? <laughs> that was—it's not a, that. That's not a, you know, that's not a WCW finish. No, that that's that's a Memphis, you know, that's a Memphis type finish. That's not a WCW finish. It, it, just the way they played it up came off very cold, just bad all around. And the fans are like, what? And then they did the bullshit chance, which, by the way, I think, I'm curious what Mikey thinks, but I think he'd agree with this. I can't think of any time I ever heard the bullshit chant where it was actually heel heat. Oh, I mean, they, they were, they were not happy. They were not happy with what happened. It was in like, boy, could that like have been helped with a ringing bell? Because they did not ring the bell on that. And it just kind of like, it felt really flat because like, you know, like imagine being in the cheap seats and just seeing the referees kind of argue and then just raising Rickard's arm, like without a bell, like it just, it's just the little details, but I still love WCW. Oh, yeah, cool. Everybody. That's right. And Michael Buffer standing there as Rick Rude uh, tries to kidnap Fifi. And notice how Rick Rude, like, did his thing where he put Fifi's crotch up at, almost to his face. as a, a precursor to what he would do with Francine in ECW some four years later. So there you go. I mean, that's one way to put that, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, the main event's next. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Vader won a Texas death match, which is what the wheel revealed from Cactus Jack in 1959. They use an old style death match rules, which means falls on count and it continues to one man can't answer the bell at the 30 second rest period. They also had a falls count anywhere stipulation to the old death match rules. Tony Schiavone opened the match, repeating the Cactus Jack angle about losing his memory, etc., that had been all recanted months earlier. Don't they follow their own television? Stubby <laughs> Stud, everybody. Uh, this is an incredible match marred by an incredibly bad finish. 
Harley Race shot Cactus with a stun gun, so he couldn't get up in the 10 count. What's next? Straight Edge Razor, Switchblade, 44 Magnum. This is the most brutal of their three matches, which is saying a lot, and probably the best pay-per-view match either has had, uh, which is saying even more. Both men took a brutal, took brutal head-on chair shots without blocking them. Both were covered in blood. Jack was opened up by Vader's continual punches around his eye, and it looked to be hard way. There was suplex on the ramp and on the floor. And at one point, they brawled onto the stage, made it look like a graveyard, and underneath a tombstone going down the stairs. Vader came up bloody. Cactus hit him with a stiff clothesline, got the first fall on the ramp at 539. Cactus did an elbow drop off the ramp to the floor and got a second fall pin in 28 seconds. They got back in the ring, and Jack threw Vader into a table for a near fall. Jack tried to sunset flip off the apron into the floor, but Vader didn't go over. Tried to sit on Cactus, but Cactus moved. Cactus then dropped uh, Vader onto the guardrail and over. Jack uh, tried to flip splash over the guardrail, but Vader moved. Vader then threw Jack over the rail, hit him with a chair shot. They got back in the ring. Vader took a third fall with him and saw him 433. Vader crushed Cactus in the ramp, started the fourth fall, swung a chair like a baseball bat to the head, and got another pin with a DDT on the chair in 216. Jack immediately got up and DDT Vader on the chair to score a pin, but during the rest period, we got the stun gun. So let's go to that, shall we? Let's watch how this plays out. To get, he made it. And now here's where Vader's devastating. Lefts and rights in the corner, shoveling him in on Cactus. Throws him out to the runway. Race has the chair. Cactus bounces back. Vader carrying him back up to the runway, back to the graves again. Oh, oh, That was 400 and some pounds. Watch out for Race, too. He broke some ribs here. He had to break some ribs. Oh, no. Vader with the chair. He's measuring him. Oh, yeah. Right to the hand. Well, what can you say other than they're beating the hell out of each other? Look at this. He's laying the chair down. Racist call for a DDT onto the chair. He hit it. Look. Nick Patrick checking Cactus to see if he's still in it. It's over, says Vader. Not only is it over, Cactus's career might be over. I mean, the guy's a loony to want to come back to this. Look at this. All right, we got the trainer out. Paramedics are out here. Yeah, paramedic Chuck Tache, who is our trainer, is out. Check and see if Cactus can't continue. They may stop this thing right now, and I think it would be good if they did. Well, he's got the 30 seconds will be up. That gives him 10 more. Watch out. Watch out. Vader. Pushing everybody out of the way. He's got the WCW. He threw the medical bag away. And the chair. He's covering him. There's the official three count. The 30 second rest period begins. Rest period? Kapetsky calls this a rest period. It's a rest for all our fans.
Hans encouraging Harley Race. Race, what? He's got something in his hand. Ten seconds. Eight, seven, six, five, four. Jack landed on the chair. Two, one. The match continues. Jack, DDT and landed back on the chair, Jesse. Both are down. Jack's working his way up. What has Race got in his hand? He's got some electric prodder. He stung him with it. He got him with volts of electricity, Tony. And Vader's up. Vader's up at 10. This match is over. Ladies and gentlemen, Vader rose to his feet first. He wins the match, the Texas Death Match. Here is your winner, <laughs> Vader. Okay, I gotta say, I did not remember that the count was for no reason. <laughs> it makes, I mean, it was just arbitrary. And I think Gary Capetta was just trying to show off that he could count that high. And then uh, and it made no sense. And then the cattle prod, like, they made the sound like in the wrong spot. And then what a terrible place, like at the back of the leg. What do you get, Charlie Horse? Like, that's a terrible spot. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably yeah. Harley's it, real it was favor, a, though. Yeah, it was it was a great match. And also, Harley Race had really pretty hair back then. It was just beautiful. So, yeah, it's noted that, uh, you know, Dave talks about how Jack got right up at the lose and gave Race a double arm DDT on the ramp. Race got up too quickly, walked away. If you didn't buy the pay-per-view, you really owe it to yourself to get a tape and see this match. Four and three-quarter stars. By the way, I take it since we forgot earlier, we're not going to play the show intro with the trick-or-treaters at the Shivani residence, right? Uh, I mean, I don't think Tony's do dressed like point. Tony's dressed like Jesse. Well, there's so that there's too. That. Yeah, but um, yeah. And speaking of, uh, Dave knows that the announcement was much approved for Fall Brawl, but it's a lot easier to give a good announcement performance on a good show. The gimmick of Michael Buffett's against ring announcers run its course. I, I tell you, I mean, Fall Brawl, I love the announcement because it's Tony and Jesse just fucking around. Which, yeah, I, maybe that's not good because they're not showing interest into the what's going on. But, I mean, at least it's entertaining. You know? So, and, and they were great together. I, I love Tony and Jesse in this era. And one one scoop that uh, you guys have never given away on Between the Sheets is when Cactus had his amnesia, a lot of people don't know that he was actually staying in John Thorne's garage. <laughs> he was in Cleveland, yeah. Yes. Yeah, a, a young John Thorne, yeah. A young John Thorne was key. He was, he was renting uh, JT Lightning's ring, and he was uh, learning how to wrestle with uh, Cactus Jack. There you amazing. go. There you go. And, and Dave, talk about Buffer's run his course. Uh, he's going to be there for a little bit longer there, Dave. <laughs> so uh, get ready for more Michael Buffer. Yep. We get to hear about Brett Clark. Mm-hmm. It appears Havoc uh, did the same buy rate in the .5 neighborhood that the past few WCW shows have done. So at this point, the more frequent shows haven't adversely affected the buy rate. Break even said to be around .35. If Battleball can maintain that number with his close proximity to the Survivor Series, that would seem to indicate WCW's fan base is willing to support more frequent pay-per-view shows. 
Although Dave's belief is Battleball is sure that's going to take it on the chin. If I remember correctly, it did. Yeah. The show is, the show is really bad, too. Man, it's fun, though. It's Battle Bowl. But it's the only so, standalone that, Battle Bowl. They don't do it again. Yeah, but that one that one was just bad, though. Yeah. The Night of Rip Rogers. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that wasn't bad. Yeah. All right, uh, let's go to Wade Keller. Everyone agrees the booking was bad, the wrestling was very good, but where does Havoc leave WCW? How important are the finishes? And talking with one WCW official the day after Havoc, he suggested it's impossible to judge the finishes without knowing where they lead in the future. True, in some cases. In the case of Havoc, the bad finishes were but enough to be a turnoff no matter what's planned. Without any satisfying finishes on the event, WCW creates an inherent dissentive for the fans to care about any future matches because they are training fans to believe that no issues will be settled. In the past, screwjob finishes were used until the blow-off match where there was a decisive winner. The decisive finish left fans satisfied and reaffirmed their faith that eventually the promoters will make sure the issue will be settled once and for all. Now, that faith is not there. No sport could survive as a spectator sport without credible rules, referees, and conclusions. Wrestling's no exception. Finishes aside, WCW did provide evidence that it's the source for hardcore, brutal wrestling. The Vader Cactus style of a match is not seen WF. But WCW could still do more to make that their forte and then gloat about it. Without Hulk Hogan as an unsurpassable advantage for the WF, the sides are more even. If WCW established itself as a brutal form of traditional wrestling and it added credible, satisfying finishes to feuds and compelling booking, they could be in a stronger position. WCW has some good young talents with Scorpio, Bagwell, Home Heat, a few more strong acquisitions combined with established young talent such as Cactus, Austin, and Pillman, and WCW has ingredients comparable to the WF. Again, it all comes back to booking and more sensible hiring. With only Anderson out of power, the hiring policy may shift to where the talent's the main factor when considering whether to hire a wrestler, not just size. Unfortunately, having did a little set up Battle Bowl next month, some good promotional efforts were being needed on television to sell that event. I mean, Wade's laying out what WCW should have done, and they were they were doing until Hulk Hogan. He ruined it all. He absolutely well. Ric Flair ruined it all because Ric Flair won the work with Hulk Hogan. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it is. Now, would they have done the business they did without Hulk Hogan? Probably not. But, you know, it just, I wish there was a, a, a alternative universe where WCW has assigned Hulk Hogan and we see what, what happens. But it never, never will happen. But, I mean, Bix, what do, you th- what do you think about Wade's uh, thoughts here? I think he's absolutely right. In a weird way, very different circumstances, it, it also kind of feels like current WWE. Like, you have the talent there. It's not the talent that's the problem. It's no. the booking. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, it's interesting to see this here, and he's right. And it should have been obvious, and... Interesting also the two of the people named go on to be gigantic stars after they leave. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I saw someone mention this after the Pillman Dark Side, and it was a really good point. Or was it this something actually that maybe came up on here? I forget. But that if Pillman had gotten his shit together and didn't... Or, excuse me, no, it, 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 no going back further. If there was no car accident... He's probably a big boom period WWF star. 
Who, who, yeah, who knows? Who knows what would have happened? Well, but with Austin yeah. and Foley being two top guys and JR, you know, in the office and all that. Yeah. Well, what, okay. Let's let me play devil's advocate. How was his how was his drug use at that point? You know, he always like, had the well. No, it's the drug use went from Pillman to dangerous. Um. After the accident. Okay. So, like, uh, would he have almost surely had a drug problem? Yes. Would he have he hadn't necessarily had a drug problem worse than anyone else? Not necessarily. If there's no car accident. Yeah, because his, his style was so different at that point. Because, like, even, like, that later era before he left, you know, the loose cannon in WCW, like, he wasn't exactly, you know, lighting the world on fire with matches. But I mean, with that WWF style, the main event style of the kick punch, like he, I, I, I agree 100% with you. He kind of, he would have shined there, I think. Yeah. All right. Uh, way continues. It's inevitable that whenever something such as Dusty Rhodes' streak of bad booking takes place and he is thusly criticized, the WCW defenders come out of the woodwork. Way gets a letter saying, stop the WCW bashing. It's frustrating because it's not my job to cheerlead WCW. An honest critique back with fair explanations for my views is not bashing. Not even if I state my views with vigor and passion. In fact, if I didn't care about WCW, I wouldn't bother to critique the organization. I, as do most writers and readers who follow sport because they're fans of it, want to see the sport do well. Never should criticize an organization in the short term. Realizing they can leave long-term benefits, be confused with which an organization ill will. Similar complaints come when WF was under heavy media scrutiny. Uh, some ridiculously asked for the covers to be limited to the initial store, but no follow-up. They felt any more coverage was evidence of a deep-seated desire to see the WF empire fall. In any given week, I could be criticized, Wade said, for being biased against WCW, WWF, independents, and specific promoters and wrestlers. It's understandable because many fans have a certain home team promotion for whom they like to cheer, but that home team loyalty should not come at the exclusion of a realistic and critical eye for what is wrong with that organization and what changes could make it better. Wow. 1993. <laughs> 1993. And there we are in 2021. And boy, is this prophetic. And, you know, current, you know, just right on the money of what's going on now. Amazing. What are you talking about? There's no rash of fans that freak out if you can report on things that Vince McMahon may or may not have done. No, it, it's not just that. It's the stop the, it's stop the WCW oh, bash. Yes, I mean all. Of it, but, I'm talking about that. I'm not talking about Vincent Mann. I'm talking no, about I meant that the, the, the examples, the but yes. Yeah. fans. The home team fans, you know, and, and, and you know, when the, the WF was uh, having the, 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 the scrutiny, the media scrutiny, you know, fans telling way to, you know, limit the coverage. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely out there now. It's way more amplified now, but it, I mean, this shit was happening back 28 years ago. Yeah, it's it's so funny the like the brand loyalists that only will, you know, kind of defend their brand of of wrestling and 
you know, they could do no wrong. And the other one, of course, is all bad. I saw recently on Facebook, uh, Roman Reigns had said something about AEW and how he could take out everyone. And I saw someone comment, which made me laugh, that, oh, yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't be saying that to the face of Brian Cage. And I was like thinking it was like a flashback to that Jack Swagger versus Michael Elgin match. Like the size difference, <laughs> like from AAW years ago. And like, that's all I was picturing. Like imagining Brian Cage going up to Roman Reigns to fight for some arbitrary reason. It just made me laugh. Cause like, why even bring that up? I don't know. It was funny to me. Yes. Cause for people who have not both seen him pre machine or seen him next to certain other people, Brian Cage doesn't actually have that big a frame. Not at all. Like, Ethan Page has a much bigger frame than Brian Cage. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Br Brian Cage is just, you know, I mean, he is muscular, but he's not like a, like, if you put Brian Cage into 1991 WWF, like, he would look ridiculous. <laughs> like, the smoking guns would just... Like, make him a job guy. It would look like when the pit bulls would get extra work. Yes. Yes. Uh, All right. Man. But that apparently he has a very yummy penis, though, at least according to his wife's tweets in the past. What? You guys don't know this? Okay. Hey, someone yeah, was no. like, oh, God, do I have to look for the tweet now? It was like you someone don't. was insulting him and, like, maybe trying to make a steroids crack. And she jumps in about how yummy his penis is. All right, enough of that. All right, let's go back to the torch. Yeah. WCW and the finishes of mini Halloween Havoc matches with the philosophy of just trying to get out of the match without damaging either wrestler. Arguably not realizing that to protect both wrestlers is also to seriously damage the company on a whole. You have to... You have to have a... That's not damage on the wrestler in every match. I mean, good God, it's so stupid. That's what, I was, I, that's what I was saying earlier. I mean, it's like, every, how many clean finishes were there? Were there any? I mean, maybe one. Yeah, like the the equalizer in Harlem Heat. I think that was like the only decently clean finish. Yeah. Did Dusty bring in Herbie Abrams as his booking assistant? Well, he was known for his screw job finishes. So, Not that yeah. many on a big show, though. This this card did feel electric. Yeah. All right, Dave. Now is going to chime in on Vader and Cactus. The Vader Cactus main event exemplified what is beginning to turn into a dangerous trend in this business. Not disturbing the fans because many love matches such as this. It's disturbing because the element of risk and injury is being flirted with much too closely when matches as stiff and legitimately brutal as this and other recent matches have turned out to be. Dave was actually planning on writing this before the Havoc show, with the main emphasis being on the plight of All Japan Women's Wrestling promotion in 1993 and the Daredevil Tactics of Sabu, but Katniss invaded and put on the match that was one of the best of the year and in many ways defies the problem. Violence on television has become a major political issue in recent weeks. Luckily for pro wrestling, nobody cares enough about it to where any possible ramifications of Senate hearings aren't going to be applied to this product mix. Besides, any serious wrestling fan shouldn't be nearly as offended by what's fake about the product as by what's real. Without violence, whether fake or real, there would be no pro wrestling. That's the lure. 
going overboard can and is a turn off to the general audience. Although there's a small hardcore uh, they even go on way overboard appeals to. <clears throat> total, but total elimination of both fake and real violence in the long run would mean total elimination of pro wrestling as an entertainment form. Most pro wrestlers, most pro wrestlers' matches aren't as brutal or legitimately violent as many of the pro sports. Boxing being the first that comes to mind. That's a necessity because the top pro wrestlers have to work anywhere from 150 to 250 times per year. In a UWS style promotion, when there's more legitimate violence, the wrestlers have the benefit of generally working once every four weeks or so. There's always going to be a can you top this mentality of pro wrestling. Younger wrestlers are constantly learning from and imitating those who have stretched the boundaries of their imagination when it comes to brutality and acrobatics. Because of that, despite the cries that isn't so from the old timers, the actual entering product is constantly evolves and constantly improves unless it's stifled by those who can't bear to let go of the past. Some improvements in new ways include either stiffer and more risky brutal blows, as in Japan, or higher risk acrobatics, as in Mexico, comes an increase in the dangers. At one point, do the risks exceed the potential rewards? Time can't be turned back. But if you want to see where this trend is going to lead with men's wrestling in the future, you have to look at the group that is years ahead of all others when it comes to entering product, All Japan Women. All Japan Women has been a successful year since the mid-80s at the gate and achieved its highest level of mainstream popularity in many years. Two of their shows, the April 2nd Dream Slam 1 card and August 25th Budokan Hall show were among the five largest crowds in the history for all women's wrestling shows and most likely far away the two largest gates, each most likely topping a million dollars. Previous record before this year was about 500000 Dream Slam 1 was, if one can make a totally subjective statement, as fact, the single greatest collection of matches on any card in history and, in the opinion of many, the greatest wrestling card of all time. Dream Slam 2 wasn't far behind. When it comes to moves, speed, and execution, they've taken the art form to a new level. Even though they are women, when it comes to legitimate brutality, working with pain and overall guts, they are second to none. The result of this has been a very successful year for the promotion, but is it worth the human cost? Virtually every wrestler in the group works with varying degrees of serious injury and pain. Pain is part of the life of any wrestler. Goes with the territory, so is doing risky moves. Many injuries have and always will occur basic moves aren't even all that dangerous, the landing is a little off, or a body part blows out, or body part simply gives off the constant wear and tear. But when a wrestler like Akira Hokuto comes back too fast after a knee operation, and after a broken back to appear on a major show, is it guts, or is it insanity? When a wrestler stands there and lets another man swing a chair as hard as he can to his head without putting up his hands to block or cushion the blow, is it guts, or is it insanity? When a wrestler dives out of the control from the ring to a concrete floor without the fluidity and experience to protect himself, and then literally has to be scraped off the concrete, is it guts or insanity? Anyone who saw the second-best suplex that Dr. Dusty Williams gave Kenta Kabashi a few weeks back wasn't all the move. But the truth, is, the truth of the matter is that Kabashi, the most talented performer in the business, literally risked a serious chance at a broken neck that could have been his career to make a finish look like nothing ever seen before. People like Cactus Jack, Sabu, Sakosis, Raymond Stewart Jr., Shioshikuchi, and Callis others are either beginning to or already have taken the limitations of insanity and stretched them to insane levels. It's scary to think of the condition their hips, backs, and joints would be in when they reach the age of 30. Sabu, who didn't achieve stardom in his business or work a full-time schedule until recent years, is about 30. Cactus is 28, let alone in old age. The crazy was dying my kid, who had the advantage of being an incredible athlete to boot, paying the comparison with these men, and yet kid was nearly a cripple by the age of 30. And now at 34, so I forgot man in the profession where 10 years ago, before his 25th birthday, he was revered by many as being their best worker. They're Japanese and Mexican wrestlers that have become quadruple ages from missing dives outside the ring. 
The fact that the nature of this business is such that taking care of those who have given it isn't who have given isn't one of his strong suits only makes them long-term stories that these men are even more precarious, even as their peers and fans applaud them for their courage, imagination, and guts. In their cases, it's no longer working a style with an element of risk. It's working a style with certainly with certainty of both risk and long-term serious damage. Anyone who has been around older wrestlers who have put 20 years in knows that while some wind up in old age, it's pictures of health. The bumps aren't so kind in the long run about to others. But the daredevils of the day put their bodies through more punishment in a few years than some crippled ex-wrestlers did in their 20-year careers. All Japan Women's Group has just enough wrestlers left standing to put on cards. Virtually all are hurting in some way or another. It's not unheard of for young women to come to the building with knees and ankles so blown out that it hurts to walk, and then do chippees in the floor to further damage those joints. The casualty list for 1993 is scary. Hokuto came back from a broken neck several years ago from a tombstone pile drive on top rope, a move that because of his wrist has been repeated that Dave knew of since. Has gone on from one major injury to another and will probably be her final year as a wrestler. Well, no. Terry Power break, practically destroyed both one knee and one side of her upper body learning the ropes in Japan and has been able to wrestle since April. The two other non-natives that are regulars, David Malenko and Nessa Moreno, have both been out of action for more than six months after suffering broken legs. Rick Yoshida, who one year ago was thought to be potentially the best of all the younger girls, broke her neck and missed virtually the entire year. This past week alone, nine of the 24 wrestlers who started the year were out of action due to various injuries. Sakashigawa was back, and these have led to constant recurring injuries. Most remaining healthy ones, besides working on damaged joints, a performance style with the risk of serious injury is so high that it's almost a certainty. The upside of these women as a group are the best ring, in-ring performance this business has, and when enough of the top women are healthy at any one period, they have the ability to put on the best shows this business has ever seen. They also go from being inexperienced rookies to superior workers on average many times faster than performance in any other group. But when the chance of injury increases from the risk of the nature of this business demands to a certainty, it may be time to try to get things under control. How can that be done? First, increasing the amount of submission holes that are over, allow less bumps to be taken, and less crazy moves that have been done during the climax of the matches. Second, if the style demands high-risk maneuvers, keep the schedule manageable enough to at least try and minimize certain risk. Any promotion that works a serious hard style nightly, none of the U.S. qualify in this category. It's insane to work guys 200 dates per year, or else their best young talent will never reach its prime in one piece. While many are waiting for the day American wrestling reaches that level of proficiency, if it does, without learning safeguards, there's a serious downside to progress. Again, very interesting to read this in 2021. You know, talking about how the business was evolving back then to a more violent acrobatic style, younger wrestlers pushing the boundaries of what they had grew up on. And yeah, I mean, Mikey, what are your thoughts on Dave's uh, diatribe here? I mean, compared to to now, like it is laughable. I mean, but obviously, you know what he was looking at then compared to. I mean, when you look at wrestling in '93 compared to wrestling in 1983, I mean, it's a different world. I mean, it's a really a different world from 2021 to '93. But like, it is. I could see because, like, that's just kind of when it was starting to evolve into a certain style. Because remember, 93 was, you know, ECW was, you know, really finding, uh, really finding its voice at the time. And, you know, people could say what they want, but that, 
ECW was definitely very influential on the bigger com- bigger companies and like overall style of wrestling. So, yeah, I don't. I mean, it's definitely going in one direction. But like those, you know, all those girls. I mean, just like you know, you you'll hear from wrestlers that were around that you know at the time, and they would just talk about how terrible it was like, you know, that they would see how beat up those girls were and just, they were going so hard, but I mean, those are such, you know, like those are some of the, the, the tapes that I had to get, you know, when I was really into tape trading, uh, just because those shows were so great. Yeah. Bix, what are your thoughts? Okay. I have a quick question before I discuss, um, would Dave have written this before or after Oro died? This is before. Okay. You understand why that's important context, clearly. Well, the Oro's death, you know, is covered in the Observer and later because that the death happened at deadline time. Right, right. right. So he went and got the he went and got the news. Yeah, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. So, but still, we're coming off all the kibashi neck bumps. We're coming off these chair shots right here. Uh, Kikuchi Fuchi match that people thought gave Kikuchi brain damage was earlier that year, right? Mm-hmm. So th- I get I get why with the timing and then especially obviously once Toro dies. I I get why Dave would feel this is the time to write something like this. And it's also, you know, Dave talking about the violence in television and uh, this is that era where that's that's really picking up. Janet Reno. Violence in the media. So, yeah. In in ninety three, like ninety two and ninety three, like there's a lot of Dave editorializing, you know, different subjects. Uh, to this extent, I mean, you know, this is many many paragraphs, you know, about the same subject. But like, that's that to me is kind of what made the Observer at the time very special. Is you know, it wasn't just you know, just wrestling news is kind of like opinion, his opinion, and like he would deep dive into it, and I thought that was very, very great and very interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. After Havoc, most of the big names being left for the European swing from October twenty sixth to November seventh, so nothing major is going to be happening until the Clash. A <laughs> little, you know, Dave. Especially seeing to be that they'll do good the first tour of Germany, but not, but United Kingdom is suspect, which is both surprising and not surprising. UK has been a boom territory for both groups the past two years, and Dave Boy Smith has a huge popularity there. However, the network that carries WCW butchers the show, editing many angles and promos off the show, so it makes little sense. Plus, WF hinted at, at a tour at t- on TV, which slowed sales. The journal WCW confidence doesn't help. <laughs> oh, it never does. All right, they drew 3,000 fans at Cardiff, Wales on October 26th. Brian Pillman and Steve Austin. Yep, still here's the Hollywood Blondes because the TV's that behind. Over Scorpio and Marcus Bagwell, two and a half stars. Ricky Steamboat and Max Payne, star on a quarter. Nasty Boys over Arn Anderson and Johnny B. Bad, two and a quarter stars. Rick Flair with Lord Steven Regal, three stars. Sting and Dustin Rhodes over Sid Vicious and Rick Rude, two stars. And WC World Away title, David Boy Smith over Vader by DQ, two and a half stars. Now, WCW has another show that day, the Crystal Chandelier in lovely Kennesaw, Georgia, on October 26th. Brian Anderson over The Gambler, Bryant Anderson, holy son. Terry Taylor over The Ace. Michael Hayes over Robbie Walker. 
the equalizer of a might winner. Thunder and lightning over Buddy Lee Parker and Big Bad John. Tech Slasher, Shanghai Pierce over Tom Zink and Jungle Jim Steele is your main event. <laughs> what a shitty show. <laughs> That's you know, the Crystal Chandelier shows where the where young guys and guys at WCW were, you know, weren't doing a whole lot with their so plant shows. Yeah, I mean yeah, who was the ace? Oh uh, the gambler. Yeah, I was gonna oh, say okay. Aces Gambler, Big Bad John is Max Muscle. I think that's about it. Yeah. Robbie Walker's Robbie Walker, not Bobby Walker. Yes, Hurricane Robbie Walker. Yeah, so so there's that. Johnson City, Tennessee, October twenty second. One hundred fans at Freedom Hall. Dear God. Charlie Norris over Tech Slashinger to start on a quarter. Big caboose of a Shanghai Pierce by DQ, half a star. I don't know. All I'm over Ice Train and Lightning, star and a half. Michael Hayes over Tom Zink, dud. Rick Root over Eric Watts, two and a half stars. Arn Anderson over Brian Pillman, three and a half stars. Was Big Caboose Bob Backlund? <laughs> because no. he's got, that's why my friends and I, we like to call him Baby Got Backlund because he's got that big old booty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who Big Caboose was. Maybe somebody tell us. But the, the, there's a split crew. They were at the, fa- uh, the fairgrounds in Phoenix, Arizona on that day from 2,000 fans. Where we had Steven Regal over Tuco Scorpio, star and a half. Davy Boy over Sid, one, by DQ, one star. Vader over Captain, not title, three and a half stars. And Sting and Rick Flair over the Nasty Boys, two and a half stars. I would love to see that Rick Flair and Sting versus Nasty match. It's definitely an interesting match, for sure. So, uh, it's a fairground show. It's paid show, so there you go. All right, WCW Saturday night, the night before Halloween Havoc. We have the score here. Uh, match quality was 17 out of 20. Achieve purpose, 16 out of 20. Angle, 6 out of 10. Interviews, 8 out of 10. Announcing, 6 out of 10. Production value, 6 out of 10. Pacing, 7 out of 10. And 17 in next week, 8 out of 10. Overall score, 71. Highlights with a big the tag title match defense by the Nasty Boys against Duco Scorpio, Marcus Alexander Bagwell. Preview. Uh, British Bulldog won a squash at a confrontation afterwards with Lord Steven Regal and Sir William. Let's watch that, shall we? As uh, we get to see Regal looking uh, quite different. Wearing some different attire here, as we normally see him. That's right, it's for pride, and it's for honor. Steven Regal, you've been showing your mouth off a little bit too much in the WCW. Call all these peasant people peasants. They're not peasants, they're my fans. Come tomorrow night at Halloween Havoc. The TV title's mine. Brave standing out here saying what you're going to do. But he's lost it. He's played a nice game of tricks. But tomorrow night, Halloween Havoc, he's going to give you a shot of expression. What do you think of that? Pause. 
So Regal was out in his cricket attire <laughs> using his whip oh my. on Dave Westmith. And you would think uh, Bill Dundee's never used a microphone before. <laughs> Goodness, he was like the Where's the Beef Lady from Mania 2. <laughs> yeah, not, not the, the best work by Sir William there, but yeah, Regal in his crooked attire. I love that. I uh, Sting gave an interview followed by Sid Squash. Jimmy Bad defeated Paul Norton by disqualification. That means the V on Cactus Jack. The Awesome Collins returned for a squash match. Steve Austin won a squash match. Where in his post-match interview was interrupted by Colonel Robert Parker. Sid came out and shouted at Parker for worrying about Austin instead of him. Then we get Ric Flair being interviewed. Throughout the show, a few fans spun the Havoc wheel as a test. Uh, then we get the tag title match. Scorpio and Bagwell over the Nasty Boys. And... Uh, this has quite the finish, so let's go to uh, that, shall we? Who's legal? I don't know. Watch out! Oh, no! And there was nothing Teddy Long could do about that. He could yell all he wanted. Tags with a cover on Bagwell. I think it's over. No! No! What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, they pulled him up. They wanted to pull him up. They want to get him back from what's happened the last two weeks on this program. Now, I'll tell you what they want to do. They want to hurt him so he can't wrestle tomorrow night. That's what they want to do, Tony. They could have won the match right there. Oh, look at this. Missy put a chair in the ring. a shame that i mean the title change took place on october the 4th so it was taped at columbus georgia on october the 4th it didn't air to the 23rd so they were champions for 20 days 
but they were on this title change happened on TV and then lost the next night. So in the fans' eyes, they were only champions for one day. And I, I thought Scorpio and Bagwell deserved some type of little reign as champions. They should have got something. Bagwell was such a bad dancer. Well, that was the charm of it. Yep. But they were a really, really, really good team. Yes. And the more you watch Looking Back to, the more you realize that in a just world, Two Cold Scorpio is a world title challenger level babyface by this point in his run in WCW. Yeah. He d- he does challenge uh, Barry Windham, or he did at a clash. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, that's like a main event babyface. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, no, I know what you mean, but I'm saying, like, I did consider that, like, you know, a level up compared to yeah, where he was at. They were top-heavy on men and men baby faces, so at this point in time. And they're about to turn Sid. So, I mean, you got Flair, Sting, Davey, Steamboat, Dustin. I mean, they're pretty stacked when it comes to baby faces on the singles. I know what you're saying, Vix, and I agree with you, but, I mean, that is a pretty stacked deck to maneuver around. So, but yeah, they get their one day reign. So there's that. All right. Uh, Tony talked about the Cactus Jack interview. Well, let's go to that interview and see what happens as the precursor to Halloween Havoc. Shall we? We are back on Saturday night. And what about the new world tag team champions right here on TBS? But let's bring out the man that this is all about. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Here is Cactus Jack. Cactus, less than 24 hours away right now. This whole program has been about this and about you. We've seen fans spin the wheel. We've heard from Harley Race. We've seen some of, I guess you'd call them your highlights over your career in WCW. But there's no doubt about it. 1993, you endured a lot of pain. Maybe a lot of times you'd like that, but tomorrow night, Halloween Havoc, the biggest night of your career, no doubt about it. Tony Schiavone, everything will be all right. You see, when I look at that wheel, I don't see the most brutal matches in wrestling, no. I'm looking at the best set of friends I've ever known. Each of them special in their own unique way. False town anywhere. The love of my life. Barb Lawyer, also very dear to my heart. And I'm going to tell you why. Charlie Race, you got a tissue backstage. You take it out, because this might be touching. I was seven years old in the summer of 1972 when my dear sweet mother shipped me off to upstate New York to spend a summer on Grandma's farm. She thought a little hard labor might calm down her wild child. And because I was a bad boy, I was only allowed to bring one toy. My bike with no brakes. You see, a bike with no brakes is no big deal in the desolation of New Mexico. But when you ride down the hills of upstate New York, you find out real quick it's a big I put my foot down. I tried to stop rolling and sliding. I found That's out all the YouTube video. I was in the most painful situation of my life. You see, I'd become entrapped and the barbed wire of old man Johnson's things. And so I called out, Mommy, Mommy! But she wasn't there! I called out, Daddy, Daddy! 
but I hadn't seen him in five years. So slowly but surely, one wire by one wire, I pulled each and every one of them out of my body. I ran home to Grandma. She cleaned my wounds. She sent me off to bed. But that night, I couldn't sleep. You see, it wasn't my wounds sticking to the sheets. It was the fact that deep down in the back of my mind, I realized that I liked it. So I went out to that same barbed wire fence, and I clipped off this piece of wire, and I put it behind my pillow, and I slept like a baby. The point, Shivani, is this. The things in life that bring fear into normal men's heart bring Cactus Jack comfort. And Vader, Harley Race, that's where you made your worst mistake. <laughs> you see, Harley, you should have realized when you bounced my head off that concrete floor that I'd be back. And you better realize tomorrow night when you spin that wheel and make the deal, you're in for the longest night of your life. Cactus Jack, you, you, waiting to spin this wheel and find out. So what they did there, what they did there was Cactus with the spin the wheel. And we had our little effects there. And as it was spinning, it stopped and it said to be continued in white letters while the letters start turning in red from blood. And then it went to the Halloween Havoc uh, graphic tomorrow at Halloween Havoc. That damn cactus, though. He sure could cut a promo, couldn't he? <laughs> My I, goodness. I know. Shocking. The storytelling. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. Wayne's analysis tactile changed another excellent match on par with the pay view match. Production value score took a dip with much hype. Uh, Mike Miking bombed where there were not much re- ability to hear the wrestlers in the ring than usual. Cactus' interview was one of the best interviews of WWE this year, the high of the program. Edging the tag title change. Blair's interview was good, but let the passion of some of his classic interviews. The amateur challenge fan interviews are inconsistent, some useless, some funny. Where's W should be going with this? Chris Cruz is doing a good job with the control centers. His position with WCW is in question, with Mean Gene especially being what Chris Cruz is doing. WCW couldn't use Chris Cruz on play by play to cut back on Tony Sh- Shavani's overexposure. This is Wade, not Steve Beverly. Dustin Rhodes' promo for his match against Austin Havoc was at best uninspired, at worst just plain awful. Overall, decent promotional effort for Havoc. F- Flair versus Sid headlines next week. Ah, <laughs> uh, Chris Cruz, Vix, always getting that love for the newsletters. I wonder why. Smoking <laughs> Mountain Java, Robbie Eagle was talking about coming in as the 1990s gorgeous George. Well, how about that? WCW was originally going to bring him in here or talk to him about coming in as Gorgeous George. And that's where, I guess, is when he decides to do Gorgeous George the third anyway. And then he trademarks so, the name. 
Yeah, so how about that? It was WCW's idea. So, yes. huh. Brian Anderson, son of Ole, debuts on TV in the next few weeks. He does not. Uh, that's This is from Dave. All right, now we go back to Wade. WCW slams... Because I forgot to say when you said it earlier, um, I believe his real name is Brian Rogowski, and Bryant was just a wrestling name. Yeah. WWE Slam Jam album created by Grand Theft Productions, a Texas-based company, in conjunction with Michael Hayes, has sold over 10,000 units to date through ads on TBS, considered good within the record industry. A Slam Jam 2 release is being worked on, which will be distributed to retail, retail stores. The new CD would drop songs of the Stiders, Jake Roberts and Ad Riffler, David Boy Smith, and Two Cold Scorpio, possibly among others. By the way, Hulk Hogan's album is set for release in the United Kingdom. is rumored to be very good by wrestling standards. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell me that uh, Mike Omansky's been talking your ear off without telling me that Mike Omansky's been talking your ear off. <laughs> because <laughs> he was the one behind that, a lot of the, lot of the marketing of that, uh, that Hulk Rules or whatever it was called album. My thing is on this is, of course, we never get Slam Jam 2. Mm-hmm. But could you imagine a Ric Flair Slam Jam theme? Oh, my God. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> oh. You were my friend, and I'll see you again. <laughs> um, no hair! No flair! Oh. This does remind I mean, me, though, though, um, I remember seeing an ad in the magazine, though, for a version of Slam Jam with the Scorpios theme. Well, I don't know, but there you go. Uh, Sting will have a recurring role in Hulk Hogan's syndicated television series, Thunder in Paradise, which will debut later this fall with a two-hour pilot followed by 22-hour-long episodes. So there's that. And uh, Gene Okerlund with, and Jason Ventura start this week on the 900 line. Speaking of Gene... One top WCW executive says the rumor salary at $300,000 plus a year is much higher than Oakland's actual pay. There's confidence in WCW that Oakland will bring a finishing touch to some pay-per-views that they are currently missing. I will say this, you know, he added a lot of gravitas to WCW. Yes. He really did. And he fit it, and he fit in very well. He, he acclimated himself extremely well at the beginning, and yeah, I mean, he fit in very well, and yeah, I, Gene was, was definitely not an issue coming over. So, yeah, that was a definitely a much-deserved hire. They needed that. Yes. Hulk Hogan did a public appearance on October 23rd at Ric Flair's Gold Gym in Charlotte. Huh, how about that? That's, yeah. that's, that's the whole reason, uh, you know, Flair decided to bring him in because he made all that money from that appearance. So he, he found an, another way to to make some money off the Hulkster. So he just wanted to keep bringing him back to his gym. Well, I'm sure I'm sure that this is this plays into it. You know, they're talking. I mean, so this definitely plays into all that. Absolutely. Do you think the Jesse Ventura hotline appearances uh, had anything to do with wrestling? Or was he just talking conspiracy theories? Uh, yeah, it, it was wrestling. If it's all uh, if it's all that scripted shit though, I think so. The oh tradi- man, yeah. The traditional Christmas Day Omnicar was canceled. They canceled Thanksgiving too. Yep, Atlanta's pretty much dead at this point in time. At least Omni is. Oh. Th- then we talked about the the uh, shows uh, earlier that uh, 
we talked about. Dave had had it here. WCW. Uh, the reason why I put it in here was Dave noted that WCW was paid twenty five thousand dollars for that show in Phoenix. Fix how, how is, is that good or what, 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 would, you, what would you say about that twenty five dollar the twenty five thousand dollar payment for that? When we've read from that article about their sold shows before, wasn't that like one of the packages they offered for fairs? Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't know what WWF was charging for sold shows. I don't know. Like, I don't really know what a sold show should cost on that level, on the you know major promotion level. Yeah, I mean, j- just that match of the the Nasties versus Sting and Flair. That's worth twenty five grand right there. <laughs> and that and I forgot, like, because that was at, like a fairground. So was that outdoors? Uh, I mean, most fairgrounds have indoor col- coliseums and stuff. So. I, I think so. I think it was inside. And the closeout to the torch. For what it's worth, WCW is officially changing the way it spells Jerry Sags' name from two G's to one. Sags has the last name tattooed on his arm with only one G. At first, we accused him of misspelling his name on his arm, says WCW spokesman Mike Weber. Now we're going to give in and spell it with one G. Also, Brian Noss spells his name with only one B, according to Weber. And yet, and yet he doesn't know how to spell fight. <laughs> but my thing is, is they were arguing with this man about how he spelled his name. Oh, which is not his name. It's an abbreviated version of his name. Their name. I know. That'd be shit out of everybody. Jesus Christ. <sighs> There you go. All right. Well, that is it for wait, us. Wait, this... wait, 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 wait. Why is Wade even talking to Mike about this? I don't know. Wait, wait a second. I don't know. I don't Th- know. Think of the questions you've asked people, Bix. You know, um... just in in your journalistic integrity and in the craziest questions that you've asked random people. That's not that crazy. I guess it just, it just came up in conversation. I don't know. Who knows? But anyway, that's it for us this week. Mike, you go ahead, my man, and plug plug away. What's going on with you? Uh, nothing's really going on. Uh, I uh, don't have anything in the pipeline as of right now for BLP. Got some family stuff we're, we're doing. But make sure you go and follow us on Twitter at BLabelPro. The letter B label pro and watch our YouTube, go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Uh, there's lots of good matches on there and, uh, yeah, we currently do not have, uh, a streaming deal anywhere. We are weighing our options and we will have updates later on where we're going to end up, you know, maybe IWTV, Maybe we'll be back in the fan. I don't know. We'll figure it all out, though. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, there's more things important than wrestling sometimes. Abso- absolutely. Absolutely. So, like, uh, like wrestling autographs. <laughs> uh, if, if any, if anyone uh, has any rare wrestling autographs, message me on my personal Twitter at at BLP Mikey and show me what you got. Yes. Yeah, so you you are a uh, noted uh, authority on the wrestling autographs. 
I I love I loved like the history of wrestling and I love just like you know little little tiny things that like you know you could you could find cuz like there's there's wrestlers that you know you don't think of you know when you want to find an autograph and then when you finally do find it it's it's kind of an exciting thing so I don't know I'm just a wrestling nerd forever Oh well, we all are I guess Great All great. right all right, next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1989, and we have quite the show. We uh, we'll start with the World Wrestling Federation, where Tully Blanchard gets fired. Yes, in Wichita, Kansas. So we'll talk about that, tell the story of that. Plus, all kinds of injury news in World Wrestling Federation. Lots of guys getting hurt. We got some interesting house shows to talk about, and. Yeah, they had quite the week during that week. We have an update on Liam Maivia's trial that you may have heard on previous episodes of Between the Sheets. We have um, all kinds of interesting stuff from the uh, indie scene at this time, including AWA taping at their mysterious studio in Minneapolis. So Wade and Dave both chime in on that. We got some major changes going on in uh, Jarrett land, both Dallas and Memphis, behind the scenes and on camera, as Jerry Lawler is starting to get a little edge to him on television in Memphis. So we'll talk about that. We got um, Adrian Street being profiled in Continental. So we'll talk about that interview with Johnny Rich and other assorted clips. We got news on the... Superstars of Wrestling on Channel 69 Atlanta's Halloween Party. So we'll have, have that. We got all kinds of stuff from Stampede Wrestling. Angelo Mosca wants to be the commissioner of CFL. We got Japanese stuff. But we have a loaded, and I mean a loaded, NWA section. As Guess what, folks? We have Halloween Havoc 89 on next week's show. So two weeks of Halloween Havocs. And Dave Meltzer is there live. So we'll have Dave Meltzer live and then Dave Meltzer's thoughts after watching the show. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. Plus we have uh, other assorted uh, famous newsletter personality readers, their thoughts on it. And uh, we got what's going to happen in the NWA after the fact, what's coming up, what's the plans and all that. So, um, a very interesting show next week. Very fun show. 89 is always a fun show because there's so much great wrestling. And if we're going to have a show like that, we've got to have a great guest. And finally, coming back to Between the Sheets, our dear friend, Robert O'Connor. Next week on Between the Sheets. And yes, we do have Grizzly Smith's Heritage Championship Wrestling. <laughs> oh, no. I-, I will be listening. I will be listening. <laughs> and and yes. The stampede section, yeah, there's a lot of stampede stuff too. So oh. a great Robert O'Connor show next week. In fact, um as I look at my Twitter DMs, is word after I sent him the notes looks like a good one. So that's all I need to hear next week on Between the Sheets. All right, Mikey, glad to have you on with us yet again. Always great to have you on, so we'll get you back on soon. Hopefully, Black Label will be back going strong by then, so we appreciate you. 
Dix, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. This is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Patreon special edition number 60 by four years. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, here we go. Five years. Hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of is. And we obviously thank everyone who's been sticking with us or however much they can support us throughout all this on the Patreon. Yeah, so that, some of you people have been supporting us for 60 months, basically. So, uh, wow. That, that is amazing that uh, that you've supported us for that long. And of course, those of you that have uh, came through at various times, left, came back, whatever, we definitely appreciate uh, all of you and everyone that has uh, took part in the Patreon. Uh, whatever little or big you gave, we definitely appreciate that. And we hope that uh, you continue to support us as best you can. As uh, we're going to continue the Patreon series with a lot of great ideas uh, going forward. Um, you know, some some ideas uh, we thought maybe could be one time, maybe at the way, you know, with uh, how these formats go on these shows. 
Uh, so like this one, I was hoping to get this one done in one show, but that didn't happen. So we're going to have two shows on uh, the one the subject we're going to talk about now. But We uh, knew that could happen. Well, hopes hopes were, were there. But anyway. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, this is uh, an interesting show as we're going back 25 years to discuss the birth of the new world order. And um, hard to believe it's been that long. But um, here we are. And wrestling was never the same after the, the new world order and the, the whole the beginning angle and everything going on. And it's, it's definitely interesting to go back and look at a time in wrestling history where, I mean, when you watch the television like I do and uh, watch the older stuff, especially the mid-90s, I mean – the contrast between pre-NWO and after the NWO is staggering as far as television, how everything's presented, especially in WCW. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, oh, absolutely. If just because, for better or worse, the NWO adds a little bit of an edge. Well, it just changes the whole thing. It changes the dynamics of, of everything in the company. Yes, yes. I, you know, I don't think it's actually mentioned outright here, but the one, the one big, I mean, the biggest change is that you end up for a while with this weird limbo where everyone sort of has de facto babyface moments in WCW, even if they're heels and feuding with other babyfaces, and it kind of it's something you want to have happen in this scenario. I I don't know if they pulled it off as best as they could have, but it really does shake up everything. Yeah, because I mean, traditional it's not traditional wrestling anymore. Um, what was you know wrestling before? It's changed because now you have this faction of these heels that are these cool heels. Yeah, but there was the full horseman and stuff like that, but there was nothing like this where you had this group that was declaring war on a whole company. And yeah, whether it's babyfaces and heels in the traditional sense, they all have the, sh the common rival of this faction. And as we'll talk about more, more about this as we go along, but yeah, it just, it completely changed the business in, in that way. And, uh, and for the and for the better in a lot of ways, because she got back and watched some of that WCW television from early '96, and it's like, wow, you know, they're in that period where Hogan has got his creative control, and all the main angles are involving him are just garbage. Women's shoes, hot coffee, the Alliance Ten, the Hulkamania, Z Gangsta, the Ultimate Solution, Doomsday Cage. Yeah. And they got good talent underneath, but it's just like, wow. And it, and then it, the outsiders come in, and it's just like Nitro's changed forever. So let's get into it. All right, let's uh, go to the week of June the 3rd. Torch, June 8th, from Server and Lariat, June the 10th. In one of the most tumultuous weeks in the history of Titan Sports, had a pay-per-view nearly destroyed by Mother Nature... It had its own spoof comedy segments knocking its competition turned into a strong angle for the opposition. And had the man scheduled to be their pay-per-view main event heel, scheduled to be their pay-per-view main event heel for at least through the end of the summer, give notice 
toning down would have been up to that point considered one of the company's most creative storylines in a long time. Uh, who was that, Bix? That has to be David, right? Sounds that way, yeah. Yeah, because King of the Ring hasn't happened yet, so he has a pay-per-view main event coming up. And create one of their most creative angles in a long time. I can see why they why Dave would call it that. And why did he give notice again? He just gave notice to be able to renegotiate his contract or and test. Yeah, because he stays. Yeah, yeah. He didn't leave, but you had to be able to give notice to do that. Yeah. Striking back gets the work from interpromotion angle started one week earlier by WCW Nitro. Vincent Mann and what appeared to be lawyer statements in the June 3rd Raw show that Diesel and Razor Ramon were no longer part of the World Wrestling Federation, but that they intend to portray themselves as the stars they once were and were participating in a ruse that they're still part of the WF when they're under contract with a rival wrestling organization. They then encouraged their fans to call their 900 number or log on to America Online for more details of the ruse perpetrated by Diesel and Razor Ramon. The stars they once were. In the addition, stars they once were. They were what? on your April pay-per-view. One of them was in the main event. Find that real quick while I read this. I want to hear Vince say that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, let me see. And That's it, the... June 3rd, Raw. Uh, let me see if I can find it on YouTube, because it's a, otherwise I'll have to switch to the VPN in the middle of the thing. But let's see. All right, in addition, WF released a legal letter sent to Scott Hall, which informed Hall they believed he was infringing on Titan's intellectual property rights by still portraying the Razor Ramon character in WCW, and that Titan would be withholding all future payments, virtual merchandise checks, and, and the main in-your-house pay-per-view payoff, along with other monies not yet paid him. They owe Hall until the matter is settled. All right, the WF's online message stated... In an effort to further the blurred alliance between Ted Turner's wrestling organization and the World Wrestling Federation, Scott Hall, portraying WF wrestling character Razor Ramon, reappearing on WCW's television programming. The World Wrestling Federation wants to make it clear that there's no agreement with the Turner organization, nor will there ever be. Therefore, the following letter was sent to Scott Hall in an effort to make him aware of the copyrights in which he and World Championship Wrestling infringed. Dear Mr. Hall, this letter will sort of put you on notice of your deliberate infringement of Titan's intellectual property rights in connection with your appearance this past Monday on WCW's Nitro show. Having reviewed the tape of your appearance, the text of the various statements made by you during your appearance and the explicit references to past and ongoing storyline to Titan Sports, it is obvious that you were attempting by your appearance to suggest to the consuming public that you and the others from WF were now going to be appearing on Turner Networks and WCW programming as some sort of interpromotional storyline. The entire theme of the program, buttressed by WCW personnel afterwards, was that WF wrestlers were going to be wrestling WCW performers and that you were leading a group of WF talent in that effort. This is, of course, completely false and it was intended to confuse the in public. To further this attempt to mislead and confuse the public, you stay completely within the character portrayal of Razor Ramon and registered trademark of Titan Sports during your appearance on Nitro. Indeed, both you and WCW personnel never mentioned the name you intend to wrestle under WCW, Choosing instead to tell the audience that they knew who you were. You dressed like Razor Ramon and utilized the Hispanic accent given to you by Titan as part of the character portrayal. Titan, of course, has no objections whatsoever to you portraying a new or different character devised either by you or the WCW, but will vigorously exercise its rights in connection with your intent to pawn off or suggest to the consuming public that your WCW appearances are in the character of Razor Ramon. In the capacity as a WF wrestler or as part of some interpromotional matches involving WF's participation. Accordingly, this is advised you that Titan has exercised its rights under the contract it had with you and will be withholding future payments from you until this matter is first cl further clarified. 
Citing further reserves all rights, it has to take any and all further actions as may be appropriate. And it's noted here, the letter seemed to make no difference to WCW and Hall, which continued their planned angle with no backing down on June 3rd. Nitro It's believed that it had been the first class's war in 1984 that a promotion has called another promotion's angle a ruse and tried to hurt a competing group's top angle on its own television show. All right, it looks like I found the uh, part of Raw where Vince reads this statement, which is in the middle of the Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Jake the Snake Roberts main event. Huh. I guess I don't need to screen share for this, so here we go. No, no, just, yeah. Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Into the arm bar now. Jake the Snake Roberts would like nothing better in his career to be the king of the ring. Jake has made a triumphant comeback to the World Wrestling Federation thus far. Despite, by the way, his 43 years of age. Yeah, well, he better hope he wins king of the ring because for sure this is his last hurrah. And speaking of last hurrahs, of course, Ted DiBiase is at his last hurrah here in the World Wrestling Federation. But likewise, a number of other individuals also have had their last hurrah no longer associated with the World Wrestling Federation in any manner. Big Daddy Cool Diesel as well as the bad guy Razor Ramon. And it has been reported that both of these individuals intend to pawn themselves off as the stars they once were here in the WWF and to furthermore perpetuate some sort of ruse that they're still representing the World Wrestling Federation while actually under contract to a rival organization. And right now, Hunter Hearst Helmsley is taking an exit <laughs> as it relates to Jake the Snake Roberts, and Jake the Snake thus far has befuddled on oh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Furthermore, it's amazing how he can do that and then go right back into the match. <laughs> Why even do that during a match? Why not, why, why not just do that in the aside? You know, I guess because they're not live in the building. It's obviously pre-tape. Yeah. Or they're in, the, they're in the studio. So I guess they can't do some type of... There's something you could do where it's not wedged into the middle of a match. Do it during the ring intros or something. During the entrances. Even. <laughs> a ruse. The stars they once were. Six weeks ago. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about this yet. It, one of the crowning achievements of Eric Bischoff's angle here is the fact that he used all that bull, being or Ted bullshit in his favor. Yes. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. Vince's pettiness towards Ted Turner basically set all this up. Yes. And I didn't include in the notes, but there are various, uh, it looks like the Time Warner uh, Turner merger is going through items in the newsletter. Well, you know, that that doesn't matter here. But I'm just saying, it's hilarious how Vince's petty bullshit, which we talked about on, on this show before, how it was a big waste of television time to do all that stuff when you could be pushing your talent, but yet you're pushing this bullshit you got in your mind against Ted Turner. And then what, what does WCW do? Use that shit against you in this big angle. Yes. And also something we should remember too, because I don't think this part is really looked at or talked about enough anymore. Those billionaire Ted skits did eventually get very unfair and twisted and mean spirited. Are you surprised by that? <laughs> I no, mean, this is specifically 
though the the lithium stuff. Oh yeah, we talked about. I mean, we talked about that. I mean, I it's, it's it's just that's Vince. That's what Vince does. But especially through the lens of like twenty five years later, kudos to Ted Turner for being so open about his mental health issues. Yeah, you know, like it was it was bad then, especially since. Vince also kind of tried to imply, including later, like a few years later when he's on Conan, he tried to tries to make it seem like like lithium is like a drug that gets you high and that Turner's abusing it. It's just so stupid. So it's like, yeah, good for Eric. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just five dollars per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.